everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 361. I'm Chris Zomner, joined as always by my co-host David Bixenspan. And Bix, before we get into the main show this week, yes, we have a new Patreon show up. And you did a uh, a hit for, on post-wrestling that uh, kind of ties into what's going on in 2022 and what's going on in 1992. So I want you to talk about that and talk about the Patreon show real quick. Yes, on the uh, Post Daily News Show last Tuesday on YouTube, and I believe those are also on the pa- their Patreon as audio. Um, they had me on to talk about the New York Magazine, uh, Rita Chatterton, Vince McMahon story, you know, talk about, you know, some of the history and all that around it. And in the process, John also made sure to plug, before I plugged it more extensively at the end of the show, the Titan Gate Patreon series we are doing with... As of last week, part three now up for our patrons at patreon.com slash between the sheets at the $5 a month level or higher, which also includes the annual option of uh, 16% off for $50.40 a year or higher. So yes, part three, where do you want me to start? Well, we'll go ahead and talk about some of the topics. I mean, so we got the continuation of a lot of things. Yes, we got um, Murray Hodgson and his uh, insanity his, and his uh, unraveling, him, in particular him being more right. of a sociopath, and things are starting to fall apart for him as the episode moves forward. Mel Phillips, we find out a broader scope of his uh, issues and uh, what. Who knows how bad that was? But we get more of a broader scope because it was not, not just wrestling people involved in this too. So we'll, we talk about that. We have a lot on the steroid stuff, and we have a lot on Vin- the unraveling of Vince Russo and John Arezzi's relationship on this show. A lot. Which, and there's um, more than could have been on Yeah, it kind of takes up a lot, of, a lot of the show in a way, too. A yeah. Empty bit. There's more that's could have been there, that could have been there that I didn't even include because it wouldn't have even been as on point to the scandals, you know, like the background stuff. But yes, for people you know who have listened to the Russo show we did early on – this is the stuff we've gotten since then that we didn't cover on that show. Um, you know, like Russo giving his side to Alex Marvez and stuff like that. So there's a good bit of that. There's the current affair segment about Titan Gate featuring an ornery Vince being ambushed uh, as he's driving away from Titan Towers wearing his bodybuilding leisure wear, which is quite the moment. Um, so what else do we have here? We, yeah, uh, I mean, you covered the Arezzi stuff, which covers some of the things I was going to mention. Um, more Sid uh, drug test drama, as that kind of plays out as part of the thing here. We talk about Terry uh, Von Erich going to rehab. You know, I did this plug earlier today. I should be able to remember more <laughs> off the top of my head. Oh, Lee, Lee Cole uh, and his estrangement from Tom Cole and... Whether or not forces within uh, the worldwide leader in sports entertainment conspired to uh, get him picked up on an outstanding warrant that should have been done away with in previous years. So there's that. Uh, Follow-ups from Barry Orton, Jim Ross's comments on Titan Gate. This might have the most inter... Oh, I was going to... I almost forgot one. Uh, Tom Zank on John Rezzi's radio show, transcription of that, talking about the scandals, including why he left really left the WWF. This probably leans more on radio transcripts and quotes than any of the episodes so far, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, a good bit of stuff uh, source-wise on this show. Yes, yes. Lots of Pro Wrestling Spotlight, lots of Three Count, plus all the usual Torch and Observer. I don't think we had any mainstream articles on this one, right? Because that's kind of petered out by that point. Oh, and towards the end of the show, I won't spoil it here, possibly the biggest buried lead in the history of the Wrestling Observer newsletter. Yeah. There's a few of those. I mean, there is one that... Let's just say there is a story that you think was broken uh, over a month after that uh, was actually broken in the Observer in passing that no one noticed. So there's that. We've got letters. We've got some surprising responses from certain people to certain scandal coverage. Um, We've got... I think, I th- you know, we've got more specifics about p- bodybuilders and their drug bills. I think that covers the gist, though. So patreon.com slash between the sheets should have the free preview clip at the end of the show. And yeah, I think that's about it for now. And then uh, so part four, part four, I'm guessing because it starts to get a little less dense in terms of how much is breaking week to week. will probably include the Barney saga. Among other things. Yeah, we haven't done that yet. Because <laughs> I had forgotten that doesn't break till August. Yeah. So, so yeah, we, had, we haven't even got to that part yet. Yeah, I think we talked about Barney once on this show when we covered the week it broke. Mm-hmm. In The Observer. but And we talked about it on part one. Yes. In the question on Donahue. Right. Um, but we have now, you know, we have the transcript of his phone call with John Rezzi. That John ran in his newsletter. Yeah. So that, well, I'm guessing will be in part four. Um, but, you know, there will be, you know, based on where we are in the timeline, since we're around like early to mid-June when part three cuts off, we should have the Alex Marvez story about the grand jury coming in part four as well. So lots going on to look forward to in July as well. So patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, well, let's get into this show this week as we discuss the week that was June 28th through July the 5th of 1995. And we actually have an eight-day week. So let's go with World Championship Wrestling where we got a lot going on here and a major change at the top. Kevin Sullivan officially replaced Ric Flair as the head booker of World Championship Wrestling after a meeting on July the 5th. The news is probably a surprise as for weeks, Flair and Eric Bischoff have been in odds over numerous things. Many stemming from disagreements on booking philosophy between Flair and Hulk, the Hulk Hogan camp, Hogan, Savage, and Jimmy Hart. Among the disagreements are that Bischoff wants Flair in the office five days a week. Flair has been unhappy about some of the direction the booking is going, which is out of his control, and quite frankly, his points appear to be valid. Two points in particular we've heard is that Flair wants to book the television around the TV title. And when Renegade is champion, it makes that impossible because a few times they tried to book him in matches longer than two minutes, this exposed him and rendered him less over. Flair wanted the belt put back on Arn Anderson, so he could have a lot of TV title matches to fill up a lot of TV time. The other one is Flair was against the idea of putting Vader into the Dungeon of Doom, which takes place in a video over the weekend. For only two weeks before his babyface turn, since his turn is on Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, who he's been associated with the past few months anyway. Dave guesses the idea was they, meaning Hulk Hogan, wants the Hogan Dungeon feed to be the prime book focus on the promotion, and it could be the prime focus when the key issue is Hogan and Vader. Kevin Sullivan's ideas are that because he's more familiar with outside talent, 
his wife is with BCW, plus he's got connections with other indie groups, he'd bring in a lot of wrestlers who haven't been exposed nationally. Nancy Sullivan already had to try to be a co-host for the Monday night show, although no word on how she did. But if Kevin is the booker, it'd be no surprise to see her wind up here in some form. She'd be better than Colonel Parker. Well, isn't that interesting? The, she tried out as a co-host for the untitled Monday night show. I remember that story, yes. That's something that you don't hear nothing about anymore. Mm-mm. But, um, you, I mean, Sullivan ta- has talked about, you know, creating the Dungeon of Doom as a way to pacify Hogan. And it got him basically the, the, the booking job and for that reason. And yes. Flair got a, a, basically aced out. So what are your thoughts on – do you think that Sullivan created the Dungeon of Doom knowing what, what the, you know, the end game was that he was going to be put in charge as the booker? I don't know. I, the dungeon only just got started anyway. Um in the previous when he's weeks. not when he's not not the the booker he's not yeah. the head booker so so it seems to me that he was angling for the job and he knew that doing this would probably help him get that job because he knows he can make the suggestion because he's one of flair's guys yeah but he knows that hogan's gonna love this idea of cartoon monsters for him to slay and sullivan's whole thing about this was he I create the Dungeon of Doom that takes up Hogan's time, and then I'm able to do what I want to do on the undercards. Mm-hmm. Because what's so. about to come with Nitro and the Proto Cruiserweight division is, which I guess is the best way to put it, the work rate matches and the people they sign for those. That's all Kevin Sullivan. And see, that's the thing. I, so I think Sullivan, Kevin. I mean, say what you will about Kevin Sullivan, but the guy has been has been a visionary he knew that that monday night show that bischoff was going to want a whole different flavor for that show mm-hmm. and he knew that if he got put in charge he could get in touch with this outside talent that could bring in that could totally revitalize the roster and make wcw a a cool hip product to their hardcore wrestling fan base which it did Exactly, it did. You know, exactly. and he deserves a lot of credit for that. But I'm sure Bischoff had it in his head regardless. I do believe him when he says that part of it was that he knew they had better in-ring wrestling if they put their minds to it. And that's one area they could thrive over Raw. I don't think he goes in the specific direction they go in without Sullivan. I don't think they're signing Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit, maybe Sabu. You know, I don't Flair's think necessi- not Flair's not Flair's not doing that. Right, he's not bringing in Liger as a semi-regular. I think Flair. I mean, I mean, look at the guys that 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 came in under Flair. It's, I mean, it's a totally different style of people that came in under Flair than came in with Saul. Yeah, you know, Flair kind of Flair was kind of cultivating. I mean, his big his big project was Alex Wright. Yes. And who he was know, grooming to be a great worker type. Yes. But I think Flair, I think, I, I think, or I really think Flair thought Alex Wright would be somebody kind of like what a Ricky Steamboat was in Crockett yes. in the late 70s. 
to be that type of personality. Not yeah. the same guy, but to be that role of the handsome young baby face that we push and he gets better as he goes along. Yes. Improves as a performer. All right. And, and Flair, let's look at Flair, his plans here. He wanted to book the TV around the TV title. Which I mean, it makes sense. And at this point, I think is a fair idea. It, you know, Nitro would have changed everything, but I, putting the TV well, title the on Renegade in general was a mistake. Even if you don't go with Arn. Yeah. But even if you don't go with Arn, you're taking away what the TV title meant to the TV. And that then messes up a whole lot of TV time. Because all of a sudden now you have all these shows that you could trust to put a 10-15 minute match in. A good 10-15 minute main event that you don't have. And now it makes booking the TV completely different. I think the thing, though, is Arn... Arn had been the TV champion so much in in that time period. Oh, it when that, he won the belt from Bad, it just felt old it, and tired. It should have gone back to Regal, if anything. Re, that, yeah, Regal, something like a Regal or even Pillman. You know, give Brian a chance to to have a singles title that means something and see what he can do. If you want to, if you want to build around a guy that's going to have good matches on TV. Those are two guys, Regal and Pillman, that would make sense. And this is also babyface. Also, this is the era where Pillman is watching all sorts of international tapes all the time, too. Yeah. Um, so I think part of it was Flair's loyalty to Arn may have bit him in the ass on that one. And yeah. then the idea of Vader going to Dungeon of Doom, if you're going to turn him babyface, then why the fuck you put him in the Dungeon of Doom? Well, they didn't formally put him in the Dungeon of Doom, though. They, no, but, like, I mean, it's what it says here, you know? I, I don't know. It makes no sense, but it's Hogan's bullshit. He wants to keep he wants to keep Vader away from him. He's tired. I mean, he's in, had a few, he's a few with Vader so much, it's time to move Vader on. But Hogan's viewing the Dungeon of Doom, so why would you want to put Vader in the Dungeon of Doom when Hogan's viewing the Dungeon of Doom? And it also, no it, it's just wild because... As much as Hogan was, like, paranoid about Vader injuring him or whatever, Vader is also the only non-Flair opponent that he draws with pre-heel turn in WCW. Yes. And how about Dave just spelling it out here that Sullivan Sullivan taking over, he's going to post the indies and ECW. Mainly ECW. Yeah. So... All right, the Hogan camp philosophy stemming from 1980s WWF successes surrounded putting title belts on the top baby faces and feeding them a succession of one heel after another, usually large and freaky, and having the top face never lose and the key faces never lose, except in the case of a major league screw job. The packaging is largely aimed at creating merchandising stars and have a product geared towards young children. And that was a hugely successful thing for the WWF in the late 80s. But... 1995 is not 1986, 87. 1995, the climate is different. Yes. Fan, the, the wrestling fans of that era are not buying a Hulk Hogan-style babyface anymore. I think part of that is probably Bischoff also thinking in terms of the new licensing deals and needing to sell toys and the like. Well, Bischoff's totally – it's totally business with him. Yeah, that's because what I'm saying. Yeah. To the wrestling fans, Hulk Hogan is old and tired. 
But to the business world, Hulk Hogan's still Hulk Hogan. Right. And his brand is still strong. Well, also think about, you know, the the line we don't hear anymore. I talked about it much anymore, but it was kind of a famous line at you know, at the time and then for years later after Austin broke through as the top star in the business and how that speech about how we can't sell dolls of a guy in plain black trunks and black boots. But at at the time, that was the philosophy, and 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 you know, I mean, can you? Can, I mean, you can't really fault Eric Bischoff for that. Mm. I mean, who Eric, Eric Bischoff and, and you know, no delusions of grandeur could have thought that a Stone Cold Steve Austin character would have gotten as big as it did, and no. nobody brought, and nobody would have. You know, that was one of those things that. It 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 hit and it caught on like wildfire, you know. Yeah, he wouldn't have thought that. He could have thought that with Steve Austin in 1995. I mean, Steve Austin's a hell of a, was a hell of a talent, but there's no way that that would have worked in WCW in 1995. It just it just wouldn't have worked that way in that promotion. He had. I mean, the only way he could have done that and been that successful would have been in WWF because they were desperate. They were trying new things. They needed to boost, and they allowed Austin to, you know, take that character on, embrace it, and make it grow. Because they needed anything they could get to, to help them. WCW, at this point in time, no matter what they're doing, I mean, they're making money. They're on. I mean, they're about to get a big, you know, the big money in that TV show. They're trending upward. Mm-hmm. So why change? Why change what we have? The Flair philosophy, because of his own upbringing in the business, is where his own strengths lie during his prime. Place more emphasis on good wrestlers, having mainly heel champions, and having the babyfaces try and catch the heels. It's reminiscent of many of the territories booking during the height of the Southeastern Territorial Wrestling in the 70s, early 80s. One could say neither approach has proven to work in the 90s, but the fact is, what really has. Here's where I take issue with Dave's comments here. Who was the driving force to bring Hulk Hogan into WCW? That would be Richard Morgan Fleer. Exactly. So that goes totally against what Dave just said here. Heel champions, Bayface trying to catch the heels. Flair wanted Hogan in there, so Hogan be the champion, he, and he wrestled him. That was his main focus on the main event programs. You know? He wanted Hogan. Yes. I mean, there was no heel champion the whole time Flair was the booker, other than himself. And the reason he did that because of the Hogan, because he brought Hogan in. Yeah. So this, I mean, what Dave is saying here is totally non-existent. It's a false premise. <laughs> hmm. You know? Yeah. Because I mean, uh, uh, unless Dave is thinking in his in his own mind that. Flair wants this, but it wouldn't happen because of Hogan. Well, who brought Hogan in? <laughs> I mean, if Flair's bringing Hogan in, Hogan is getting, you know, Duggan's going to have the United States heavyweight title because it's a byproduct of Hogan being in the company. I think he the probably didn't expect Hogan to have the semi-formal power he did. But I, you're right. Probably in his heart of hearts he did. But it all came with it. All came with it. So, you know, he he, op- he opened the gates of hell and the demons all came in. So, yeah. 
Flair, who will remain in the company but no longer be a part of the booking committee, was replaced by Bischoff because he was unwilling to work 40-hour weeks in the office, which Flair felt would force him to move his family from Charlotte to Atlanta, something he refused to do. Flair has outside business interests, in particular a few Gold's gyms in North Carolina, and is a major public figure in his home city. That was a lot, of re- a lot of the reason, but don't rule out other factors, including Randy Savage still being upset at the finish of Great American Bash. Not necessarily that he lost by pinfall, but the loss was done without outside interference, which was the original plan. The continuing power struggle between Flair and Hogan, their camps over booking decisions, the continuing renegades TV champion, and the decision against Flair's will to put Big Van Vader in the Dungeon of Doom for two weeks. It's not as if the overall creativity of the product and the Saturday television ratings aren't at all-time low, and Flair hasn't taken some heat for that as well. While he has to take some heat, he's also been booking with his hands tied since he's got no control over the main program, and a lot of the video decisions that have inundated the television were items to a large degree out of his hands. Um, here's a question. I'm curious to hear your opinion. Somebody that's supposed to be the head of creative. Should they be in the office 40 hours a week? In this specific job at this time? Hmm. Or should they have an office presence? Let's put it that way. Let's not say 40 hours a week, but should they have an office presence? Maybe. I mean, what's throwing me on all this is that Flair was never really interested in booking much more than the top programs anyway. Yeah, but he's... Here he is taking this head. Here's he's taking the head head of creative again, you know. After he had such a sour experience, you know, years earlier. But that I mean, Jim Hurd was part of that too. Yeah. Jim Hurd's not here anymore, so you can you put a lot on Jim Hurd. But Flair, I mean, Flair's got this job for a year, year and, and a half. half. Yeah. So why are you springing on, it, that on him it, now? Anyway, yeah. It, that that's what I was about to get into. Dave brings up the whole savage thing, Great American Bash. Do you think that that was maybe the straw that broke the camel's back? Maybe. Um, also, I am sure they probably live there to some degree, but we never really hear anything about Kevin and Nancy living in Atlanta together, though, do we? No. We always hear about them living in Daytona. Mm-hmm. Do and then she's, know? In, you know, she's working ECW every weekend. Right. Or every time they were at shows. I, I'd be curious to find out if they did live in Atlanta at all and how much Sullivan was in the office. Yeah, I mean, you don't really hear about that. Right. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting to look at this, and it seems like it seems like to me that Hogan and Savage and whoever else in that camp was actively trying to get Flair aced out and put Sullivan in there because Sullivan is working to placate them and Flair's not. Yes. So is Frank Shamrock where where you're at? Basically I hear dogs barking all the time. (laughs) Last time I heard that so much was Frank Shamrock was at Dave's house. Well, Frank Shamrock at Dave's house when Alvarez was there. (laughs) <laughs> AK, should we explain that joke since it's been so long since it's last last came yes. up? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. Don't explain yeah. the joke, but still. Um. So, Dave Meltzer apparently had a 
Oh, uh, no, it was specifically just Frank, right? Yeah, it was that he never yes, thought Frank. of Frank yes, as Frank. Mexican. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like, wasn't there a story where Brian showed up to at some point? No, well, it's not no, like he would have been a case house. was Frank. Okay. Yeah. Dave Meltzer adopted a rescue dog. Yes. The dog had been terribly abused by some Mexican teenagers. The result was a racist dog that always barked when Frank Juarez Shamrock entered the house. <laughs> I think Clem is uh, just upset right now because uh, because Emily's not home. But my roommate, but anyway. Well, there we go. <laughs> anyway, all right, so uh, back to Flair. Flair's on a contract with WCW through late 1997. Flair's friend Arn Anderson at this point is still a member of the booking committee. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I wonder how long that lasted. Not long, probably. The change to Sullivan won't be that much of a change because the power was before and still is with Hogan and Hart. Power of the hand. Sullivan's main job will be a combination of implementing whatever ideas he has with whatever new and old talent he wants to use, but more importantly, continuing to appease Hogan. Since Sullivan's wife has been a fixture of ECW for some time, and Sullivan used to work there, and familiar with the talent, there's a lot of talk that he'll try and shore up the undercard with some of the ECW wrestlers. Paul Heyman largely discounted the idea of a large-scale raid on the belief that Sullivan himself knows his position is tenuous and that WCW Booker has proven to be a scapegoat position ever since the formation of the company, and that eventually Sullivan, who doesn't have a long-term WCW contract, and is 46 years old, may need to return to ECW, and thus doesn't want to burn that bridge. <laughs> so, Paul, Paul's thinking that Sullivan's not going to last long here, and he'll be hooked up at DCW, so why would, why would he want to uh, take all his guys with him, huh? Warfare. Why would he want to burn the bridge with the hottest zeitgeist promotion in professional wrestling? <laughs> It is interesting, though, that Sullivan is being put in this position but doesn't have a long-term contract. Well, maybe he will once he's formally in the job. Yeah, I guess so. That is funny, though. Paul, tenuous at best. Uh, and Kevin basically keeps the job until he becomes such a mess that he overdoses on GHB in the back at a nitro. Yeah, I mean, he was never fired. <laughs> He left. Because he had to get his shit together, yeah. Yeah, he was never fired. Several names have been bandied about over the week as being considered. Among them are the Headhunters, Public Enemy, Eddie Guerrero, Al Snow, Chris Benoit, Shane Douglas, Woman, and Disco Inferno. So let's go down the list here. No, yes, yes, almost. Yes, no, yes, yes. Because Al Snow did did do WCW tryouts. Yes. And but he, came he signed with WWF. If I remember right, came fairly close to signing. It's just they ghosted him. And if they hadn't, he would have strongly considered it. He should have. I imagine how different his career would have been if he did. He would have used a whole lot better. Mm. <laughs> but uh, Dave goes down the list here. So let's look, let's go down the list. Headhunters, who are world travelers, who were primarily five WWE Japan, are 440-pound Abdul the Butcher-like twins who can do some phenomenal moves. Still, their most impressive matches involve their willingness to do sick matches, do juice and gimmick matches, etc., which doesn't coincide with the product WCW's trying to produce. When it comes to working the rain, they are awesome for their size, so I wouldn't totally discount them, but the headhunters people I've seen on video 
or indie shows will have to be heavily toned down. I'm sure Sullivan loved the idea of those guys being there, but it would it would have never worked no. correctly. It just would no because of what they did. Would have been Mahin. a better fit in the WWE. I mean, then they were in the WWF, but that's yeah. about it. I think if they were in WCW and early, <laughs> the thing is, if they were in WCW in, in the beginning of Ric Flair's booking regime, it would have been fit in better. I mean, that ni- early 1994 run, mm. they've been great. In that Nasty Boys, Sullivan's, Cactus, and Max Payne deal, they fit yeah. right in there. It, it would have exposed their height, though, with the pre-Hogan. Guys. Anything, anything pre-Hogan. Yes. Public Enemy is the most overacting ECW. They've had great matches in ECW because of their willingness to do things like go through tables, do lots of juice, use gimmicks, and brawl outside the ring. All things, again, not applicable to WCW's product. Their advantage is strong interviews, but some of that has to do with Paul Heyman's creativity. I mean, we saw what happened. We saw what happened when they went to WCW in 96. Also, they're not really doing the strong interviews anymore anyway, even at this point. Yeah, that's that's pretty much done by this point in time. But, uh, you know, the the ones where Ted Petty pretends to be a, a hoodie half his age, talking about growing up on the streets. Well, at, at this point in time, what they're doing is they're doing the, oh, the comedy. Yeah, the comedy promos. Yeah. Yes. So, again, we know what happened here. We saw it firsthand. Eddie Guerrero is one of the top six or seven pure workers in the world today. However, neither WF or WCW have at this point even tried, let alone had success. It pushes somewhat of his size. Is anything past mid-card. One look at WCW's track record with having Brian Pillman, who was a bigger man than Eddie, for more than five years tells the story in itself. Eddie, who is tw- only 27, has been waiting for a chance in the U.S., and with his spot in AAA drying up due to the e- economic collapse in Mexico, only has a part-time job in Japan and some ECW dates on his calendar. If they want him and make a serious offer, they can't see him turning it down. And if he is used correctly, perhaps recreating the heavyweight title and giving some serious play, being put in the feud with Pillman, the two will be able to save all but the very worst pay-per-view shows. Well, I mean, Pillman at this – if you're looking at WCW at this point in time, Pillman and Eddie makes a lot of sense, but Eddie's friends are coming too. So mm-hmm. that even becomes a bigger deal. So. Yes. Again, and we see what happens. And we see what happens with Eddie. So. Yes, and also Eddie hasn't been a babyface since he's become one of the very best wrestlers in the world. So, Dave or anyone else wouldn't have any idea of just how strongly he's, he's going to get over in WCW. Well, sorry, brain fart. But he hasn't been like a. He's just been a guy in work rate matches in the mid card, though. Is I guess what I was trying to get at. In WCW, he has more of a sustained. I don't even know if I'd say push, but still as a baby face and, you know, especially at center stage, but everywhere he gets really over very quickly in a way that I don't think people would have expected him to. Yeah. After going through more than 10 years of pro wrestling with no options, suddenly Al Snow has all kinds of options. But WF and WCW are interested in him and he's got a full-time gig with Smoky Mountain and gets some media dates as well. Snow has a WCW trial scheduled for the July 11th center stage tapings. Snow could be mixed in with Pillman and Eddie and be a highlight mid-card performer, but he could also get buried like so many others. Again, he made a big mistake not going to ECW. I mean, WCW, excuse me. I mean, long-term, he probably did better off in WWF. 
long time. I guess. I guess. But still. I think he would have had a he would have had a more fulfilling run in WCW. He would have been able to have better opportunities in WCW. Staying power? No, probably not. You know? So is your point that if he went to WCW, he wouldn't have turned out to be such a miserable prick? Possible. Okay. But there are miserable pricks in WCW, too. So, Speaking of miserable say. pricks who go to WCW. Yeah. Chris Benoit's name is always naturally mentioned as he could be the best non-Japanese performer in the world today. Since WCW has a relationship with New Japan, it's an easier mix with WWF. Still, Benoit was there before, given no push, and now that he and WCW has really changed to a great degree since that time. Well, where Dave is failing to mention here is when Benoit comes in it's with Bill Watts in charge, Bill Watts gets gone, and then Benoit's left hanging in the weeds. And Bill Watts had been trying to bring him in for pretty much his whole tenure, and just yes. been trying to get the work visa sorted out. Yes. If Bill Watts stays in WCW, Chris Benoit's career is totally different. So... We can't – I mean, you could talk about that run, but you can't – you got to use the full context. I mean, he debuts on a live clash with that Brad Armstrong match where – which is like this eye-popping and also really working a more spectacular style than I think people would be used to from Benoit. Like, he clearly had plans for him, but then within a few weeks, no more Bill Watts. Yeah, exactly. And we know what happens with him when he goes to WCW, so that there's that. Shane Douglas' name was mentioned to be brought in the feud with Ric Flair, of all people. Rather than waste time speculating, this isn't going to happen. And Douglas is probably about 99% certain going to the WWF. Yes, he is. And we'll have a lot more on Shane Douglas later on. As for woman, if they got a spot for her, she's there. Dave would give us a few with a diamond doll or an announcing spot, where she had to try to announce on the new Monday Night Show, which is tentatively the name Power Hour, would be the most likely situations. So the tentative name was the name of the show that you just got rid of not that long ago? WCW, everybody. <laughs> Hi. Do you think that she could have handled that position, the announcing position? Probably not. I mean, she's she's really good at promos. But she hasn't but... been good at promos very long, and we haven't seen her cutting those promos away from Paul Heyman's coaching either. There's that as well, yes. All right, Eric Bischoff appeared on News 4K when they work on Thursday, June 29th. Introduced by host Chet Kopic as the 40-year-old father of two and Ted Turner's right-hand man in charge of one of Ted's favorite companies. The following are key excerpts. And this is from The Torch. On how he would uh, describe competition between WCW and WWF. Well, I hear a lot about the competition between WCW and WWF, but frankly, I think we're looking a lot beyond the WWF. Our goals are to make a, our way in the world of entertainment globally. We're looking beyond the WWF. I think that's a pretty short-sighted goal to only be worried about our competition here in the United States. I mean, this sounds totally like an Eric Bischoff thing to say. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the, you could just, just hear it come out of his mouth. And that's him. I mean, and, and you know what? If uh, Why not? I mean, make it sound like that you're going for a bigger fish. Mm -hmm. You're going for a global market. Why am I worried about WWF? I'm, we're going to overtake the WWF. Yeah. On signing former WF wrestlers Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Gene Oakland, Bobby Heenan, and Hacksaw Duggan, 
and whether WCW is having a difficult time developing their own talent, and thus felt the need to raid the WWF, quote-unquote. No, not at all. To the contrary. With staying certainly in the position WCW, what we were looking for was a way to augment the talent we already had. One thing I think people have to remember is that Bobby Heenan, Mean Gene, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, all people you name were stars a long time before they got to the WWF. They were very well established, particularly in the case of Hulk Hogan. So what I did was look for the very best talent I could find. My goals were big, my vision was big, and I wanted to have the very best there was. I didn't raid them. They all came looking for me. And he's got a point. I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, Heenan was worn out. He wanted to be close to home because he lived in Alabama. Oakland, I mean, that was a whole deal anyway. I mean, he had a love-hate relationship with that for years. Hogan was a free agent. Savage, he wants to wrestle again. He didn't want to be just an announcer. And Duggan, Duggan was free too. So it, this whole narrative that they rated WF is, is absolutely not true in this case. Now, do you want to make that case uh, a year later with, with the NWO, Hall and Nash? That's a more legitimate case. But this one is not. These guys all left on their own volition or, or definitely wanted to leave or already gone. Well, and with Hall and Nash, too, whatever you want to say, A, it was just a coincidence that their contracts happened to be up at the same time, more or less. B, yes. the money that Bischoff paid for them at the beginning was really not that far out of whack from where they had peaked in their best WWF years. It was more, but, you know, one of the reasons we always hear about why Paul in particular left was how much his money went down from 94 to 95. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was still more with, you know, a more attractive schedule, but both of those guys have families and stuff. You know, it's like, I wouldn't call it a raid either way. It's just two guys. Now, if they had managed to get bread, but again, it's just like all that came down to contract timing more than anything else. Yeah, but they were, but they had just been major stars in WWF. You know, sure. Difference. It's not the same as who we're talking about here. No. On whether he admires what Vincent Mann's accomplished and whether he looks at him as a threat, I wouldn't try to analyze Vincent Mann. I don't have anything, uh, uh, anything at all against Vincent Mann. And yeah, I do admire what Vince McMahon has done. I used to love watching the WWF. If we're going to be honest about the situation, in the 80s, he brought our industry up to a level where it had never been before. I think he deserves all the credit in the world for that. He was very innovative at the time, but that time has come and gone. It's a very competitive world. I don't think he's quite as competitive as he used to be. He was the top of the heat for so long, a long, long time, and WCW was way down at the bottom. Times have changed. Do I look at him as a threat to WCW? Absolutely not. Hope Vincent WF get healthier and get stronger and create wrestling fans where there were no wrestling fans before. That's good for everybody. That's kind of WCW's goal. We're trying to create a market that is bigger tomorrow than it is today. I wish him the best of luck. Hope he goes out and creates new wrestling fans as we're trying to do. Very interesting reading this considering what happens in the next year with the NWO. Where they create a whole new wrestling fan base. Mm-hmm. And they are the ones who do it, not the WWF. Exactly. You could tell that Bischoff had – the wheels were in motion. That was what he wanted to do, and it was the what, – what, what, what was it going to be? What would be the catalyst 
for this to happen. Mm-hmm. He had to find the right catalyst. And he went to the Tokyo Dome and he found the right catalyst. Right. So, yeah, it, again, it's, he's talking about it here in June 1995. And a year later, boom. On whether the term sports entertainment applies to WCW, it certainly would. I think it's applicable not only to WCW, and as far as the competition is concerned, it's applicable when you look at the NBA. If you go back to May and look at the cover of Sports Illustrated, there's Dennis Rodman with red hair, a parrot on his shoulder, wearing black lingerie. Is that sports entertainment? I kind of think so. That's who we're competing with. We're competing for the attention of people who like to see their action and like to be entertained. All sports is sports entertainment. Yes. You know, and I think that's a thing that wrestling fans take as a, as a you know, that that's a, a stigma for wrestling fans that they don't want to admit it because WF leans so heavily into it. But again, all sports is sports entertainment. Well, if, if WWE had not tried to make it this euphemism that they used almost exclusively instead of the word wrestling, I don't think it ever would have gotten that stigma anyway among wrestling fans. You know where it comes from, mainly though. Who is who is the one that may, basically instituted that? As Bro. a main, no. Oh. Go back and watch WCW in the nineties, early nineties. Oh. Jim Ross mentioned says sports entertainment quite a bit. He on does. He does. I thought you were going in terms of the labeling of like the WWF stuff because Vince Russo did lean heavily into that. He did, but that but Ross did too. But Russo, you know, Russo's the one who tried to differentiate the the company styles well, more using the term sports entertainment. Yes, Russo was Russo was mainly the entertainment. <laughs> There's a difference, you know. That's the difference. But Ross would use sports entertainment quite a good bit in WCW telecast, and a lot of other things that we attribute to Vince and his in in his you know. Words, a lot of that's used to on WCW too. The big one is well, nearby medical facility in particular. Incapacitated, that's a Jim Ross one as well from the WCW. I mean, you you hear it if you pay attention, you hear it on drug testing. We have very strict drug testing policy and procedure. We're looking at all the time to make sure that it's as strict as it could possibly be, and still be within certain guidelines in terms of privacy laws and things like that. We're very comfortable with it. And yes, indeed, we have random testing on a very regular basis. That bullshit! <laughs> yeah, look at your world television champion. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Mm-hmm. He's the poster boy of it. So, yeah. On what happens if a wrestler tests positive, especially if he represents significant revenue, it's not about as much as punishment as it is about solving the problem, helping the athlete, and helping the individual. And if any of our wrestlers, whether they're number one on the list as a box office draw, as you put it, or whether they are a rookie breaking in, they all get treated equally and fairly according to our policy. Our policy is to try and help this individual identify the problem, make sure the individual knows he or she has a problem, and then take appropriate action, which involves counseling and possibly treatment and continual testing to make sure the problem doesn't continue. I like how there's exa- like one woman in the company – and she has drug issues, so he makes a point of saying he or she. Well, which woman are you talking about? Sherry. There's more than one woman in the company, Pick. Okay, there's two. <laughs> you know what I mean. I know what you mean. But, yeah. But, 
again. See, here, that's yeah. bullshit. <laughs> but you know, but you know what though? I hmm. mean, we know it's bullshit. But when you have somebody that looks like Eric Bischoff, that talks like Eric Bischoff, say this stuff, the people, the common people will look at him. Oh, he's 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 telling the truth. He's very believable. That's the difference. Look at that hair. I mean, WCW never had anybody like Eric Bischoff before. No. And you're seeing it right here, doing mm-hmm. interviews like this. On whether Randy Savage Hogan participate in booking matches, here we go. I spent a lot of time talking to Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Ric Flair, Vader. I talked to a lot of different people because everybody has got something to offer when it comes to the sport and this business. But certainly Hulk Hogan, given his experience, and Randy Savage, given his experience, do I rely on them a lot? You bet I do. Do I trust their judgment? Absolutely, I do. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go, Ric Flair. So, yeah. On whether the Doink or Undertaker would fit in WCW, Undertaker, been there, done that. No, thank you. Doink the Clown, I don't see it. And I guess it's working for them up there, perhaps. I don't think it's something I'm looking out, out looking for now. Well, okay. Yeah, Let's Callaway was point. there for less than a year before Bischoff was ever in the company, too. Yeah, and a totally different gimmick. But, yeah. but, okay, this is June 1995. Doink the Clown has totally run his course at this point in time. Undertaker's at this weird junction of his career at this point in time, where he's he's the Undertaker, but he's not pushed, you know? This is, I mean, he, he, this is please for the love of God, sign McFoley so I have someone to work with and have good matches with Undertaker. I, I mean, this is the era where he's working Bundy, comma, Mabel. He's working Ted DB. I mean, he's basically Jimmy Valiant. <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, he's basically Jimmy Valiant as Paul Jones' army. Undertaker against the Million Dollar Corporation. Yeah? That's exactly what he is. Who he's been feuding with on and off. He's been feuding with on and off for about a year, too. And there's nothing wrong with that, but, I mean, that's his position on the card at the time. Which is a little weird, considering he's probably, especially in Europe, the second most popular wrestler in the company. Well, period, I'd say. Yeah. Even at this point in time, even though you got Diesel and Sean being your top babyfaces and Brett, but Brett and Undertaker are the two big guns. So. Yeah. Oh, there's between his approach and McMahon's. I don't think the approaches are that much different. We weren't really talking about the approach. We were talking about two certain individuals. I think the approach is pretty much the same. The key is to entertain. The key is to keep people coming back every week. The key is to do something that they don't expect. The key is to make them laugh, to make them cry, to shock them, to make them ask, what in the world is going on? Those are all the emotions we try to get out of the people, just like the NBA and NFL does. So in essence, I think we're very similar. But in terms of specific talent, there are certain things they've been doing that I just wouldn't do. And there are things that we're doing that they wouldn't do. And he's right. I mean, WWF was all about gimmicks and stuff like that. And WCW, even even with Hogan and Dungeon of Doom, it's still their undercard is totally different than WF's undercard at this time. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So it's that. I mean that's kind of a different thing, and there and WCW is a it, I don't know I mean ninety five is a, a interesting year 
because WF transitions a lot in 95 and becomes some more of a hard, kind of harder edge as 95 goes on. At times. But, yeah. yeah, as it goes along. But and into 96. But yeah, I mean, it's still different. On whether he would challenge those who said the business is down, I would have to because from our point of view in WCW, things have never really been better. Licensing is getting really exciting for us. It's as strong as it's ever been. In the last 12 months, I think the numbers have gone up almost 70%, between 55 and 70% just since last July. That's when Hogan came in. I talked about our television ratings earlier. That's a very positive thing. We're going to be on TNT International, Europe, Asia, and Latin America coming in the spring. So that marketplace is going to be wide open. From my point of view, the money's great, and the opportunity is exciting, and we're growing. Maybe from our competition's point of view, things are obviously not as bright from their perspective. But for us, we're doing great. We're having a ball. And he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right because WCW is finally making money. And he's about to have a brand new Monday night television show. WCW, no matter what we say about creative issues, is growing as a business. WWF, not so much. Not so much. I mean, you got to remember, at this point in time, WWF is still doing television, you know, in high school gyms high school sometimes. gyms that they pretend are not high school gyms but yes sometimes it's so obvious you can't help you can't help but notice no <laughs> you know some of those gyms i mean i've watched some 95 early like early 95 television recently and it's so obvious that they're in a high school gym so yeah but which I mean, is also weird because this is when they start running major arenas for Raw too, but they go back and forth between like a very curtained off Houston Summit and a high school gym. Yeah, but again, like I said, WCW is growing. WF is not growing. Yeah, and Bischoff points it to Hogan. It's fifty-five to seventy percent since July on licensing. It's a big difference. Yeah, on challenging WF on Monday nights. We're in discussions on that subject. I think there's a very good possibility that WCW is going to have a primetime show late August, early September. <laughs> but I'll go back to what I said earlier. It's not so much about challenging Vince McMahon. If you want to put things in perspective and look at numbers and kind of eliminate the self-indulgent gaga that surrounds all this stuff, I got a show on Saturday morning. They got a show on Saturday morning. We all perform them on a pretty consistent basis. They got a show on Sunday. I got a show on Sunday. And we're neck and neck with them. The numbers reflect that. So am I excited about the opportunity to take a show in prime time? You bet I am. I got every reason to be excited. I think I can deliver a product. I'm sure I'm going to develop a product that's very unique and different from what they're doing right now. It's going to be different from anything our competition's doing, and it's something I think will be exciting for the viewers. It's an alternative. It's a choice. I'm excited about giving viewers and fans that choice. This is why Kevin Sullivan was put in his head booker. Mm-hmm. He just laid it out right here. He's laid it out right here because Sullivan and him, I mean, they um, they talked it out. Sullivan told him, I can get these guys in here that that can be this different type of, uh, you know, product that can give us this, that differentiates itself from WWF. We can, you know, have a better wrestling product. We could have a more dynamic product. That's something Flair wasn't promising or doing. Yes. So this totally, you know, validates everything that I was talking about earlier with Sullivan. He just set, lays it out right here. Yeah. So as far as the ratings uh, stuff he mentioned, I just pulled up the final issue of Matt Watch that we have, 
So to look at the week ending July 3rd, um, so if we compare show to show on the same day, even if they're not all in the same type of time slots, WCW Saturday Night beat, and you know this isn't exact because they're on different networks and their cable ratings, but WCW Saturday Night did a 1.9 to Mania's 1.5. Uh, main event and Action Zone were very close, with Main Event doing a 1.7 to Action Zone's 1.8. Oh, wait, Pro is Saturday morning at this time, right? Uh, Pro was still Saturday morning. Okay, so that was doing a 1.5. Domania's 1.5, so they're neck and neck. And then for comparison, Raw is doing a 3.5. Mm-hmm. And also to show just how much better Raw is doing year over year, they did a 2.4 a year earlier, although I guess it was actually... Would it have been on? Well, no. If it was on the holiday, it would have been preempted. And then, just for comparison, the following week, because Raw did do better, it did a three zero in ninety four. It did a three five in ninety five. Because this is the era where Raw's ratings start getting really big. Like, there's a lot of momentum in the Raw in the Raw ratings before there is elsewhere. You know, they just did the record with uh, Undertaker Jarrett not long before this, where they did a three nine. Yeah, I mean, and you look at. Well, you're talking about, yeah, the big ratings with Undertaker and Jeff Jarrett, who is just a throw throwaway TV match. There's no program there. Yes. And that shows you the Undertaker's power. But yeah, he's he's working his Jimmy Valiant feud. So. Yeah. On how, on how much time Jared, Ted Turner spends at WCW and whether Jane Fonda attends matches, I can't really answer that. I don't deal with Ted on a day-to-day basis. I do know wrestling is one of the things he's very excited about. He's obviously very committed to, which is something I'm very excited about. Obviously, he's really wanting to throw some resources at us, which is very exciting for WCW. It's easy to talk about how we're part of this big turn organization, but really, WCW is a very small part of that, and we don't have the resources that some of our competition has had in the past. We have a lot of tough people who are working really hard to make this thing work and to be competitive. And 1995 is shaping it to be great for us, the best year we've ever had. And 1996 is going to be more than just a little exciting. What foreshadowing there? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting foreshadowing there by Eric Bischoff, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, this is the year where Ted and Jane show up at center stage, right? And in '95 when they're there. Oh, I thought it was '93 or '94. I thought I thought it was '95. Let me see. Because I know that just popped up recently where Johnny B. Bad. Because Heenan's on commentary. 94. It's not, it, February 12th. Okay. 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 So, but yeah. But still, Bischoff's, in, I mean, Bischoff's the boss at that time. So, there's that. But yeah, you, I mean. Would you like to know what matches Ted and Jane witnessed on that day? Sure, why not? Uh, Nasty Boy squashing Matt Shepard and Scott DeMar. Jungle Jim Steele <laughs> squashing Fred Avery. Uh, Lord Steven Regal fought uh, Patriot to a 15-minute time limit draw and TV title match. Terra Rising's debut over Keith Cole. How about that? Yeah. Not quite yet pretty wonderful over Arn Anderson and Eric Watts by DQ when Arn threw Orndorff over the top rope. Uh, Vader squashing Sonny Rogers. Uh, and then Steamboat runs in to, I guess, set up their human cage match. Uh, Steamboat over Fidel Sierra, The Boss over Rip Rogers, 
and WCW International World Heavyweight Champion Rick Rude over Johnny B. Bad. So a fairly loaded show, which, all, I mean, it makes sense. It's a TBS, so you also have to figure in local ratings, so it's February, so it sweeps. Mm-hmm. Which probably also explains why Ted and Jane are there during February. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, uh, makes you wonder how different WCW's uh, um, lifespan would have been if Ted would have still had power like he had, at th- even at this point in time. Oh, yeah. You know? All right, well, Dave... Um, Chimed in on the Coppock thing as well. Eric Bischoff was on the Czech Coppock show on, on June 29th. Coppock was a lot tougher on Bischoff than he's been on any of the previous wrestling guests. Bischoff's pretty much prepared before the broadcast by the company not to say anything bad about WF for Vincent Mann, so as to not come off like my man did a few weeks earlier. He pretty much accomplished his goal. If anyone takes anything seriously that either McMahon or Bischoff say on shows like this, they are totally naive to this business. Bischoff wasn't there to truthfully answer questions. He was there to paint a picture of WCW as the number one company worldwide and a flourishing company, and WF is just some domestic competition. And to act like he wasn't really concerned with WF. Of course, none of that's true. Just a man saying he's not resentful of WCW being owned by Ted Turner isn't true. <laughs> Bishop did make a good point. Copy brought up that apparently WCW stole Heenan, Oakland, Hogan, Savage, and Duck from WF. That were all stars in organizations before McMahon got them in the first place. Hogan in particular, which after all these years is often forgotten. Although my man did make all of them umpteen times bigger. You'll like this one, Bix. Bischoff claimed in syndication that WCW has 198 stations in 94% of the country and did a 6.8 rating the weekend of June 11th, and that WF was on 171 stations in 90% of the country and did a 5.8, trying to add that WCW is already more popular. Those numbers, if they are even correct, are so manipulated as to not really mean anything since the WCW network includes the USWA, which does great ratings in some markets. He also said we got the show on Saturday morning, so today, and our show usually beats theirs. Over the last quarter, the show's ratings were identical. And we got a show Sunday, and they got a show on Sunday, and the numbers are usually about the same, which is a true statement. Bischoff first went and confirmed Monday Night's TV, TNT show. They talked a lot about it, but acted as if Monday Night was just a coincidence with Raw asking why wouldn't we want to try it we were offered a slot prime time. Hmm. Oh, yes. Those USWA numbers, huh? <laughs> yeah, okay, so uh, this also comes up in the next to last Matt Watch we have, the one that is cover dated June 30th. Um, here, so here's how Steve Beverly puts it. With the headline, Bischoff claims Cindy victory. Armed with data, he cited from the Nielsen pocket piece ratings, tabulation, World Championship Wrestling Executive Vice President Eric Bischoff claimed victory in syndication ratings, or, well, it says as a typo, syndicatino ratings <laughs> on uh, the New Sport Network last Thursday. Blah, 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 check topic. Oh, he claimed for the week ending June 11th, WCW sh- shows sort of cumulative gross for all series combined, 6.8 rating to a 5.8 for WWF shows. Bischoff also contended his series... We're on 194 stations compared to 170 for WWF. Titan sources are not commenting, but privately dispute Bischoff's claims. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they are. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's funny. Well, I mean, so we, uh, overall, how do you think Bischoff came up on uh, Chet Copper? A lot better than he would in later years. <laughs> well, he's not involved. he's not involved as a character. No. So there's that, too. Since it hasn't been heavily publicized, the bash at Huntington Beach matches matches will take place in front of the waterfront Hilton 
between lifeguard stand X and Y. According to an article in the Orange County Register, city officials expect 10 to 20,000 people to attend the free show. However, WCW promoter Zane Brezloff claimed in an article that he's expecting up to 50,000 people. About 40,000 people would be at the beach on a typical Sunday afternoon when the weather is good. In a lifeguard match with Ric Flair and Randy Savage, the ring will be encircled by bikini-clad women as the Lumberjacks from the TV show Baywatch, which is incorporating the event into one of their episodes. The downside is that on July 4th, there was a major riot in Huntington Beach, which got a lot of publicity in that area. There were 104 arrests and one murder. Apparently, the July 4th rioting is something of a tradition there because last year there were 150 arrests and had a huge amount of police in town to prevent things from getting out of hand, but to no avail. The riot wasn't at the beach itself, but in the city's main street, mainly consisting of kids throwing bricks and bottles through car windows and lighting small fires. Those wacky kids. Mm-hmm. How about that? So, city officials say 10 to 20. Zane Breslau says 50,000 bigs. 100,000, if you believe the TV claims. <laughs> there are about 9,000, I think, in reality. Yes. <laughs> well, those of you waiting for the re- reformation of the Hollywood Blondes, don't hold your breath. Steve Austin's out at least for another five weeks with a muscle tear in his arm. By that point, if there is a new booker, this is before Sullivan's announcement, an idea was for the old booker, well, actually, it wasn't, but it was the old booker who was planning it. So you know how those things go. I'm not saying it is going to happen. Just don't bet money on it. Well, we know what happens there. Mm-hmm. But it should have been done a lot earlier. Yes. That's Flair dicking around and not doing anything when he should have. Yes. It's 1995. It's WCW. That means we got a Kurt Henning story. And it's from the torch, naturally. So Kurt Henning is that he'd rather work 90 days a year for WCW rather than 300 days a year for WWF. But that he feels he's been treated so professionally in his negotiations with WCW in recent months that he's leaning towards returning to WWF. He was offered a slot as it wanted the new full horseman with Dustin Rose earlier this year by WCW, and then WCW never followed up on it. He still respects the professionalism of Vincent Mann, despite rumors to the contrary, he still has the desire to wrestle full-time again. The new full horseman with Dustin Rhodes, Bix, and Kurt Henning. And Ric Flair and Arn Anderson. Yes. Also, you can tell Wade is still young here because he makes it very obvious that the source for this is Kurt Hanner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Gee, I wonder where this comes from. I mean, not even the Minnesota connection, but he still respects the professionalism of Vince McMahon, and despite rumors to the contrary, <laughs> still has the desire to wrestle full time again. He was offered. Like, all of this is just. it's. It, it it's so obviously framed as a recap of a conversation without saying that it is a recap of a conversation with that. Yeah. Yeah. Good old way. The first string of house shows and what seemed like months of the weekend drew about twenty five hundred in Columbia, South Carolina, in Florence, South Carolina, seventeen hundred in Charleston. Houses for the three shows were in the twenty to twenty six thousand dollar range. Randy Savage beat Ric Flair on top, headlining all the shows. Hmm. So, not strong efforts. No, but uh, that's, arguably better than they had been doing. Yeah, as I look at results here, right, let's go to Columbia on June 29th. We have Johnny B. Bad over Mark Starr, something for Steve Austin. Hmm. Sergeant Craig Pittman over Frankie the Thumper Lancaster. Harlem Heat retained the tag titles over Jim Duggan and Marcus Alexander Bagwell. Okay. DDP over Dave Sullivan. Nasty Boys over the Blue Bloods, Sting over Ming by disqualification, and Savage over Flair. Not the greatest of lineups. 
But Sting's there. Yeah. So. Speaking of not the greatest. The July 1st WCW Saturday Night Show was among the worst ever. <laughs> this is from Dave. They did this. Dave Sullivan Diamond Dolls Date 7 where Dallas Page and Max Muscle jumped on Dave on the street. They spliced in Kung Fu movie sound effects when Page and Max threw their blows, making it even stupid and looked on the surface. To their credit, reports on the road over the weekend where Sullivan and Page matches were pretty good. I wonder who's reporting that. Well, let's go watch this, shall we? As we have a date with a diamond doll. And what a segment this is. Well, here we are. Okay, I'll be right around. Oh. 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 You look real nice. Well, thank you. Can you open the door for me? Okay, I'll open the door. Thank you. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Ralph, now you watch the car. We'll be oh, back in a little bit. It's nice and cool outside. Yeah. We're having fun. Oh, good. All right, pause real quick. Circle that back just a tad. Oh, as far as what movie they just saw? No, just circle it back just a, a few seconds. Okay, so let me go to. All right, right, right. Go a little bit, little bit further, a little bit. All right, you know, you see what that is right there, right? As a, uh, you can't see my hand, but that big structure right there behind Kimberly, mm. on the, over her uh, shoulder there. That's yeah. the Omni. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Omni. I've walked that bridge many fucking times in my life. <laughs> that, that car is going over. So, yes, that is the Omni right there. So, there, there is CNN Center. Okay. This is where all this is going on at. So, because CNN Center is right down the street. All right. So, let's continue. Oh, Dave Sullivan, real quick, is driving a uh, early, maybe late 70s, early 80s Chevrolet. <laughs> let's continue. And they're seeing The Lion King, too, by the way. Which I'm trying to look up when that movie was last in theaters at this point. A little bit. It's nice and cool outside. We're having fun. Oh, good. You know, I just love them little lions. Dave. I've never been to a place like this before. Well, you're really going to enjoy it, Dave. Okay, Chris. Friday was on the bill, too. <laughs> All right, let's see. Would you like to guess when Lion King last charted on Box Office Mojo? It was As, 1993, wasn't it? Well, it was a 94 movie. It came out in June, the last week that it registers on Box Office Mojo. In other words, probably not playing at a movie theater down the block from the Omni was in February. And the movie had first come out a year earlier. I was I thought it was ninety three, but yeah. Alright, so all right. I think it's Let's on see, home video something. by this point, isn't it? Oh, I remember watching it in school. Uh let's see, Friday. Friday would have came out on April twenty sixth. So that makes sense. Yeah, Lion King though has been available on VHS since March. Maybe it was a very special uh presentation of Lion King just for Dave and Kimberly. He had the movie theater uh, break the reel out and had them screen it just for them. He's thinking yeah. outside the box because he's trying to impress Kimberly. Yeah, I'm surprised though we haven't had any references in this skit yet to how he calls the movie King Lion because he's dyslexic. <laughs> Didn't he wrestle Giant Baba? Who? King Lion. Oh, 
uh, Raja Lion. Raja Lion? Yes. Um, they did one of the same. Also with the haircut and now just the huge bald spot and everything. Uh, Evad Sullivan just looks like who he actually is, which is a high school football coach named Bill. <laughs> right? Like, he looks completely yeah. different. And uh, we talk about Giant Baba, or as Bruno would say, Giant, Giant Baba. Baba. Yes. Baba. <laughs> yes. Giant Machine could be Giant Baba. Baba. All right. So let's go to the fancy uh, restaurant. They have the best food here. Really? Mm-hmm. What? They have the most excellent Chateaubriand. Oh, oh. what is that? Well, um, do you know what? Do you like cheeseburgers? Very much, yes. Like well, them. then you'll love this. Oh, good. You know, I can't believe Dallas let us go on this date, but I'm having a lot of fun, aren't you? Yeah, me either. Oops. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. Where, where do they go? Well, the forks go on your left, and the knife goes on your right. Okay. And you can call me Kimberly Base. Well, that's a pretty name. Thank uh, you. What are those? Um, that's the butter. Would you oh. like a piece of bread? Well, oh, please. Hey, hey, where are you going with those? Those are our plates. Are we going to eat? That's all right. We're going to have some soup first. They have oh. the most tremendous fishy soie here. You're going to really like it. I don't like fish. Oh, it's not fishy swat, it's vichy swat. Oh, vichy. <laughs> Doesn't what? it look excellent? Oh, it looks good, yeah. I oh. can't wait to dig in. Wait, you to eat it. Big spoon. Money okay. here for Dave Sullivan. Well, I'm Dave Sullivan, but I don't live here. Man, I hate this job. Would you like to say who that is? <laughs> no, I can't say who that is. Oh, you can't tell? Okay. I'll, I'll keep playing and let's see if you figure out who it is from at least the voice, if not being able to make out his face on this. Here. Um, Dave, would you like me to read that for you? Would you please? Hey, Disco Inferno. Yeah, that's who it is. <laughs> what you right, just talk about him. Um, there you go. Give me that. Roses are red, violets are blue. Diamond Dallas says, enjoy the rabbit stew. Rabbit stew, ra ra Ralph, Ralph, Ralph. Oh, wait, Ralph, Dave, wait, Ralph. Dave. He wouldn't do that. Turn that camera off. Turn it off. Hold on, Dave. Ralph, 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 Ralph. Oh, are you okay? Oh, God. Oh. I told, calm down. I told you it'd be all right. See you in center. Sometimes that Dallas gets me so mad. Just calm down. Calm down. Calm down. Who called the cops right away? And they're right there. Falls, 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 falls. The cop was right fucking there. Oh my god. I mean, Paige, they put the boots to him, and they walk away, and there's the cop just right there, shows up. What the fuck? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, that was horrible. But yeah. you know what, though? You know what saves the whole thing? Dave Sullivan. Because Dave Sullivan does a really good job at playing Dave Sullivan. Yes, he comes off surprisingly earnest. Well, it's... It, it's all in how he it's, it's it's in his timing and the way he the way he he performs the stuff that he's doing. He doesn't overdo it. No, it, it, it's 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 very natural. It's not you know 
it's not what WWE did with Nick Densmore and Eugene, which is the no. same type of character in a way. But this is very natural. He comes across as very genuine. Yes. In what he's doing. Um, let me make sure I'm... Those sound effects, oh my god. That, oh, that's, that was horrible. And how about the restaurant was right there? I mean, just like, night, and you know, just steps away from where the movie theater was at. I know, wonderful. <laughs> um, Standing in the center. Now, uh, let me, uh, I made sure to look it up so I got the quote right. I will read uh, from John McAdams' listing for the WCW TV tape that has the segment, okay? Okay. Dave Sullivan's dream date with Diamond Doll. This skit illustrates how out of touch NWA, I'm presuming he did this for uh, legal reasons, uh, is with its audience. Not only is it poorly conceived, scripted, and edited, but get this. The idea is that Dave is an idiot because he doesn't know what Chateaubriand is. And then all caps. <laughs> Guess what? WCW, he says NWA. The average wrestling fan has no freaking clue what the hell Chateaubriand is either. <laughs> And he closes, because that's the last segment on the tape, with, No more, I'm going to be sick. NWA, quote-unquote, is a disaster of a promotion that will have a decent match here and there, and that's what I try to make tapes of. Yeah, I mean, that's what it was. But that, I mean, that's just, the sound effects. (laughs) Also, Disco does do a very good job with his uh, role here. (laughs) Bunny Graham. Oh my goodness. How about uh, Max Muscle's attire? Wasn't that great, too? Yeah. Um, look, DDP would grow into himself as a performer. Yeah. But he very obviously is getting all this TV time because he lives next door to Bischoff at this point. Uh, yes. But it is what it is. All right. So also on this show, we have the Vader Dungeon of Doom video. Again, only supposed to be two weeks. So let's watch this and uh, we'll see for ourselves. ...have taken us many places. Now there's a question mark about Vader. Let's take a look at this feature. Okralin appears to be at the... is sick, but they are trying to address it with makeup stage of his kidney, kidney disease here. Yes. Because he looks very different and puffy and... Not himself, but he is heavily made up, and his hair and mustache are freshly dyed. Yes. Solomon! My son! I've already given you the Ugandan giant Kabbalah! But there is a force and a presence that we cannot ignore! That has shaken the rare white Bengal tiger that's got him scared and shaking and hiding. Friend of foe, we don't know, but we should get him in closer to you and I. Who is this father? Who is this father? Father. At the beach at Huntington Beach, California. It's made it! 
And of course, Leon's got his singlet on backwards, I guess, so he didn't have to wash it. <laughs> yes, he has got it backwards. Which, I don't think I've ever heard anyone specifically say that's the reason why Vader wore his gear backwards so often. But knowing all the stories about Vader not washing his gear, that's clearly the reason, right? Oh my god, yes. I, I, it has to be. Because has there ever been any wrestler who wore their gear backwards makes no sense. close to as many times as Vader did? No. Vader, who dare speak the name Vader? We do, Vader. What reason have I been brought to this dungeon of doom? <laughs> <laughs> what acting here by, by these gentlemen? What reason have I been brought to this dungeon of doom? And then when he's looking at the camera... Yeah. He's moving his head to look at the camera and then look back at them. Vader, let's see what power you really do possess. The master and myself are sending you on a roadkill tour that will take you all the way to Bash at the Beach, right to the feet of the immortal Hulk Hogan. By the way, it's very obvious that Kevin Sullivan was not happy with his performance here, which is why all of the coverage shots are of Kevin doing his lines in, ex like, in a very uh, orative way. Mm -hmm. All Everything else is just the one wide shot that we have for most of this. Yes. Oh, and take the final step before you rip the right out of the railway bingo tiger! You know, seeing him with the backwards gear just in this kind of segment instead of a match, it looks so ridiculous. It does. He looks 50 pounds heavier than he actually is. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, Take the final step of fear, no man! Go, man! The power of fear, nothing! Ah. <laughs> uh. Now at the bash at the beach, we'll see how great his power is, because he'll have to do it alone. <laughs> huh? <laughs> I don't know. Wait, did he say Hogan's power or Vader's power? Vader's power, I guess. So what's the point if they're not going to... Well, they sent him on the roadkill tour, Bix, so he could get uh, he could get all mean and angry, which that's the best thing to come out of this segment. <laughs> Isn't is it the, the roadkill tour. Is it the second dungeon segment, then, the one where he gets the helmet and the name Big Van Vader back? I think so. Okay. okay. I wonder if those weren't shot together, then, because you would think... I anyway. What, what, ugh, my God. Oof. Wash your gear. The best thing on the entire show, Dave said, was a new Slim Jim commercial where two high schoolers are acting in a play doing Romeo and Juliet, and Randy pops up asking, Art thou bored? <laughs> <laughs> that commercial got played a lot, and it was mm -hmm. funny. I, but it's not on our tape because it doesn't. this file doesn't have commercials on it. All right, uh, so we'll go to the torch for the rest of the show here. Giant Band, Diamond House Page, put their main event TV match against each other. Eric Bischoff and Bobby Heenan introduced the program. Bischoff interrupted Heenan twice during the intro, but didn't really follow up on the pattern. Nasty Boys won a squash. 
The announcers seem to have already run out of interesting things to say early in the match, but late in the match began hyping up the upcoming pay-per-view. Sags dropped a bad-looking top rope elbow to win the match. Oakland interviewed the Nasties about facing the Blue Bloods and Harlem Heat in a three-way tag. A sound by air with Vader standing behind a cage. Dave Sullivan Diamond All Date aired. Oakland hosted the Bass Control Center. Ming, managed by Colonel Parker, defeated Gary Jackson after an awesome pile driver. During the match, Bischoff said he was disgusted by Page's actions. Bobby Heenan broke the story that Page probably got his money from the Diamond Dolls family inheritance. But that vital fact was quickly shoved aside. <laughs> Let me show everybody. Another Taskmaster skit aired when he introduced Vader. Kevin Sullivan already gave away that Vader's turning babyface by saying into the camera at the end of the skit, we'll see how good his power is because he has carried a load. So I guess that's what that was, because it was a foreshadow for Vader's babyface turn. In the TV main event, Johnny Bad fought Domino's Page to a double countout. Bad was, as usual, very good. The highlight was a springboard top rope to a body block at ringside onto Page and Max Muscle. The show ended with Oakland interviewing Randy Savage, who, as usual, had nothing to say that he hadn't said four years ago, although he was as, as intense and energetic as ever. Comments. A show worth saving, so if WCW ever gets really good, you can remember how patronizing, childish, and simply bad it got at one point. From Wade. <laughs> it did a 1.9 rating. Main event did a 1.7, and Pro did a 1.5. So there's your TV ratings for the week. Okay. Chris Cruz replaced Gordon Soley on the morning Pro show. So he's back employed. Yes. So you replaced Fox. Gordon Soley with the NARC. <laughs> Yes. Lots of talk of them bringing Scott Norton in as a heel between New Japan tours. Won't be long, but yes. Munaba Nakanishi's name has been changed from Black Terror. Don't know the new name. Kurosawa. Yes. WCW officials were thrilled with USA Today's article and TV advertisers from last week. Apparently, Titan spent months trying to get the article in to spruce up the image, and then when the story came out, it was half WCW, and he even mentioned Slim Jim joining WCW. They were one of WS major sponsors. And the photo accompanying it was of Hulk Hogan. Well, that backfired right in WS face, didn't it? <laughs> and to close, to close out our WCW section from the torch, John Paul Levesque called Stephen Regal as soon as he found out how similar WF was to casting him as Regal's WCW gimmick and apologized. Levesque has tried to move away from Regal's in-ring mannerisms that he used when he first arrived in the WF. Well, they're friends. Well, to this day. Yes. And, you know, Regal told him to go to WWF because he felt he needed more experience and would be working a lot more in the WWF. So um, I pulled up the USA Today article on ProQuest. It's not long. Um, I know it's not. F well, it's from just before our week, but it's being talked about here. Uh, Madison Avenue, meet The Undertaker. It's one of Adland's most unusual alliances, conservative advertisers and sweaty, grunting, nearly naked men in tights. Mm -hmm. Wrestling doesn't claim endorsement stars Michael Jordan and Shaquille O'Neal, but Hulk Hogan, Bam Bam Bigelow, and The Undertaker still attract major advertisers, Mars, Nestle, and Paramount Pictures. First-time wrestling sponsors this year include MCI and Slim Jim for Turner Broadcasting Systems World Championship Wrestling. Rival World Wrestling Federation claims new advertisers Burger King and National Dairy Council. The appeal? Millions of teen males and young men can be reached via syndicated shows and pay-per-view events that cost less than advertising on mainstream sports and entertainment programs. 
World Championship Wrestling claims it has 9 million viewers a week. Insert wanking motion here. Uh, an audience, one advertiser <laughs> estimates, costs uh, $20,000 per commercial unit. Nintendo, considered a major wrestling sponsor, spends less than $1 million a year. With the World Wrestling Federation, says Nintendo's Don Coiner. This fall, it plans to buy World Championship Wrestling for the first time. Still, its total wrestling expenditure... Whoa, 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 Yeah, that's the ridiculous. They've had Super, the Super Nintendo Tournament. God damn! Well, no, no, not just that, but you watch 1990 WCW or NWA? There's fucking Super Mario commercials every, almost every fucking break. And Mario, isn't there, aren't there Mario, Nintendo... Super, Super Mario 3? Oh my god! Aren't there Nintendo-sponsored replays, too? Yeah, that era, because I I feel like I can remember hearing a lot of uh, Jim Ross saying, "Now you're playing with power." In that era, yeah. What kind of shit is that? Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Um, still, total total wrestling expenditure won't make a dent in the sixty million the video game giant expects to spend on all advertising next year. Roughly twenty five percent of Bayer's ad budget for Stridex acne medication is funneled towards wrestling. Product manager Bill Holston says. In August, Stridex is the title sponsor for the World Wrestling Federation SummerSlam. Advertisers who want cheap eye, excuse me, cheap eyeballs. I almost said cheap oddballs, but that's probably true as well. Uh, have an opportunity <clears throat> to get them with wrestling, says media executive Lou Schultz, president of CE Communications Detroit. If you have a mass product without much selective appeal, you can get a cross section of America. James Rothschild, director of sales for the World Wrestling Federation, says Mars, Wrigley, Burger King, and Nestle each spend more than $1 million in WWF ad buys. Those are big bucks for the wrestling organizations. Wrestling's choreographed, outlandish, quote-unquote, fights make it one of America's hokier entertainment venues that both attracts and repels advertisers. Mark Sullivan, vice president of marketing at Tyco Toys, says wrestling's, quote-unquote, choreographed nature makes it a safe ad buy. Boxing can be over in the first round, and the Super Bowl may be long over by the fourth quarter, he says. Wrestling, says Zenith Media Group supervisor John Matamore, is either gold or a rock to advertisers. For marketers who are attracted by its male, male audience, aged 6 to 34, it's quote-unquote an easy thing to sell. But Paul Kagan Associates analyst Bill Marchetti notes there are plenty of other places, such as ESPN and ESPN2, for skittish marketers to put their ad dollars. Wrestling is two guys in their underwear in a room beating themselves over the head. Shane McMahon, World Wrestling Federation owner, says? <laughs> what? We're not wrestling anymore? We're sports entertainment? Okay, I did not expect that to end there, and I'm shocked that that wasn't mentioned here in the newsletter. Uh, I was well. Also, I was expecting that to be a negative quote from this Bill Marchetti because it just goes straight from that into the shape thing. <laughs> I always knew that uh, Vince had a connection with the Rothschilds. <laughs> oh God! So what a story, huh? I don't know. That well, it's Vince. That antenna lines a hoot. Go it, ahead. Yeah, I was going to say though, if Vince was really in with the Rothschilds, do you think Russo would have done that uh, newsletter cover we talked about on the Patreon show? <laughs> Maybe not. But. Uh, Goddamn, pal, these international bankers are driving me crazy. <laughs> but anyway, WC, everybody. All right, let's go to the land of the rising sun. And we start off with a story about politics in Japan. On the deadline day for announcing candidacy, July the 4th, Nobuhiko Takata surprisingly changed his mind again. 
and agreed to run for the House of Counselors. We don't have any details regarding this as it happened at deadline, but will next week. Antonio is running for re-election, and Hiroshi Hase is running from his home district in the elections that takes place on July 26. There's also a famous pitcher from the Yomiuri Tokyo Giants baseball team running as well, and they believe super, several superstar athletes form their own political party. Anoki has his own sports party, and Hase is running on the liber, liberal Democratic ticket. And they believe Takata joined that party, and they convinced him to run on their ticket. With the election on July 26, it puts into question Takata working the main event on the July 13th and July 22nd UWFI shows, although we don't have word of that as a press time. If he's elected and running on a new party ticket, as opposed to what Hase is doing, probably says Hase and Anoki's odds are much better. And I'm sure it'll be the end of his wrestling career. Well, the real story out of this story is that, uh, yes, Japan, you can have all kinds of political parties. America, why not? Why are we so married to the two pieces of shit that we well, have now? <laughs> that's a bit too, uh, a bit much to get into with the time we have. I know, but I'm saying Japan, Japan can, you know, can have all these different political parties. Yeah. You create your own parties. Good lord. And you can technically do that here, but... Yeah, but people are so married to the concept of having two political parties. Yes. The day when the day when people get over that mindset is probably the day this country gets better. But that's a whole other story. Yeah. Alright. So, that's just some political thoughts. That's all that is. So, alright, let's go to All Japan. Uh, we have two shows here. June 30th for Cork and Hall. Masai Unaway over Monokea Moss Man, Taikea. Renegade Warriors. Mark Chris Youngblood over Kataro Shiga and Ryokaku Izumita. Giant Baba, Russia Kamura, Mitsumamoto over Mighty Inoue, Haruka Egan, and Masafuchi. The Can-Ams, Dan Crawford and Doug Furness over the Wrecking Crew. I love how the, I love how uh, Cage Match and Wrestling Data both have it as Fury and Rage instead of Rage and Fury. But that's right. If, if you're going up a order, which is what I love to do, it is Fury and Rage. Uh, Takao Mori over Shioshikakuchi. Jun Akiyama over Yoshinara Agawa. The Patron and Johnny Ace over Stan Hansen and Johnny Smith. And then the main event, Mitsuha Masawa, Kitakabashi, and Satoru Saka over Toshia Kawada, Akira Tawe, and Timon Honda in 24 minutes. And on the show, Shiga suffered a neck injury and will be out of action for a while. So basically the beginning of a story that lasts a decade. Yeah, pretty much. Osaka Professional Gym number two, they ran on July 5th in front of 2015. We have the Wrecking Crew over Masao Inoue and Mani Inoue. Russia Kimura and Mitsuomoto over Ryukaku Zamita and Ruka Aiken. Yoshinara Gawa over Takao Mori. Junakiyama went to a draw, well, a no contest, whatever, with Yoshikakuchi. There was no winner. Patreon Johnny Ace of the Renegade Warriors. Prophet Furnace and Johnny Smith. So that's kind of like, I guess, the Commonwealth Express. Well, with America mixed in. Over Stan Hansen, Giant Baba, and Satoru Saka. So the and Commonwealth Am Am Express. Yes. And then Toshio Kawada, or excuse me, maybe this is the All-Atlantic Express. No, it's the Com-Am Express. <laughs> Toshio Kawada, Kiritawa, and Masafuchi over Mitsuo Masawa, Ketukabashi, and Timon Honda at 33-29. So we have Timon Honda on both sides on back-to-back shows. Well, not back-to-back, but still, same tour. He could, he, 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 he was fluid. He could, he could fit in with any, uh, any faction. Okay. 
you know, it didn't matter. He fit in with everybody. But, uh, yeah, so interesting looking lineups there. And Baba in the semi main event on the Osaka show, where uh, he would. He would do that on, on the soccer shows later in his career. He would work higher on the card there. Yep. So there's that. All right. New Japan Pro Wrestling. One of the biggest news of the week was out on July 2nd. Kazuo Yamazaki of UWFI sent out faxes to the newspapers and magazines that he was leaving UWFI and joining New Japan. Yamazaki, 32, started his career with New Japan as a protege of Satoru Sayama in 1982. He was one of the young wrestlers who jumped to the UWF when that group was formed in 1984 and returned to New Japan in 1986. In 1988, a few months after the famous Akira Maeda shoot kick accident, Yamazaki tried the same thing to Kunio Kobayashi, although it was face-on and resulted in more of a stalemate than breaking any bones. But that moves to the public that the UWF was going to reform, and Yamazaki went back in 1988. Yeah, that, that <laughs> Maeda was not the only one that did that shit. Yamazaki did it too. Which is a little weird because it's not like he has a rep for that like my Ada does. Well, he was impressionable. Uh, and when then the next split came was number two man in UWFI behind Takata. Over the past year, Yamazaki's star has really dimmed as he was overshadowed by younger wrestlers Kiyoshi Tamura and Masito Kokihara. And while at one point he was almost considered in the same breath as Takata, in the UWF he occasionally would beat Takata and the two were on the same level. It was Takata who made it as a superstar, and Yamazaki was just another wrestler. Since Takata versus Yamazaki was scheduled to headline UWFI's July 22nd show in Hakata, UWFI claimed that Yamazaki still in a contract to the group within the year. New Japan claimed they would not only accept Yamazaki back, but also Takata, who had given no public indica- indication he was going, but, by, but the statement by New Japan made it look as if UWFI is falling apart. In addition, since over the weekend on WCW telecast, Vader was referred to once again as Big Van Vader. This was in the Observer for the Saturday night that aired the week after our week. Um, it appears he's leaving UWFI for New Japan. There was a court case sometime back when it was ruled that New Japan had the rights to the Hecker gimmick and the name Big Van Vader because they had come up with the character. Some of the Titans claimed the Doink the Clown lawsuit. More on that later. After Leon White signed with the rival of UWFI. Since Vader is a character named from the Star Wars movie, New Japan couldn't trademark it, so Leon White was allowed to continue as Vader in the United States and was called Super Vader in UWFI, but sans headgear and Big Van. Vader also used his headgear in one of the video segments over the weekend, which is what we talked about on the Dungeon of Doom deal. Yamazaki going to New Japan revitalized his career, and, uh, and he became one of the top heavyweights in the promotion after coming back in. Had a tremendous run. And as we've talked about before, I think he was a better New Japan-style wrestler than he was a shoot-style wrestler. Yes. But Dave's not lying. I mean, in the late 80s, and in the UWFI 2, Yamazaki and Takata... Yeah, yeah, UWF 2. Yamazaki and Takata were almost equal, in a way. Takata still was a higher guy on the pole, but they weren't far off. And of course, Takata's going to be the one guy in UWFI. He's the fucking owner. It's his promotion. Yeah. So, I mean, Yamazaki saw the running on the wall. He saw UWFI was not going to survive. So he's a smart man and got got out of it. Yes. You know, thoughts on this before we move on? Um, no, not really. Let's move on. And Vader doesn't go back to New Japan because he's not long for WCW. So there's that. Well, he, he does right. the one shot in January, but that's it. Yeah, that's it. 
he doesn't become a regular again. All right, TV. Hachinoe City Gym on June 30th in front of 3,000 fans. We have Black Cat and Tokubichi Isazawa, Kashin, over Tatsuichi Takiiwa and Yuji Nagata. Brian Pillman, who's on tour in Japan this time, and Grant Hamada over El Samurai and Koji Katamoto. And all four of those guys are in... Best of Super Juniors matches we have here. Dean Malenko over Alex Wright. Norio over Wild Pegasus. And Shinjiro Otani over Black Tiger Eddie Guerrero. Then we had the Hellraisers, Hot Warrior and Power Warrior over Junji Harada and Tadao Yasuda. Then Rika Scott Steiner over Shinya Shimoto and Takashi Azuka. In our main event, Akira Nagami, Keiji Muto, Masaido over Hiro Saito, Hiroshi Tenzan, and Masahiro Chono. Yes, Murder Inc. Alex Wright has to be the tallest wrestler ever to be in a Super Juniors tournament, right? Yes, but G- I mean, you look at this card here. You take away that, that six match. I mean, this is a hell of a fucking crew. Mm-hmm. Great talent on this show. So. And it is the top promotion in the world at the time. So, Pretty much, yes. There was a newspaper article in the past week saying Tetsumi Fujinami wants to return in October, but it's one of those deals where nobody cares about Fujinami anymore. He's basically been paid to stay at home the past few months, since so the company's trying to push the younger wrestlers and keep the older guys out of the way. I mean, he comes back... And he's not a like a full time type wrestler in a way, but he comes back. He becomes Choshu, you know what Choshu does. Yeah, the veteran. Yes. But what a novel concept, huh? Let's push the younger guys and have the older guys just lay back. Amazing. Mm-hmm. War on June 29th in Uzumo, Japan, had a rare match with a middleweight title match on top as Ultimo Dragon kept his NWA middleweight title, pinning international junior champion Lionheart Chris Jericho, who also worked as Lion Doe. After the win, Dragon challenged Lionheart for his belt, and he should challenge the Hayabusa as well. Well, in front of 2,200 fans, we have Hiroshi Takura over Tamara, no first name, Nobukazu Rai over Hector Garza, Hector Gaza, the Eliminators, Perry Stanner and John Cronus, over Yuji Ashiroka and Osamu Tachiakari, Vix. Yes. Oh, it's going to get better as we go along. Koki Kitahara over Nobutaka Araya. Tanukunichiro and Arashi over Haisei Guns Akatoshi Saido and Tatsutoshi Goto. Hiromichi Fuyuki and Gato over Haisei Guns Shiroko Shinaka and Michi And Ultimo over Jericho in the main event. But we go to July 2nd in Daigo Grand Domi Kyoto from our 2800 fans, where we have Hiroshi Itakura over Tamara. Nobukazu Araya over Nobutaka Araya in 30 minutes. Okay. Michiyoshi Ohara over Osamu Tachikari. Lionheart, Chris Jericho over Hetagarza. The Eliminators of Ultimo Dragon and Yuji Ashiroka. And then we have this match. Mil Mascaris and Bob Backlund over Gato and Hiro- Hiromichi Fuyuki. Sure. <laughs> and then we have Tenugurichiro, Arashi, and Kokinahara over High Station Guns. Shoko Shinaka, Testo Shigoto, and Nakato Saida. And uh, I guess the most notable thing, though, here is uh, I believe the uh, Jericho Ultimo match is the match that was long ago dubbed at the Death Valley Driver board the Tiny Pants match. <laughs> because Ultimo is wa- wearing trunks instead of his regular gear. If only Stephanie McMahon was watching at the time, huh? Oh, if she would have known about Ultimo Hadi years earlier. <laughs> yes, in his tiny pants. 
She would have made him wear tiny pants in uh, WWE. Uh, let me see. Because I looked up Ultimo Dragon Jericho 1995 to see what videos come up. Um, well, well, okay, wait, here's the right one, right? Because it's July 7th. Hold on, let me mute the video. I know you can't hear it. Okay, yes, this is the Tiny Pants match. Hmm. It is on Daily Motion. He's wearing a different mask, too, that doesn't have the shoulder accoutrements. I always wondered why he Wait, did this we... for this one match ever and then never again. I guess it was an experiment, Bix. I guess so. Yeah, and he's wearing Mexican flag colors, I guess, because he's defending his one of his Mexican titles in Japan, so... There you go. Also a favorite match of Tony Khan, if I remember right. Well, there you go. IWA Japan ran on July 5th at Corken Hall in front of 2,200 fans with the debut of Masakurisu. They lost to Katniss Jack. Main event was a barbed wire board match where Shoji Nakamaki, Lama Manumi, Keisuke Yamada, and Hiroshi Ono, Deadly Fred, beat Dennis Power Goto, Tarzan Goto's brother-in-law, younger brother, former pro wrestler, the spine of Montegas, who is Goto's wife. It's this, this is Dennis Knight. And Tarzan Goto and Mr. Ganesake. Dennis saw Katniss Jack doing running with a barbed wire wrapped around his body, and he splashed Goto three times. This set up a July 11th match at Osaka, where Katniss Jack would team up with Bob Barragale, a bodybuilder from Mexico, versus Tarzan Goto and Ganesake, where all four men entered the ring with barbed wire around their head, elbow, fist, and knees. Isn't Bob Barragale Dutch? That's what I thought. Anyway, let's go over the results of this show, shall we? Yuji Sugawara over Keizo Matsuda in your opener. Kyoko Ichiki over Tomo Araya. Then we have Leon and Bob Barragale going to a 30-minute draw by Yoshiro Tajiri and Takashi Okano. Sure. <laughs> Takashi Okano, of course, will become the winger. Then we have Tarzan Goto, Mr. Gunasuke over Kendo, Nagasaki, Nitro, Yaguchi, Katsu over Karisu, and then the main event, the Bar Bar Boards death match. Dennis Power Goto. Wait, so is he really Dennis related Power to, to Despina Montagas? Um, no. So was that the gimmick, though, that he is her younger brother? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, of course, also... On that tour, on July 14th, we did get a singles match where Dennis Power Goto defeated Bob Barragale in 8 minutes and 56 seconds. Well, there you go. So yes, the future naked Midian once wrestled Bob Barragale. <laughs> I just want to see Bob Barragale in that July 11th match with a barber all over his body. Can you imagine the, the My Wrestling Obsession on that? Oh my god. Do you think that was a thing for Victor? <laughs> it's possible. Alright, uh, Sayama is training a protege to become the, the fourth Tiger Mask. First three were Sayama, Mitsura Masawa, and Koji Kanemoto. He'll make his pro debut July 15th at Corken Hall against Grey Sasuke. It's way too much pressure to put on someone in his debut match to give him the Tiger Mask gimmick. Which is probably why he started as an indie wrestler. Yes, but it's still the same guy. Yes. Tiger Mask 4. Although, so what? when did he officially stop being called Tiger Mask 4? Or was he ever Tiger Mask 4 and they were always each called Tiger Mask? Um, he was always, he would always be like Tiger Mask, but everybody would call him Tiger Mask 4, to, right. especially over here. Yes. To differentiate. Yes. Because Masao was never called Tiger Mask 2. 
So, uh, second generation or whatever tiger mask was just a thing used That's in magazines to differentiate. Fourth, ge- fourth generation, yes. But was that more of a magazine thing anyway? Yes. All right, anyway. Let's go to Zenjo. All Japan women on uh, July 4th at Haramachi City Gym in front of four Channel fans. Mina Taniyama over Yumi Fujimoto of X, the future Tanny Mouse. Oh. Nobue Endo over Yukoshina. Oh, Masai Watanabe and Yoko Takahashi over Yoshiko Tamura and Yumi Fukawa. Well, at least there's one good wrestler in that match. The future Masai Genki. No, it's Reggie not a good Bennett. wrestler, though. Yumi Fukawa is. Yeah, well, no, no, no that's a good wrestler. Uh, Re- Reggie Bennett, let off some steam, Bennett, over Mima Shimoda. Etsuko Mina and Yumiko Hota over Aja Kong and Rie Tamada. And the handicap, and the tri- handicap mentioned a trios tournament finals because of an injury. Kyoko went away. Takako Inoue and Tomoko Watanabe defeated Manami Toyota and Kara Ito. Their partner, Mariko Yoshida, was injured. So for once, Mariko Yoshida gets a push, and she gets hurt before the tournament final. Yes. Oh, well. And to make this international complete, Eurasia. let's go to Europe. Eurasia. After Vance's CWA in Graz, Austria. On July 4th, we have Franz Schumann over Cannonball Grizzly. Yo, baby, yo, baby, yo, by count out. Fit Finley went to a time limit draw with Rambo, Luke Poirier. August Smeichel defeated Big Titan Rick Bogner by disqualification. Jojo Lee and Victor Kruger over Drew McDonald and Rod Price. Yes, so that would be Satoshi Kojima and Victor Kruger over Bindun McDonald and Rugged Rod Price of the California Connection. Got one stud Rod Price, yes. Yes. And then our main event, a chain match, Tony St. Clair over Dan Collins. Was this chain match a KO catch match? (laughs) It's possible. But pretty decent looking CWA card there. Yeah, a lot of usual suspects. Yes, yes, and and Kojima on his excursion. Mm-hmm. Which, who would have expected him, of all people, to be the wrestler that was used to rebuild the Noah-New Japan relationship? You never know these days, do you? I mean, he's still good, but, you know, he gave, I thought, a pretty damn strong performance at All Out last year. I've always been a fan of Kojima. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, he probably means more in other promotions now than he than he does in New Japan. Yes. So it makes sense if you're, you know, they're overstuffed anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. So that's it for, for international. Eurasia. We have more international coming up after the break. Yes. Well, after this segment. Oh, Sorry. Well, yes, we have more international as we go to Mexico and start with Triple R. We had an interesting week. We don't have much in the way of details of the final Triple Mania show on June 30th in Ciudad Madero. This is back when they had multiple Triple Mania shows. The main event was a big surprise. Super Colo beat winners in a Mascara Contra Mascara match, which is a total technical match of tag team partners for 16,300 fans, about 700 shy capacity. Originally, Winners was scheduled to beat Kolo in his final match of the three-show match storyline and come out of it with a major push. But it was changed 
because the company felt Winters' personal problems were getting in the way of his wrestling, and Kolo was more deserving of the push. Both men shook hands and hugged at the match, and Winters voluntarily unmasked and handed it to Kolo. Heard it was a very good match, but not great. The semifinal was a 10-man elimination match, where Cien Caras, Mascano dos Mil, Universo dos Mil, Fishman, and Jerry Estrada, beat Conan, Pedro Aguayo, La Parca, Mascara Sagrada, and Latin Lover. At some point, they're near to finish the match. Mascara and Yudos Mil brought in the bottle as Cien Caras had the abdominal stretch on Conan. Pedro got the bottle away and went to see him with it, but he moved and Pedro wound up hitting Conan with the bottle. The Rudos wound up winning the match when Cien Caras and Estrada were left with Pedro, and Pedro was pinned at the end. To argue after the match with didn't fight, put some doubt in the fans' eyes about Conan and Pedro finding each other for the triangular match on July 4th in Monterrey, along with the Caballero, Coach Caballero match in Los Angeles. And Helisteca, who suffered the career-ending injury last fall, only to work under a different mask as Chato de Jalisco. <laughs> Funny how that worked, isn't it? Returned under his original guise at the Germania Madero and scored the follower Pentagon on his return. With Azteca under his original name, the Focoloricos trio is history. Mariachi's quit the promotion and probably go to CMLL and wrestle as Solar, his original gimmick. And there have been rumors of Subunyeko going to CMLL as well, which, if true, probably means the trio's titles changed this week. And no mention right. of Mexicano for some reason, who I think stays as Mexicano, right? Yes. He never goes back right, to being a Halcon 78, I don't think. No. Full results of the show. We'll talk about this. Los Power Raiders, one, two, three, four, and five. Be El Duende, Io de Despetro, Halloween, Carisomomia. In Manicoriano. Well, that's quite the fucking match. <laughs> we got all five Power Raiders here, Vix, on this Ye- show. Yes, and be, they're numbered here. They're not uh, Power Raiders. Rojo, Amarillo, Azul, etc. Venom is number one. Mm-hmm. Luxor's number two. Discovery, number three. Frisbee, number four. And Sky Day is number five. And so, Sky, Sky and Day either, is the only one I remember which color they were. Sky Day was a Power Raider Blanca. Yes, and Io de Spectro is uh, the guy that would become Silver Cat in Los Patos Locos. Mm-hmm. Then we have Mascarilla Sagrada, Otegoncito, and Super Muñequito over Expertrito, Fresita Carrera, and Jerito Estrada, who would become the future mini Psychosis. Ogler de Acero, Angel Azteca, and Super Muñeco will beat Heavy Metal, Pentagon. This is, of course, the, the first Pentagon. Yes. And Picudo. Io de Santo, Otagon, and Rey Mysterio Jr. defeated Blupanta, Fosgarera, and Psychosis by disqualification. And then we have the uh, the 10-man deal. And then Super Calo over Winners to take his mask. Winners, uh, of course, unmasked as Andres Alejandro Palamique Gonzalez. And he would become Abismo Negro in January 1997. He worked on Mask as Winners. He did another gimmick, El Wes, and then became Abismo Negro in January 97 and it revitalized his career. Yes. And became a much and became a bigger star. Yes. But unfortunately continued to have his personal issues. Yes. Sadly. And because it's AAA, right. yeah. when he would have his issues, there were times, I believe, where Black Abyss, his 
counterpart enemy a la, you know, all of the evil, you know, Pentagon, all the other AAA counterparts, I believe sometimes would re- wrestle his dates as Abismo Negro. Yeah. Monterey on July 4th saw Lupanto, Psicosis, and Fuzzle Guerrero win those Mexican national trios titles from Octagon, Remisterio Jr., and Super Muñeco. The title changed larger response to a lot of the talk of Muñeco, following El Mariachi, and possibly jumping the CMLL. Despite the trios title match, the same triangular match was sold out Rio Nilo Coliseum with Conan, Pedro Aguayo, and Cien Caras, which Cien also won, uh, this time for the Monterey Cup, Copa Monterey. This show only drew 2,500 fans in the 6th Seat Arena Coliseo, which some are attributing to July 4th being not a good day in Mexico for wrestling, which that's odd, because that's not a holiday there. CMLL ran head-to-head drawing about 450 fans that night. Well, that's not good either. Are right, the results of this show? Aguilar de Acero, Supercolo, and winners. Hey, they're teaming up. Over Rocco Valente, Tony Arce, and Volcano, Los Destructores. Antifaz, Latin Lover, Pantera de Ring, and Vaquero Romo defeated Eddie Metal, Ubuntu Guerrero, Calafagari Jr., and Picudo. And then the trio's title change, and then CM went in the triangle match. Now, the day earlier, they had a uh, show in Nuevo Laredo, where they went head-to-head with CMLO in that market, too. Triple-A show was headlined by Yo De Santo and Octagon against Fuzzle Guerrero and Pentagon in a cage match. Latin Lover and Paterita de Ring defending the Mexican National Tag Titles against Blue Panther Heavy Metal. It drew 9,000 fans, while CMLO that same day, using Kinect and others, sold out a 2,000-seat arena. All right, the results of this show. La Serenita, La Rosa, and Reina Gallegos defeated La Briosa, La Nancy, and Neftali. Anti, Anti, Anti Faz and Vaquero Romo over Calafigari Jr. and Picudo. Aguila de Acero, Remistio Jr. and Supercolo. Team with winners to be Arandu, El Sanguinario, Juventud Guerrera, and Psicosis. Latin Love and Patrita Ring retain the Mexican national tag titles over Pupanto and Heavy Metal. And the Ilde Santo and Octagon over Fuzzle Guerrera and Pentagon in the cage match. And Patrita de Ring would be the future Efesto, or as you also know him as Safari. Yes. Any thoughts on these cards, Bix, before we move on to uh, other business that you're playing? That's the. That last one, that TV taping that you just read, does look pretty tasty on paper, especially those last few matches. Yeah, good variety, but a lot of really good workers, too. Yeah, it's summer '95. Santos gonna be leaving soon, mm-hmm. which is which is one of the big beginning blows of AAA going under, going down. So yeah, you know, we're in the we're in the final stages of this era, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right. AAA's first commercials for the return to Los Angeles Force Arena on July 15th aired on local Channel 22, announcing only only announcing the main event, the triangular hair match in a cage with the three biggest names of the promotion, Conan, Pedro Guayon, Cien Caras, and announced that Io de Santo, Octagon, and the Minis will also appear on the show. This show will be the first AAA show they have done in the United States. Well, it's on its own in the United States, excuse me. Previously, AAA worked either with Ron Scholar, the Marquez Brothers of San Jose, Sandy Bar in Washington, or local promoters in Las Vegas when they ran their big money events in Los Angeles, San Jose, Chicago, New York, and a few less successful events in Vegas and Washington towns. The main event with the hair, the three biggest stars in the company at stake is the second biggest match in AAA history, following only the Conan Cien Cotter's retirement match on April 3rd, 1992. Given those two factors, we mean the kind of promotion, this show should sell out. Keep in mind that statement with any kind of decent promotion. 
in case it doesn't, since we're two weeks out, aside from one or two TV spots there on July the 2nd, there has been no local promotion. Now, with the Sports Radio box office, on July 3rd, a car was plastered with the hair match. A 10-man tag with Altagon, Santo, La Parca, Mascara Sagrado, Supercolo against Lupanther, Mascarano de Smil, Universal de Smil, Pentagon and Fazagarera, Los Payasos against Los Fianos, Io de Paraguay against Umitu Guerrera, and the opener with Mascarilla Sagrada, Altacancito, Supermuniquito against the Mini Espiritritos and Jarrito Estrada. This lineup may be changed. Because, of course, we've got or Antonio Pena made a final agreement with Ron Scholar, who's not involved in promoting the show, that in exchange for Scholar allowing Triple A to use the giant cage he built, the one used when worlds collide and the one where Mascarita jumped off onto Jake Roberts, that Pena would have Eddie Guerrero win one of the IWC titles, either the middleweight belt owned by Fuzz Guerrero or the heavyweight belt owned by Mascarano de Smil. Eddie no longer works for AAA due to the Mexican economic collapse, making it difficult to bring foreigners into Mexico, although word Dave's getting is that may be changing. Scholar wants to feature Eddie as one of his main stars when he promotes CMLL shows later this year. As the two sides signed a contract, pulled a multi-year deal last week, and word is AAA will never do business with him again. Either match will be weird because in both cases they would match up Rudos against one another. In the case of Oscar Arnold's Mill, ever since breaking the bottle over Pedro's head, and doing the bottle gimmick, he's been, along with Pentagon, the most overheard on the promotion. However, in the past, when Eddie and Arbar wrestled the Dinamita brothers, the Dinamitas, since even though they were rudos, were Mexican rudos, which makes them technicos against foreigners, were heavily cheered. And you may wonder why they haven't run the United States. Since worlds, when worlds collide, they've had a lot of internal squabbling to disorganization in AAA. Uh, there was a big article the week after about uh, Ron Scholar not doing business with him. And uh, blah, 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 blah. The show happens on the 15th, and they draw 8,500 fans announced at Sports Radio. Yep. And all, the, and all these matches that I named took place in complete form. That's surprising. So... What yep. can you even say about uh, the disorganization of AAA, though, especially in this era? It's just a lot going on. That 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 peso collapsing is a huge deal because Peña depended a lot on bringing in outside names to help out to help you know with his natives. But I mean, Los Gringos Locos was such a huge deal for him. So yeah, but anyway. Antonio Pena has implemented a booking committee consisting of himself, Conan, and Mascara Sagrada, while Blue Panther will run the dressing room. Mysterioso has also been added to the office staff. Sagrada has been given the title of Head of Programming to try and get the wrestlers booked on as many outside dates as possible. Conan's in charge of all their international bookings. Dave gives a phone number for Conan to contact him. And they're looking for American women wrestlers to elevate the talent level in that division, which is sorely lacking. So Conan and Mascara Sagrada has joined Antonio Pena as a uh, bookers in a promotion, huh? Hmm. That'll end well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it will. Those two especially, being the ones with Pena, is very funny in hindsight, isn't it? Yes, it is. All right, CMLL. Well, I mean, we should see. say, though, real quick, I mean, because you would think Pena would think these would be two of the guys who would be most loyal to him. Because they're both yeah. guys who he helped make stars as the booker in CMLL. And yeah. Sagrati came up with the gimmick. So yeah, I'm sure it was a good idea at the time. Yeah. But again, we all know how that worked out. So, 
All right, don't have much in the way of news from CMLL's biggest show, the year in Mexico on June 30th. Other than Miguel Perez Jr. and Foreign Exchange, Jose Estrada Jr., along with Obarico, Ricky Santana, won the main event of a Rio de Jalisco Jr. and Lantis and Canet before 10,000 fans, which they believe was a legit total of the largest show of the year. The Headhunters won the similar tag titles from Silver King and Tejano in the semi-main event. Well, it was 8,500 fans was the real number, or close to the real number. And we have Kato Kung Lee and Kato Kung Lee Jr. over Kung Fu and Kung Fu Jr. Well, excuse me, they, there's no result here, but they wrestled. Uh, Dos Caras, El Dandy, and Super Astro against Black Power, Leatherface, and Pirata Morgan. Astro de Oro, Takashi Akano, and Yoshiro Tajiri over, against Dr. Wagner Jr., Emilio Chavez Jr., and Perov. And then the tag title change, and then the main event. Now, Tejano defended the uh, title, uh, UWA middleweight title, against Takashi Akano on July 2nd in Arena Coliseo. Which drew 4,500 fans, which is way up from normal crowds. They've been below 1,000 at that arena. Which, let me look at this. So, Kano worked July 2nd in Mexico, him at the Jiri, and they worked IWA Japan on uh, July 5th. Okay. So, because I was thinking, man, that IWA Japan show was on July 3rd. I've been some hell to damn make that happen. But July 5th, so it made it happen. All right, July 2nd, Real Call San Francisco, 4,500 fans. We have Arita, the future Miki Segura, Suicida, and Ultimo Dragacito against Damiancito Aguerrera, the future Virus, and Ocho Tambita. Astro de Oro, Pantero, and Super Astro against Bestia Savaje Felino and Mugger. Which is interesting because we have some of these guys listed in this next match. Los Ambora, Pantero, and Super Astro against Acarjando Nomete, Bestia Savaje, and Mugger. So one of these matches isn't jive. Dr. Wagner Jr., Milo Chavez Jr., paired off against El Perico, Foreign Exchange, and Leatherface. Foreign Exchange picks, of course, being. I'm trying to remember. Come on, Bex. Come oh, on. Wait, 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 wait. Didn't. Well, we just said who it was Jose Estrada Jr. Jose Estrada Jr., that's right. Yeah. See if you're on your toes. I, th- I, I, I thought. I was thinking for a second, wait, it must have been someone else you just named, otherwise, you wouldn't be asking me. No, it's if you're on your toes, trying to keep make sure you're, you're paying attention. Yeah. Connect Silver King and Tajiri uh, against the Headhunters and Megapodos Jr. And Tejano defending UWM in the way title over Takashi Akano. Hmm. Okay. Here's CMLO relying a lot on people outside of Mexico on their shows. Yes. Same exchange things rate, too. <laughs> yeah, things will get better for them, though. Yep. So they're... All right, well, let's talk about this. John Arezzi, who uh, everybody knows from Patreon, shows that we've done, other things. Of course, John Arezzi making his return to social media in recent years. He ran a tour of Venezuela, but it ended up being one show on July 2nd in Caracas, which actually drew about 1,400 fans. We reported 600 last week in The Observer. There are all kinds of problems. Since Angelo Savoldi booked the same arena for six shows between July 22nd and July 24th, Two shows a day, and he got Jim Neidhart, Rip Martell, Steve Kern, and Brutus Beefcake, all of whom had originally committed to John Arezzi to go on their tour. It pushed that the Arezzi show had second-rate wrestlers. Dave believes at least some of the aforementioned names actually signed a contract with Arezzi and also signed a contract for Venezuela with Savoldi, so the government intervened and would only allow them to work the Savoldi tour. How about that? The entire tour nearly fell apart on the last day, but they wound up holding one show. On the upside, reports on the Conan, Ray Bashir Jr. versus Sakosa and Sabu match, 
was better than four stars with Ray really still in the show. And there is a joined in progress version of that on John's Patreon, I believe. And what a hell of a fucking match that that sounds like, huh? Yes. Reports, though. Who are these reports from in Venezuela? John Anthony, John <laughs> Alexander, Charles Ashenoff, and Carlos Espada? <laughs> uh, was Oscar Gutierrez one of them, too? <laughs> no one knows his been. real name yet. May have been. And <laughs> there is I got the results, by the way. Oh, you do? Okay. Where do you get find yeah, so that? Let me go over the- it was in the Observer, but I just forgot to put them in the notes. Okay. All right, so we had the Volcano Kid, James Iono, teamed up with Tonga Kid, Sam Fatu, to beat Los Payasos Americanos, Matt Bourne, and Brett Sawyer. Oh, my God. So that means Brett Sawyer did a clown gimmick with Matt Bourne doing doink gimmick. Then yes. we had the Warlord, the Warlord and Hercules beating Sumo Death, Emery Hall, and Thomas Cook. Who? Sunny Beach beat Nikolai Volkov by disqualification. But Herb Abrams have something to do with this show? And well, Conan no, and it's because he's local to New York. I he's know. a long island guy. But then Conan and Ray beat Sebu Sikosis. That's your show. And there's video out there of the Savaldi stuff from a few weeks later, too, because he would air that on some of the Slams and Jam stuff later on. So, Good lord. Yeah, not, not not a good showing here for International Wrestling All-Stars. Not at all. No. And uh, for good measure, he's going to get one of his belts stolen by AAA, too. So. Not not a great adventure here for John Arezzi, <laughs> but what can you do? Well, I know what we can do. We can go to break. And it's halftime. So some great 1995 commercials. We'll hit the halftime. We'll, we'll again talk about our Patreon. We'll uh, plug some other things, and then we'll come back, and we have a lot of extreme championship wrestling to talk about. They had a big weekend. The internet convention took place, the first one, in Philadelphia, East W Arena, Hardcore Heaven 95. They have a show in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. We'll talk about that. And uh, we'll get into the saga of Bubba Rogers in Tennessee, which we got some information about this that we're going to add to the show from Bo James. What a story this is. All that and more after the break. We'll be right back with Grown for Stallone on USA. Free dent chewers? Here's what you've been asking for. A softer chewing free dent? Much, much softer. Longer lasting flavor? Much, much longer. Introducing new, better than ever, nonstick free dent. This is softer. Lots easier to chew. And softer's only half the story. The flavor, it just keeps going and going. It really lasts. Yeah. Softer chewing, longer lasting Free Dent. Now this, this is great gum. Try new nonstick Free Dent. It's better than ever. So you can't keep up with your old ma, huh? Not with this headache. Where's your Tylenol? Oh, it's Advil now. Mom, you never used anything but Tylenol. Well, times change. There you go. These days, it's Advil I trust. A lot of people do. And you know, two Advil work better on tough headaches than any two extra strength Tylenol. Welcome to the 90s, Mom. What? Thank you. For safe and effective pain relief, Advil, nothing is proven to work better or last longer. You have anything good in here? 
Those are the ones with the little candies, right? Uh-uh. Are they any good? Try some. Kids like kicks even if it isn't sweet like candy. And moms like kicks because it's low in sugar. <laughs> mm, these are really good. Yeah, but they're easier to eat at home. Kicks, kid tested, mother approved. Aw, oh, summer. Kind of makes you want to eat outside, doesn't it? But with Long John Silver's new Big Fish Beast, it's no picnic. It's a party! It's our famous fish and more multiplied to feed four. Legendary batter-dipped fish, fries, coleslaw, hush puppies, plus golden corn. Perfect for a tasteful family outing or an outrageous eating adventure. And it's an outstanding deal for less than three bucks a meal. Now at Long John Silver's. And hurry in for our value meals starting at a buck ninety-nine. You are watching Grown for Stallone on USA. Amidst the bustle and confusion, our means to shop for product and information has undergone a dramatic change. TV Mart, Channel 23. Tune in. Pet Report is on Channel 23 nightly. In July, on Viacom Pay-Per-View, he endeared the hearts of millions, swept the Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor, and left us laughing and crying at the same time. Order the movie of the decade. Tom Hanks is Forrest Gump. And Tommy Lee Jones, and winner of this year's Best Actress Award, Jessica Lange, star in a movie that will restore your faith in love. Order Blue Sky. The Academy Award winners are on Viacom pay-per-view in July. We now return to Rambo First Blood Part 2 on Grown for Stallone on USA. All right, we're back. I hope you enjoyed all those great 1995 commercials as we pivot to the halftime segment of the show. We're, we'll talk again about our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And yes, part three is up of Titan Gate 92. As uh, we discuss uh, everything we, that, that we picked up when we left off from pro the previous two shows. And uh, we talked about it at the beginning of the show, uh, a lot of the stuff that's going on there. But uh, again, Murray Hodgson, we talk about him, more of his bullshit. We got. Uh, Mel Phillips and uh, some kind of new revelations there. And we talk a lot about steroids and a lot about Vince Russo and John Arezzi's relationship falling apart. So we got a lot of that and some other things too. Some stuff about Sid and uh, some other things going on. So yeah, we did we the big plop up front anyway. Yeah, we talked a lot early on the show. So, uh, so yeah, if you want access to that, five dollars a month. At patreon.com slash between the sheets get you access to uh, the shows that we've done the, on this uh, series, these three shows, and all the other shows that we've done in our near six full years of the Patreon. A lot of content there for that money. And you're going to probably want to even uh, go another month or even go annual, where it's uh, a savings of $10.40. Is that right? No, $9.60. I thought it was 10 No, because it's 50 40 Fifty forty. I knew it was something something forty. Yes. So you 50, pay fifty forty. Yeah, sixteen percent off. Sixteen percent off at fifty dollars or forty cents a year. So you can do that and you have a whole year to listen to everything. But uh, yeah, five dollars a month if you want to go that in that route there and you get all the content. 
Dollar month gives you access to the Discord thanks to this segment. $25 allows you to pick a show for the week. Now, I have two shows in mind if you do that, just in case uh, somebody may have already picked your week, or it could be something we've already talked about in the previous show that you may have forgotten about. And uh, let us know why you want to uh, do the show that you want to do. If there's any questions, just let one of us know, and we'll try to get with you and make sure everything works out right in your favor. Yes. And, uh, you, of course, follow all the rules with that, 30-day 30, 30 rules in effect, 10-year rule, Wednesday to Tuesday, all that stuff that we've all, always talked about. $50 a month gets you, uh, for the month, gets you access to uh, a segment that you want to do on that show. And 100 you can do the whole show if you choose. All that's voluntarily. It's up to you. At patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, who do I think this week is our new and or returning patrons? Uh, real quick before we get into that, I did want to mention, there. Are, I know there are a couple people I do need to get back to about their picks and stuff. But um, there's time because... Uh, July is pretty much spoken for anyway. So that's that's part of why I've been holding off a little. But the, you will hear from me. with You may have heard from me by the time you hear this show anyway. But just figured I'd put that out there. So we would like to thank Daniel Neewert with a one-year subscription. Thanks, Daniel. Steve C. Thanks, Steve C. Adrian Pickworth. Thanks, Adrian. Annual subscription from Kevin Anderson. Thanks, Kevin. Ryan Smith. Thanks, Ryan. And Brian. Thanks, Brian. So we thank all of you new patrons, returning patrons, patrons been there from the beginning, patrons that have come along the way. We thank all of you for being a part of our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, IWTV. What's going on on IWTV? It's caught your eye. Well, uh, this week, uh, as this drops, big thing probably as far as live streams would be uh, this Friday night's uh, West Coast Pro Show at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 Pacific. Cruel Summer, which features a main event of Jacob Fatu defending their title against Filthy Tom Lawler. Motor City Machine Guns against the West Coast Wrecking Crew. Starboy Charlie versus uh, Speedball Mike Bailey, Jack Cartwheel versus Titus Alexander, Nick Wayne versus ACH, Masha Slamovich, uh, Masha Slamovich versus Slamovich, Vatafras, <laughs> Surcease. How about JR calling everyone by their WWE names during Blood and Guts? By the way, I mean, doesn't surprise you. He did it more than usual. It's, well, there's a reason why he's been. Now relegated to the second hour. Well, and he that, wasn't right? the ol- he wasn't the only one either because Taz also called Ruby Soho Ruby Riot. <laughs> uh, so yes, Jack Hartwell versus Titus. Oh wait, I did that already. So yes, Masa Slamovich versus Zeta Zang, Kevin Blackwood, Davy Richards, Vinny Massaro versus Alan, no longer five angels, uh, and more. So usual loaded West Coast Pro Show from what is probably match for match and card for card the best indie in the country right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, they they got a lot of things going on, a lot of big, interesting names coming in every show. So, yeah, they definitely, it's, it's definitely probably the most interesting independent wrestling promotion in the country right now, to say the least. Yeah, because they got names, but they've got their own flavor, and they've got loaded cards. So, always fun to watch there. Good production values as well. And at least the night of the day this comes out, uh, Uncharted Territory has a Slade versus Cruel death match that they've been building up for pretty much the entire run. 
so far headlining on a show that also includes uh, Alex Kane versus Damian Tangra and uh, Adam Priest facing uh, the one and only former Alabama, Alabama junior heavyweight champion Mike Jackson. Yeah, great to see Mike Jackson uh, on uncharted territory. And I told Dylan that he needed to announce the match like Harry Thornton <laughs> to get the true Chattanooga flavor for Mike Jackson being back in Chattanooga. Because Mike Jackson worked Chattanooga shows uh, almost 50 years ago. Yeah. So when Harry Thornton was the man in Chattanooga. So, yeah, that, that, that should be interesting. quite the match. Adam Priest is a, a, a good, good hand, good talent. Coming on strong and uh, wrestling guy like Mike Jackson will only be beneficial to his career. Yes, and also gets to be from, you know, because of Priest's style that he works, very different from the other Mike Jackson spotlight matches that people have seen as of late, I would think. Yeah, I think so. I think so as well. Probably so, more of a technical mat-based match, I would expect. Or that, or, or it could be more of a Southern-style match. So. Yes, either or, or both. So, yeah, should be a, a hell of a time there in Chattanooga on July the 4th. Yes, and I didn't check VOD to see if anything of note went up this week. I'm just scrolling real quick, but those are the main things, at least, as, the, as far as the upcoming live streams. And, of course, if you are not already a subscriber, use code BTSPOD at sign up, and we will get a uh, referral fee each month as long as you stay a paid subscriber. So, yeah, independentwrestling.tv, code bts pod actually real quick i will mention i almost forgot i didn't go back and watch the first few minutes that i missed uh on the live stream but i forget which show but whichever icw show last weekend had the uh homicide versus colby carino match that match is particularly good and well worth checking out you know for two guys who i haven't seen i don't think all of their matches like i haven't seen the nwa match but i've seen i think most of their others um, this I think is easily the best match they've had together. So definitely check that out. Absolutely. All right. Uh, private internet access, private internet access.com slash between the sheets. Not going to do the full read this week, but, uh, everybody go there and, uh, I mean, it's the best damn VPN on the planet. So if you're interested in getting a uh, VPN, there's nobody better than private internet access. So go there and we got a great deal there. If you go to the website and sign up, so, uh, get on that. And, uh, it helps us out too. Believe me. So if you want to help us out that way and help yourself out as well, private internet access.com slash between the sheets. All right. Uh, plug time next week on between the sheets. We'll be going back to 2000, the year 2000. And uh, this is a weird time. I mean, right here we're, that we're recording this because this is the, one of the rare times that re we're recording halftime before we're recording the big plug at the end of the show. So this is the first time I plugged this show. So yeah, how about that? So anyway, this is a Patreon Patreon requested show, and uh, yeah, of course, one of you guys wants us to uh, to go through this. It's Sean Dickinson. Wanted us to do this, and he wanted to hear about the week of July the sixth to the twelfth, two thousand. Where well, let's start out with the World Wrestling Federation, where of course we got Raw and SmackDown to talk about, and some interesting names working in dark matches on those shows. 
And uh, we have the full TV reports there. And the uh, news of a major advertiser dropping the WWF because of pressure from right to center. Right, right to censor from uh, Brent Bozell and his crew. The Parents Television Council. PTC, yes. I was thinking right to censor when I think of them. So, yeah. Uh, we got a, a little bit of independent wrestling to talk about because there's so much other stuff on the show. So we didn't go heavy there. No, no full results on a lot of these shows. Just a, a couple of interesting notes and tidbits. Extreme Championship Wrestling. We'll talk about uh, their TNN show that was going on that week. We got a lot of interesting news as they did a TV taping in Poughkeepsie. We'll talk about that. And a uh, big show at the ECW Arena, which uh, was basically Raven Swan Song in ECW. So we'll have news on that. And Bob Backlund in Poughkeepsie, New York, backstage. And what a wild story that it, there is to talk about with that. And ECW TNN drama. So uh, lots of news there. Then we got a lot of lucha stuff to talk about, and some you know there's stuff going on there. Triple A is running their Triple A Japan tour, so we have news on that. We'll have some early pro wrestling Noah news as they had a press conference to talk about. We got some new Japan TV tapings to talk about. All Japan's first shows since the split, so we'll have uh, those to talk about. But this show, which is 40 pages long, 20 pages. And a little bit in the tw- page 21 is dedicated to World Championship Wrestling. As yes, Bash at the Beach 2000. And you know what that means. Hulk Hogan and Vince Russo. And we got a lot to talk about there. As uh, Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller have a lot to say about that show and what happened here. And... Uh, Yes, this is going to be a beast, folks. A total beast. That's why a lot of the other sections got cut short, because we definitely were going to make this one uh, about the big things. And boy, this is a big thing. So uh, (laughs) get ready for this one. Uh, This is going to be a heavy, heavy deal to talk about. And this is why Sean wanted us to do this week. And we're going to make him happy. And since it's such a damn big show, no guest. No guests next week on Between the Sheets because actually we'll have two weeks after that where we'll have guests that are patrons. So uh, no guests next week on Between the Sheets. But this should be a hell of a fucking show. So everybody get ready for that. All right. Uh, also, the plug. Exile on Bad Street, which should be up by the time you listen to this, shouldn't it, Bix? I don't know. Probably. All right. <laughs> Let's hope so. As uh, we want another walk on the wild side here, as uh, Jeff G. Bailey and the Reverend Dan the Dragon Wilson join me. Of course, Dan's been very busy with Uncharted Territory lately, as he's one of the creative forces behind that, and also uh, manages Tank. So, so he's been getting himself uh, a lot of play lately on uh, IWTV and other assorted wrestling deals. But Dan and Jeff are with us with me to talk about uh march 2002 just one month in the bay wild side and it's still being a two and a half hour show because we have the two-night extravaganza known as hardcore hell 2002 and yeah wrestlemania wrestle kingdom Wildside was doing it first so two nights the hardcore hell 2002 and so we'll talk about the tv though that built to that and all the stuff going on there and then we'll go 
deep into hardcore hell, match by match. Lots of talk about the angles going on there. What worked, what didn't work, what should have been changed. And uh, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of feuds are blown off on this show. A lot of feuds are continued, started, this, that, and the other. Mainly, we'll be talking about AJ Styles, Rip Michaels, and David Young's feud and their three-way match. The Adam Jacobs Dustin Timberlake, aka Last Feud, and how that how that ended. We'll have uh, Iceberg and Tank in the Cage of Horrors to so talk about that. Blackout and the Lost Boys in a ladder match. Jason Cross, Caprice Coleman, False Count Anywhere. Jimmy Ray, Tony Mama Luke, I Quit match. Uh, Jeremy Lopez and Todd Sexton for the Wildside Junior title. A lot of feuds coming to a head here. And then also on Hardcore Hell, they got some names from previous Wildside shows showing up for the Wildside Mega Rumble. So uh, quite the listen here. Very, very enjoyable show. Lots of great stories, as usual. So check that out on Exile on Bad Street. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BT She's Pod. Bix at David Bix. And uh, Bix, anything going on in your world this week? Well, I was on the uh, Post Wrestling Daily Newscast on Tuesday. That's right, which we talked about at the beginning of the show. Yes. So, yes. People can yes. uh, check that out on their YouTube, or also, I believe, the MP3 audio version is on their Patreon. I forget which tier. But yeah, talk about all the Vince McMahon, Rita Chatterton stuff there. Uh, so check that out. I thought it went well. I feel like when well, I John, start, John, and, John and John and Way are are, uh, are great friends of the show. Absolutely. Yes. yes. If anyone's wondering, by the way, why we haven't asked uh, John to do the show, it's because we generally record on Monday and Tuesday evenings. So do the math. I mean, John's a very busy man. Well, that too, <laughs> yes. But I mean, that that's another thing, too, is, I mean, I've had people ask, why is so-and-so on the show? Well, so-and-so does a lot of podcasting, and, you know, it's kind of hard for them to do said shows because of how we have to schedule our shows. Yeah. So sometimes there's, a, there's people that we would love to have on, but it just isn't feasible because of the recording schedule that we're on, because, you know, I work a full-time job, and Bix has his things he does. So, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. So, yes, we try yeah. to have the people we want, but sometimes just don't work out that way. Yes, yes. Or, as has happened, a few, uh, I guess, two times, uh, we've had people uh, no-show on us. <laughs> and also... Uh, Maybe misunderstand what the show was. So, long story. But anyway. Uh, also, I have a fan bite. I should have a story up already. If not, then probably today. Uh, looking at the path that Claudio Castagnoli has taken over the last however many years. Going back to his original almost signing with the WWE. And I should have something up also about... Uh, Something we talk about on the new Patreon show as far as the signal-to-noise ratio issue with, uh, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but still, how the number of different things in the scandals, and then the number of scandals over the years probably uh, helped uh, Vince McMahon and WWE escape scrutiny, kind of uh, too much to deal with, so to speak. So, check that out. All right, well, on that note, let's get back to the rest of the show.
Let's go to the U.S. indie scene now, and we have Extreme Championship Wrestling, and there's a lot going on here. It was another one of those weekends where there were so many angles, one would need three people taking notes to remember them all at the ECW Internet Convention Weekend, which included shows in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, on June 30th and July 1st in Philadelphia, Flagstaff and ECW Arena, respectively, with Raven and Stevie Richards being public enemy for the tag titles in Jim Thorpe. Real quick, by the way, um, since it's, I don't believe it's mentioned here, we should probably note that the planned and then canceled before any tickets were sold or anything, uh, Lackawanna County Stadium outdoor show that I guess was supposed to have a funk cactus explosion match was originally going to be, I believe, on June 30th. So keep that in mind in terms of some of the angles they shoot here and stuff like that. At the Jim Thorpe show in front of 425 fans, they started the Pitbull's babyface turn. During a match, a girl at ringside, who they believe will be called Francine, well, that's her name, who has been on TV cheering for Stevie Richards, who Dave was told stole the show all weekend as far as being a performer, got into a fight with Beulah McGillicuddy. Raven got mad and dragged Richards and Beulah to the back by the hair, but the Pitbulls got mad because they couldn't understand why their management was leaving. So here we are at the beginning of Francine on this show. And that would heat up as summer went along. Yes, and she was great in this role, too. Yes. Yes. Taz came out to wrestle Mikey Whipwreck, but Whipwreck couldn't wrestle because his arm was in a sling. Shocking that he was hurt. Heel ref Bill Alfonso came out and said there was a contract signed and demanded the match take place. Chad Austin comes out next to challenge Taz, calling him Tasmaniac, the name which he has dropped since nobody's supposed to use anymore. Taz immediately hit a suplex, but Alfonso called for a DQ because Taz attacked his opponent before the bell. <laughs> Axel Rotten beat Ian Rotten in a bloody barbed wire baseball bat match. Franchise Shane Douglas and Cactus Jack then had a debate. Douglas said that when he started ECW, it was a quality organization, but called it Extreme Championship Bullshit, a takeoff of Sabu's knocks of ECW. And that's why he's leaving for the group where Bret Hart wrestles and where Bruno Sammartino and superstar Billy Graham used to wrestle. The true, the, the true, the two traded stories about breaking in together at Dom DiNucci's wrestling school. When Douglas told about what a great wrestler he was, Jack brought up his classic match with Tully Blanchard. Shane said he was the only wrestler in ECW, and Mike Whipwreck was brought out as another clean wrestler. And when Douglas threatened Whipwreck, Jack challenged him to a match. To show how weird things are, while Douglas was talking, the biggest chants were, We want flair! <laughs> So Katniss and Shane squared off. Douglas walked out and took a powder. Well, yeah, Dick Flair and all that stuff. But Shane's a heel here, big time heel at this point in time. So of course the fans are going to chant, "We want Flair to get it, Shane," because he's already said he's going to the World Wrestling Federation or would like to mm -hmm. or whatever. So yes, Raven and Richards were the tag titles. Raven walked out in disgust because Richards was getting killed. So Richards was getting destroyed when the gangsters didn't run in and destroyed Public Enemy, and Richards scored a pinfall. Referee John Finnegan ran into the ring in reverse of the decision, saying Public Enemy won due to outside interference in ECW. Bill Alfonso then came out and gave the belts back to Raven and Richards, claiming the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission doesn't allow reversals of decisions. Richards then offered an open challenge to anyone, which brought out 911, and finished the show by choke slamming Stevie, Raven, ring announcer Bob Artez, and the timekeeper. 911 then chased Bill Alfonso to the dressing room. Raven and Richards then refused to leave the ring because of what happened. They stayed in the ring as Sad Bad and Tommy Dreamer came out 
for the ECW title match. The two went up jumping Dreamer for the match. Dreamer had the match won when Selena Menace came out with Luna Vachon on a stretcher. Storyline being she was knocked out by Raven and Richards backstage. Tommy got distracted, allowing Sandman to uh, give him a low blow with a Singapore cane and score pinfall. You, you, I read the results of this show, and again, this goes back to what I always say. I, I, 1995 ECW is my favorite year of ECW. Because look at, look at all the stuff that's going on in this show, angle-wise, storyline-wise, promos. I mean, there's stuff that's it's, it's a cohesive-type show here, you know? And this is a house show. Yes, although the main event finish might be the dumbest distraction finish I've ever heard. Well, I guess. <laughs> why would the man? Why would the man just come out with Luna on a stretcher? Exactly. But I guess that's one of those things you kind of have to suspend disbelief for. You know, it's like why? Why when I'm watching Blood and Guts, it's this gigantic crash pad at ringside. That was a timekeeper's <laughs> table, Chris. Or oh. is. Who was it? Was it Rich Fan that called it the Timekeeper's Flotilla? <laughs> it was the Timekeeper's, like, bounty castle. <laughs> what it was. Which also they didn't the... show until the bump, anyway. Yes, I know. There was someone, uh, I think it was Jonesy on Twitter, that said as soon as he got to his seat and saw that thing, he was like, yep, someone's going off the cage. Exactly. But anyway, so let's talk about uh, July 1st now. And we'll go to the Pro Wrestling Torch. The Information Superhighway brought together around 100 fans from across the country and, and the world for ECW's Friday and Saturday night cards over the weekend as a part of an effort to accommodate the gathering. ECW personnel gathered on Saturday afternoon and spent over two hours answering questions from the internet fans. Panel members included the following. Todd Gordon, Sandman, Woman, Rucka Rock, Johnny Grudge, Ian Rotten, Tuco Scorpio, Paul Heyman. Taz, Tommy Dreamer, and Cactus Jack. They exhaustively answered the questions of the fans, ranging from simple fan questions to insider, well-informed, business-oriented questions. The answers were 90% shoot, but at times the personalities took liberties with their answers or outright played along with storylines, including insults tossed back and forth between Dreamer and the Sandman, or seemed to be talking down to the audience, who for the most part gushingly praised the product. Shocking. Among the subjects discussed... There was a lot of laughter about how bad King of the Ring was and Mabel winning the tournament. <laughs> it was a Philly. Paul Heyman predicted failure for WCW for going head-to-head with WF on Monday nights. <laughs> he wasn't the only one. When asked what match he most liked to see in ECW, Heyman said one of them would be or would have been Shane Douglas versus Ric Flair. And he wanted to do that, too. When asked who from WCW he thought would be able to make an ECW, he mentioned a few obvious names such as Vader, Shawn Michaels, Brian Pillman, and Steve Austin, but added Ric Flair. He said if he thought Flair came to ECW, the ECW would light a fire under him and would get him out of the rut that he's in. He complimented Flair's overall skill level, but questioned his ambition to improve in recent years. As complimentary as he was towards Flair, he also talked about Flair wanting to turn Alex Wright heel, so Flair could hang around Alex at the hotels and pick up all the 18-year-old women who Alex turns down in the hotel lobbies. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> Heyman wow. told Shane Douglas in the past tense whenever bringing up his name. Ooh. <laughs> 
Katniss Jack told about leaving Smoky Mountain, how he still owed his final paycheck for Jim Cornette. Well, that's where that story came from, then. Which Cactus had left Smoky Mountain when January, January? February? Yeah. Cactus talked about ambitions of a wrestling school eventually. Well, that would have been something. He stayed around after the conference ended and talked with the fans in a small gathering for several more minutes. See him holding court with uh, Dave Shear and, and friends. Been something. Ian Rotten badmouthed his brother by saying that his brother wants to be a WF wrestler now and said that he is going not going to inject things in his butt, i.e. steroid needles like his brother, in order to bulk up and tone up in order to get looked at. Ian was selling an autographed Japanese poster and the night before was selling a blood-soaked t-shirt. Ha! How about that line about Axel? Injecting himself with steroids, Bix. Um, I didn't think he looked that jacked, but okay. I don't think he looked jacked at all. Also, he they're feuding anyway. Yes, I did. know, but he lost some weight. But he doesn't go to WF. He goes to Memphis, but he doesn't go to WF. When the panel was asked about their view on the wrestling press, only Ian was negative. Shocking. Saying that sometimes wrestling fans are better off not knowing the truth. <laughs> I'm sure he still wishes that today. <laughs> Most of the panel generalized all the wrestling press together and talked about half what you read is true, the other half isn't. Ian gave the classic anti-newsletter line, whatever I read I already know, so he doesn't need to read them. <laughs> Oh, man. Tommy Dreamer seen him be the most sincere. You're talking about his love for ECW. Shocking, isn't it? And his style and attitude. Taz didn't say much, but did laugh a lot at Heyman's answers and antics. Gordon seemed to love the attention and handled himself very well. When a fan suggested ECW signed the Headhunters, Todd Gordon said they came very close to bringing them in earlier this summer, but things fell apart before it happened. Well, just wait a little bit. that You'll get them. Heyman was eloquent, animated, entertain and entertaining under those circumstances, and had everyone's attention during his sometimes long-winded answers. Oh, Heyman long-winded? Come on now. Sandman was as funny as his on-air personality quipping, who exactly are you talking about? When someone on the panel talked about how not all ECW wrestlers are technically great athletes. <laughs> I love it. Johnny Grunge and Rocco Rock were also much like their on-camera personalities. They bounced off each other verbally as they reminisce about some of the outrageous matches at ECW Arena. All the wrestlers who appeared were open with the fans outside the conference room for photo shoots and autograph signings. I mean, it's stuff like this that it was the reason, one of the reasons why ECW was so beloved in the internet fan base because they catered to them. And you get that you you get that same vibe from AEW today because what was Tony Khan? Oh, I thought that was rhetorical. Um, Tony Khan was an ECW internet fan type. There you go. So this is this is how you know he you know came up at, with his wrestling fandom, and you know AEW is modeled a lot in that way and how they do with fans and stuff and treat wrestling media, so to speak, as well. So yeah, some similarities there, absolutely. Yes, and. I mean, it's weird, you know what? I mean, the way they it's set up. These ECW conventions are almost more like SCI in terms of the closest comparison. In that way. In that type of way, yes. As far as how it's set up and at the hotel and wrestlers doing semi-official events and blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah, the old SCI, yes. Yes. I haven't, I haven't been, you know, in the recent years, but when I went, yeah, that's the way it used to be. Absolutely. Again, I don't know if it still is now. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there are similarities there. Absolutely. All right. Uh, this led to the July 1st show, which drew a packed house for approximately 1,075 fans. So it wasn't the expected record, even with a big crew coming in from out of town. This is back to day, by the way. It opened with the Dudleys. Anthony Michaels of Smoky Mountain and Florida indie wrestler Jeff Bradley, managed by a local who may have worked as Alexander the Great for ICW, although Dave's not sure of that, upsetting the Pitbulls. The Dudleys are two guys doing the Hanson Brothers retard nerd gimmick from the hockey movie Slapshot from the mid-70s, and the manager is called Big Dick Dudley. <laughs> They're the... <laughs> During the match, they did the same thing as the previous night with Francine and Beulah getting into it, and Raven dragging Richards and Beulah to the back. When the Pitbulls were distracted by all this, they were pinned. Ah, uh, the debut of the Dudleys, Vix. How about that? So who do we blame for this? Dudley Dudley and Little Snot Dudley. Man, it's oh, the, creation of, creation, the creation of the Dudleys? Was that a Paul idea, though, or was it a Jeff Bradley idea? I think it was a Raven idea. Okay, that, you know what? That's right. Now that you say it. Yeah, it's a Raven idea. Mm. It was, a, I think, a Raven Paul thing, but it was mainly Raven. Yes. Um, the originals do not last long, though. I think Little Snot is gone almost right away, right? They broke his pelvis, yes. Oh, God, I forgot about <laughs> that part. Jeff Bradley is around a little longer as Dudley Dudley. Um, yeah. And then. Dances with Dudley. I think Dances with he Dudley is the first new Dudley, right? Yes, he's the first new Dudley, then Bubba Ray Dudley. Well, and we need to give the backstories to remember. Dudley Dudley claims to be the only legitimate Dudley because both of his parents were named Dudley when he was conceived. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dances with Dudley was allegedly conceived when Daddy Dudley, quote-unquote, poked a hauntus. <laughs> yes. I don't know if Bubba had any backstory. So we, have, we get Sign Guy later in the year. Chubby Dudley. Devon Dudley in 96. Yes. From the south side of Dudleyville. Excuse me, uh, lethal action wrestling promoter Chubby Dudley. <laughs> yes. So, uh, and yeah, that's the Dudleys. So there you go. Next up was Chad Austin and Tony Stetson against Don E. Allen and Dino Sendoff in a match which was horrible, although Austin was purposely mistiming every move. In other words, the guys were working the crowd with the object of the crowd was to hate the match, which really isn't the hardest thing to accomplish. Well, there was a reason for this, of course. 911 came out and chose slammed all four men. <laughs> always entertaining. When, when uh, Frankenstein hit, the fans always just lose their minds, and 911 comes out and does his thing, and a fun is had by all. Yes, although. This does air on TV in some form in the next few weeks, and people should watch it because Chad is brilliant at pretending to be a bad wrestler here. <laughs> Even though he's a guy who had been working there for a while, and everybody knew him. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's hilarious. Because he's not overdoing it either. Like it says here, he's subtle about it. Yeah. Hack Myers pinned Val Puccio. But after the match, Val Puccio jumped Myers and gave him a big splash, and Hack did a stretcher job. That was said to have been terrible. Oh, yes, Bix. Big Val. A, a massive man. 
ES, and I believe for his previous appearance, his debut, uh, I don't know if the Observer got it wrong, but because the audio was particularly terrible at uh, the arena that night for, I guess it was barbed wire hoodies and choke slams, in the Torch results, and maybe also the Observer, instead of, I guess he was announced as Big Val E, maybe, or something? Yeah, Val E, Puccio, yeah, yeah. He's referred to in the Torch, at least, as Big Mally. <laughs> and Val Puccio is the genesis of the full-blooded Italians. Because when J.T. Smith came back from banging his head on the floor, he was aligned with Val Puccio. Who yes. was teaching him to be Italian. Yes, in their feud with Hack Myers. Yes. Alright, so next we get Scorpio pitting Taz in an upset. Scorpio did his tumbleweed leg drop, but Taz popped up, hit a big suplex for the pin. But Scorpio got his leg on the ropes. Alfonso ordered the match to continue, which led to Taz arguing Alfonso. Scorpio hit Taz from behind with a chair and did a leg drop for the pin. After the match, Alfonso and Scorpio destroyed Paulie. So again, too cold over more as a heel here. And further in that Taz feud, which would get heated up even more as uh, the the weeks went on, when Taz gets injured. Then Shane Douglas came out for an interview running down ECW. At some point, woman came out, and Douglas called her a douchebag, and she slapped him. Sandman came out and did a number on Douglas, and Cactus Jack made the save for Douglas. Douglas said that after all that happened, he and Cactus were still the best of friends, but Sandman would get a wrestling lesson later in the show. All right, then douchebag. Raven and Richards beat Luna and Dreamer to keep tag titles. Luna was as stiff as the guys and took bumps like the guys, and visually it didn't look bad, although there were a lot of complaints that her beating Stevie up the whole time they were in with each other made it sillier than the WWF, but it was an entertaining match. Beulah threw powder in Luna's eyes, and she was pinned. You think that's like that? I mean, the mentality at the time, though, that how dare a woman be beating up a man like this, Bix? Even if it's Luna. I think so, because with the way their gimmicks are, it makes perfect sense. Yes. Although Stevie has been shown occasionally as a little bit more of a serious wrestler. He isn't portrayed that way most of the time. Well, especially not this time. He's Raven's flunky. He's dancing Stevie Rich as a king of swing. I mean, he's Raven's lackey. I just mean that occasionally he'll have relatively serious matches like the one he had with Mikey not long before this. Well, that was the Steve Richards era. This is Stevie Richards. Was he not no. billed as Stevie yet at first? After no, they yeah, I, I, no, no, Steve, the Stevie stuff doesn't really start until this time. Well, also, I just remembered. I think the Mikey match is the debut of the half shirt, shirt and the cutoff shorts, too. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Axley and Ian Rotten then started their Type 8 death match where both glued glass in their hands. Axel threw one punch and Ian was cut, and immediately Bill Alfonso stopped the match, ruling Ian too bad, badly cut to continue. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, that one thing you said about ECW in this time period here, they want to get Alfonso over. This was a great way of doing it with those fans to, to have, to have a, that type of stoppage for this match. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. At this point, the gangsters and public enemies started brawling by the dressing room, and Alfonso announced he wanted them all arrested and chased them out of the building. Todd Gordon, who was put over heavily to the fans as the Bayface promoter and boss, and all over the place on angles, which in wrestling usually means something as in some ways trying to feed someone's ego in order to cut a better deal. Hmm. Paul E. was the one writing and signing all the checks backstage and is running everything. I love how Dave just 
buries all that in there in this one little sentence. Announced by Alfonso gone to Axel and Ian Rotten will be restarted. Finish saw Ian dump a bunch of thumbtacks on the mat and went for a suplex, but asked for a verse. To Ian took a bump on the thumbtacks and was pinned. Told it was a sick match. <laughs> what do you think about Dave there with the Paul and Todd stuff? Right just buried in the middle of that whole paragraph there. <laughs> I mean... Well, wait. Has I mean, HHG been discussed yet in The Observer, or is that a week or two later? We're in that time frame, but it is, I mean, it is interesting that Todd Gordon all of a sudden is uh, on TV a whole lot more. Yes, in this he time is. Period. Yes. Also, if you want to hear more about Dave burying leads, patreon.com slash between the sheets. <laughs> because, boy, is there a buried lead on, uh, I mean, I think I said in the plug at the beginning, too, but, boy, is there a buried lead uh, near the end of that new Patreon show. Yeah. Joy Styles interviewed Dreamer and Luna when Luna challenged Richards to a cage match on the next show. Raven and Richards came out and the brawl ensued. Pitbulls came out but refused to attack Luna and Richards punched them, causing them to turn on Raven and Richards, and the Dudleys wound up involved as well, siding with Raven and Richards. So there's the big turn for the Pitbulls. And starting a feud with the Dudleys. And the Pitbulls need to turn babyface. Yes, they did. They were much better in that role. Yes. All right, next up was Sandman and Cactus for the ECW title with the second four came legal and Cactus's fist and barbed wire. Woman took her first bump and so did the ref. Douglas came in and gave Sandman a DT and said that he just gave Sandman a wrestling lesson. He then said he learned a lesson in life by keeping your friends close and your enemies closer and attacked Cactus. He put Sandman on top and the revived ref counted the fall. After the match, Todd Gordon fired Shane Douglas, who was leaving for WF. And Douglas started giving Gordon a beating until 911 made the save, doing the choke slam. So, yes, Shane Douglas got his. And then the night ended with Public Enemy beating the gangsters. An excellent brawl, said it'd be four and a quarter stars all over the building. Public Enemy won using a croquet mallet, but were jumped after the match. After the match, Public Enemy invited fans to come into the ring and dance with them, and everyone ran in and carried them on their shoulders. Well, let's talk about that, shall we? Let's go to the torch. Several ECW wrestlers are relieved that a new, less dangerous trend was started on July 1st at ECW Arena. During the last Florida tour, fans followed in Philadelphia fans' footsteps and threw dozens of chairs into the ring at the conclusion of one of the shows. Wrestlers are now hopeful that will be replaced with the in-ring dancing, or as what TPE is calling the public enemy house party. Rocco Rossi originally thought that he, he originally, he and Johnny Grunge were just going to dance with a couple of fans after their match. But when a couple of fans are in the ring, so many others are trying to enter, that rather than rely on security to hold them back, they asked security to let them all in the ring. They don't regret it, as it was some of the best TV footage one could ask for. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I mean, would you say this would be a worse trend than throwing chairs into the ring? Because you're throwing chairs into the ring, and there's, I mean, maybe in the ring it's just the wrestlers. Here we have all these fans in the ring, and that could get, kind of interesting it could but but i get why the wrestlers would find it preferable and then that came to an end after florida where the ring collapsed yeah that was impressive though on tv to watch <laughs> watch the ring collapse with all those fans in there all chain ecw as they uh went to crash into the ground but um yeah 
again, a, a very strong ECW arena show here, top to bottom. A lot going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is okay. This is a great time to be getting the ECW, and I was getting hot and heavy in the ECW at this time. So, again, love 1995 to death. Yes. Although I, I forgot to mention earlier, I always found it weird that it was never explained why Beulah didn't like Francine. Because they're women, Bix. You remember yeah, well, what, Paul's what, booking, yeah. You got to remember where we're at. And, 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 and I, I mean, it, there's, a lot, there's a lot of truth to it, too. A woman's worst enemy is always another woman. <laughs> because, I mean, they, I mean, women get very territorial at times. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, God knows I've worked with women all my life. So, uh, around th- women, women all my life. I mean, it, it, it gets very territorial at times. So the best way to interpret the intent of the storyline is that she is jealous of another woman getting attention in ECW, basically. Um, kind of, sort of, yes. I okay. would say so. Okay. Yes. We- yeah. Women handle it differently than men. You know, men, they'll, 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 you know, they'll talk shit, get in the fights, whatever. Women just they they do a lot of things differently in that regard. <laughs> well, in this storyline, they get into fights, though. Yeah, well, it's ECW. It's ECW. The crowds are totally in just about every angle over the weekend, even more than even before. Well, you got all these people coming in from out of the area to their first probably first ECW shows. They're pumped up. Yes. Vampire Warrior will work ECW dates in Florida, but has to trans himself into work Northeast shows. Dave guesses he and Luna are married, but split up at the present time. So that aspect of the angle has some legitimacy. Oh, I'll say. Hmm. <laughs> I'll say it does. Also, you have him in a storyline, but you're saying he has to pay his own trans up from Florida. Yes. Paul Heyman, everybody. Paul Heyman mentioned bringing in both Johnny Smith and Chris Jericho over the weekend. Well, I'll give it a year. <laughs> For both. Yes. Chris, you're an American citizen? Come on down. <laughs> if Chris Benoit returns, expect them to immediately to program him with Eddie Guerrero. Chris, you're not an American citizen? <laughs> well. <laughs> well, he does come back, and he, you know, <laughs> works against Eddie in the in, in, in tag matches. No, he doesn't. Yeah, he does. No, he doesn't. In the Eddie and... Eddie and the Steiners. No, 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 no. It's Eddie and Taz against Scorpio and Malenko. The six-man was originally going to be Steiners and Taz against Benoit, Malenko, and Scorpio. Benoit, no shows because of the visa issues, is replaced by Cactus Jack. Taz is heard and is replaced by Eddie. That's and, right. And then Benoit. Benoit's only match after, I think, the Florida tour in ECW is his last match where he teams with Scorpio against the Steiners because he already has his work visa from WCW by then. Yeah, you're right. It almost happened, but it did. Yes. Terry Funk has been spending several hours daily in traction. He's been working on a tremendously painful back for much of the past year. Dave expects he'll be back working the IWA tour next month. But it'd be safe to say there's at least considerable question about his long-term future in wrestling. No comment. Eh. Hey, well, as we record this, Terry Funk turns 78 years old. So, uh, the greatest professional wrestler that ever lived. Yes, I'm glad he turned 78. and Hope he makes it a many, many more. Absolutely. All right, now we have a crazy story here. On July 1st in Elizabethton, Tennessee, a funny incident involved one Bubba Rogers. Although, as you'll later see, not Ray Trailer. <laughs> 
on posters advertising an indie show under the banner of All Pro Wrestling. It said that WCW superstar Big Bubba Rogers would appear on the show. Before the first match, a guy who looked a lot like Bubba Rogers came out and was signing autographs under that name. When the matches began, he and a friend who came to the building with him began heckling the matches immersively, laughing at their mismoves, yelling, you suck, or learn to take a bump right. After the third match, several of the wrestlers confronted the guy and began to question if he was really Ray Trailer and demanded proof. The fake Bubba and his friend ended up fleeing the building and jumping in a car with Kentucky license plates. Two local cops went after them. Later in the show, the cops came back with the guy. The ring announcer told the two wrestlers in the ring at the time to end their match loud enough for everyone to hear, and they immediately did the finish. The cops then forced the fake Bubba to apologize for trying to pass himself off as Big Bubba Rogers. Apparently, the promoter had made a deal with him to not press charges in return for a public apology. It gets better. Yes, let's go to the DMs. Yes, Bo James figured out what we were talking about. And he didn't, I didn't send him notes or nothing, but I sent him this when he figured out what we were talking about. And this is what he said. First off, he said there was also a Dr. Death on that deal, which must have been the guy, other guy with Bubba. He said, here's the crazy thing. The cop that brought Bubba Rogers back in is Bo's cousin. <laughs> he said the promoter is one of the most – His actual cousin. cousin, not uh, Casey. Yeah, not a, not a work cousin. Yeah. Uh, the promoter is one of the most crooked sons of bitches ever. So Bubba Rogers was Tim Reed, who was doing a knockoff of the boss man gimmick, and he does look like him. So the only reason the promoter did anything was because he was making fun of the guys he put in the ring. This is the same promoter that shaved his son's head to run a benefit for a kid with cancer. This is the same promoter that used to go to Krispy Kreme, buy all the old donuts, make his kids and wrestlers sell them door-to-door saying it was for crippled children so he could run wrestling shows. Same promoter that falls advertised every wrestler from Hulk Hogan to you name it. Same promoter whose son brought great mood to the WrestleCade and didn't pay for him. And he said, yes, this is the promotion that the rock and roll toy match came from. This promoter is Mike Duggar of AEW. Oh, well, Bo left part out, too. <laughs> what? I believe it's, I forget if it's his son or his grandson. I think it's his son. Is uh, Rising Independent Star Axton Ray? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and Roll Roy Toy it was a guy who was uh, a regular fan. Somebody let him, let him become a wrestler. In his late 40s, early 50s when he started, he looked at himself as a Ricky Morton clone. He was just a middle-aged man with zero training, wearing track pants and tennis shoes. Bo said, no idea where he is now, and as long as it's far away from a wrestling ring, he's happy. <laughs> And if you want to see Rock and Roll Roy Toy cutting a promo, Bo has it on his YouTube channel. From an APW show, because there are chairs there with APW spray painted on the chairs. <laughs> My God. Don't you just love independent wrestling in the South, Bix? Tennessee heroes. <laughs> and stuff like this happens. I mean, you know, I mean, the God knows there's been other ones. I mean, Big Steel down here, you know... When when he started booking Jay Batista, all he had on his posters was Batista, and a Jay Batista looking a lot like Dave. We hung up, we had the posters hanging up in the store. Oh, I looked boy. at the poster, I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> I, I was like, "What?" 
Batista. And then they ran the show and people came out thinking that it was Dave Batista. And they drew a good house that night. And they drew about three or four hundred fans. And the fans and in, in the building that that was a lot of people in. And Jay Batista comes out and the fans are like, What? <laughs> because it's a he's much shorter than Dave. I mean, he's a jacked up guy, he kind of looks like Dave, but he's shorter. And people were like pissed. And the next show they did, their attendance was like cut in half. Huh. Yeah, but yeah, and, and it, but then from then on, he started billing him as J. Batista. Okay. J. Period Batista. We should probably also mention that period where Ijo Del Rey Mysterio got all of his uh, cousin's tattoos and got the contact yes. lenses and the knockoff gear and everything. Yes. With it seeming like the goal was to try to put up on posters and trick people into thinking that it was World Wrestling Entertainment Superstar Rey Mysterio. And then, you know, I, I don't know if I told the story in the air, but um, my mom's best friend, her husband, me and got to my wrestling recently. And he, I mean, I've been knowing him for years and I didn't know this. He told me that he did shots. He did shots as Mr. Wrestling number two. He okay. said to that he would go to shows. No, serious. He would go to shows. He was a, a fan and was at shows and knew Johnny Walker. Okay. And and that would be nice that Johnny was double booked. And Johnny would, they would have his Johnny's gear and he would go to the building and get the gear and put it on when Johnny was somewhere else. He said he did it. He said he knew about three or four other people that did it. And then I look at results, and it makes sense because I'll see places in days where two's double booked, hmm. and it says Mister Wrestling Two, hmm. in results. You got to remember it's a different era, because I mean, yeah, the TV's on, but TV's different. It's not TV's not high def as it is now, and some people may have still been watching black and white TV in the seventies. So, Wrestling Two is a distinct body style. But fans are like, you know, it's wrestling too. Different time. But I, I know that happening with Superstar. Billy and he did that too. Sometimes. So, yeah. Wild. Wild stuff, this wrestling business. Hmm. All right, let's go to Smoky Mountain Wrestling. When it comes to the question of bounce checks that was brought <laughs> up at the ECW, Arena, <laughs> ECW Internet Convention... Jim Cornette said that as a company that operates week to week, they have bounce checks, but in every case, have made them good at the next show. You know what the translation said, of that is? Rick Rubin pulled out. <laughs> he said, New Jack has had checks bounce, but they were always made good by the next house show. And the only person in pro wrestling that's looking Mountain wrestling owes even one dime to right now is Cactus Jack. Smoking Mountain owed Mustafa a hundred bucks when he started no showing. He actually quit showing up a week before New Jack. He said when Cactus worked Smoky Mountain several months ago, he waited three weeks to cash his check, and that was the time when the company was short on money, and it bounced. He told Jack to put the check back in, but Jack waited a few more weeks before doing so, and it happened again. Cornette then sent him part of the money to Atlanta, not knowing Jack had moved to New York, and said Jack called him mad from New York calling him dirty names like Herb Abrams, <laughs> not realizing that some money had been sent to Atlanta. Jack later apologized, explained the problem. Said he'd leave his new address in New York for Cornette to send the rest of the money, but Cornette said Jack hasn't called him since. Cornette was mad about how he's being. Wait, 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 wait. Up. Mick couldn't just give it to him then? I don't know. 
Cornette was mad about how he was being portrayed in Philadelphia. Since ECW has had thousands of dollars of outstanding debts and just went through a financial reorganization, while some they were making fun, making him out to be a Welshing lowlife. <laughs> he means Welching. I uh, know. I said Welshing too. Welshing. Welsh. Welshing. Is that like the commentary on Wrestlo? <laughs> Cornette was also mad at how the gangsters switched from talking about ECW was being portrayed. Cornette had decided to finish the gangsters up on July first. Called a promotion trying to find them work. Naturally, the WF ran from that idea like a vampire from a cross. <laughs> and you told Cornette they weren't interested. So Cornette called Paul Heyman to get them in ECW after July 1st. Now, at the same time, New Jack, who already knew he was finishing up, had started to negotiate with Todd Gordon and agreed to start on June 17th. And the gangsters ended up missing the final two weeks they originally booked for Smoky Mountain, which included two big shows, which had Cornette hot, claiming he gave them their first career break, Made them main eventers, even though they had no track record, and they walked out on him at the end of the run, including the triangular match in Knoxville. And uh, let me put this push push this up a little higher because I, I should have and I didn't. At the internet convention, both Katnishek and New Jack were either jokingly or not so jokingly referring to the bounce checks when working the Smokey, although Katnishek said he liked Cornette. <laughs> Thoughts, Bix? Uh, I don't know. The fact that the cactus thing makes no sense, that he was going to call him back to give him the new address that he was already living in. What? Yeah. And also, I mean, I, I know people don't do this sometimes, but he didn't set up forwarding. I know. I know. And I love Cornette getting his digs in on ECW as well. Also, it wasn't a secret that move had that, bleh, that Mick had moved back to New York like a year earlier. A year before this. Like six months before he was in Smokey. So, yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Why, yes, You're Jimmy, right. I would love to take the gangsters. <laughs> Knowing they're already there. <laughs> I had not previously expressed any interest in this. You knew an exciting young cat team. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. Smoking Mad title was held up at their matchup with Lando and Brad Armstrong on July, 4th, July 1st in Barbersville, Kentucky, before 525 fans. Brad hit their leg sweep finisher, but before the ref Mark Curtis counted three, Jim Cornette rang the bell. As the ref and timekeeper consulted and the ref was told it was Cornette who rang the bell, he ordered the match restarted. However, Cornette instructed the referee and Unibomb handed Lando brass knucks, which he used and got the pin. Tracy Smothers then came out and told the ref what happened. He restarted the match again. And mainly Armstrong hit the leg sweep for the pin. At the building, Armstrong left and was announced as new champion. But the title will be held up when it's talked about on television this coming weekend. I forget. Were Snow and Unibom part of the militia? Well, we're getting into that, Bix. <laughs> yes, they were. Okay. They just joined. Which is weird timing because... Besides Unibom leaving for the WWF, Al Snow also likely won't be around much longer. Snow has a July 11th tryout with WCW Center Stage and has also received interest from WF. After about 11 years in the business, he's become something of an overnight sensation. Yeah, that, is, that was interesting. That both were leaving at the same time, so to speak. And Cornette puts them in the militia. Yes. But, I mean, Smoky Mountain, the writing's on the wall and it's starting to get real bad, so. Mm-hmm. On this weekend's television show, they had a personality profile segment on Dan Severin, leading to his appearance on August the 4th. 
there at Clifton UFC and talked about him being a double champion in the band UFC. And talked about people like Hoist Gracie and Ken Shamrock and Severn's wrestling background. Told the content of the interview wasn't bad, but Severn's delivery was the same as on UFC. Which is great for UFC, but looks weird on a pro wrestling show. Smoking Mountain Wrestling has also been plugging UFC, the UFC card with commercials inserted prior to the local promos. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing to this segment that would add any value to the show. It's Dan Severn. So, you know, that's why we didn't play the clip. But we have promos we are going to play. Buddy Landau cuts a promo about uh, what's going on at the time. And uh, we got the Super Bowl wrestling coming up. And him being a Smoking Mountain champion, leader of the militia. So let's go to that, shall we? Yes, let's do that. Speaking of the title, yeah. the heavyweight champion, the most prestigious title in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And the most prestigious. Brad Armstrong wants it. At Summer Blast, he ain't going to get it. Because if he retains this title, if Buddy Landell is able to reach this pinnacle and sustain it, and he will. then on August the 4th in Knoxville, he's going to get a shot at the World Wrestling Federation Intercontinental title. And, Buddy, that's the only mountain you've never climbed. Brad, you are a fine athlete, the toughest of the Armstrongs. But we have to be honest with each other and throw all the cards on the table and separate ourselves from the caliber of wrestlers that we are. You're a fine athlete, but I'm the Smoky Mountain heavyweight champion, which makes me the premier athlete in Smoky Mountain wrestling. As fine as you are, Brad Armstrong, you've never seen the day that you can beat Buddy Landell at Summer Blast or any other time. See, because I'm on that ladder the proverbial ladder of success. Uh, what you just heard with Cornette laughing kind of suddenly is that it appears he was trying not to break uh, when an invisible moth or something flew on camera. <laughs> yes. I'm assuming it was a moth because I, I can't think of what else would have been vi that visible as far as insects go. Yes. <laughs> look at that look on his face. And you or no one else is going to stop me from reaching my pinnacle. I've got illusions of grandeur. I'm going for the for the brass ring, baby. And I'm telling you something. I don't care if it's double. Illusions of grandeur and going for the glass ring. <laughs> He's rolling. That's like the Animal House. He's rolling. J. Jeff Jarrett, or whoever it is that's the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion, whoever it is, I don't care if it's Vince McMahon, his stinking self, <laughs> I am going to have this after Summer Blast on August the 4th in Knoxville, Tennessee, the town that I hold title deed to. I'm walking in the champion, and I'm walking out the Intercontinental Heavyweight Champion. Do you realize the money that I can make going between the WWF and here? Two titles, two paychecks. I'm the man, Brad. You're not. <laughs> and we got some militia business to attend to now. Just by the way, you know, Vince McMahon would look horrible, horrible wearing that belt. But you know what? You'd look even worse wearing one of his suits. <laughs> Take it away. Hi, Jimmy. Right. There you have it from Jim Corbin. And the militia all coming together at Summer Blast. And coming up right after this break, it's Boo Bradley squaring off with the Freebird, Terry Bam Bam Gordy. We'll be right back. I did not realize that was a promo in front of the crowd at first. Yeah. yeah. They don't really have a backdrop, and there's no crowd noise for most of it. Well, look at the size of the crowd. Oh, boy. <laughs> and yes, you can see where. Uh... Brooks Jensen looks just like his dad at this point in time, at the same point in time in their life. 
of course, if those don't know, Brooks Jensen in NXT is Ben Buchanan. Yes, Barry's Father. son. Barry's son, yes, who's here as the Punisher. Also, uh, Cornette not, just, not doing the best job blocking out that promo because uh, it minimized Bull, B- well, Barry Buchanan, Punisher's height way too much. Yeah. But, uh, good old Budrow. Always a good time with him. He's pumped up and great shape and everything, so uh, props yeah. to Bud Row there. Yes. All also, right. I mean, it is kind of a shame, though, that they finally they get uh, Brad Armstrong so late, and it's so late in the run of the company. But Yeah. All right, so next we get Mark Curtis as the, uh, the feud is getting hot and heavy with uh, USWA. So... Let's go to um, one Mark Curtis here talking about uh, his issues with Randy Hales. Is this the one with the skeleton? Well, we'll find out. Hey, referee Mark Yay. Curtis. And, of course, Mark, you've got a bout coming up with Vice President of USWA, Randy Hales. And I'm not going to ask who the skinny guy is. You tell me. That's Randy Hales. All right. Can you believe he's been out here telling everybody about how skinny I am, how small I am, how I have no physique, and how he's going to take care of me. He's a black belt in karate. He's been a championship weightlifter for the past 15 years. Well, look. Look at Randy Hales. Look how much he's been lifting weights or Look at that bicep. Well, I'll tell you what. Randy Hills, I've been working out with this dummy. And this dummy, believe me, I think weighs a little bit more than you do. And I think he may have been giving me just a little bit more of a put-up of a battle than you would. But I'll tell you what, Les. There's something that Randy Hills and these fans across the country don't know about me. I know a lot of things about Randy Hills. I get videotapes I watch. So I know what you can do and what you can't do. However, myself, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And for the past 10 years, I worked out at the Dominic Danucci School of Wrestling. And there have been a lot of great guys that came through there, Cactus Jack and Shane Douglas among two. And guys would come in from across the country and they work out with us. Well, I dreamed of always being a wrestler, but as you can tell, I'm not big enough. So, what I ended up doing was being the pra- the beat-up dummy, just like Bones here. Well, I've been suplexed on my head, I've been dropped over the top rope, I've had everything in the world that could happen to me has happened to me. And believe me, Randy Hills, what you gave me last week, by the time I got up, you were gone. I didn't get a chance to get even. But come Summer Blast and Knoxville, I am going to get even. And Randy Hills, you're not even going to look this good when I'm done with you, baby. Well, let's see what started this whole thing with Randy Hales. Let's go back to the tag match in Knoxville that got under Randy Hales' skin. Let's take a look. Off the road, J.C. Ice. Are we taking a look? Well, we can flip forward to the promo. Okay. Because I think Randy's promo's on here. And so you get the gist of it. Which, by the way, I like that Hildebrand... I mean, granted, he's probably never really done any babyface promos before. You can tell that he's trying not to sound too polished because he shouldn't sound too polished as a referee. No, yeah. Because he knows how to cut a promo. Oh, God, yes. But, and still a good promo, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. White boy in the southern boy. A 
apparently, Mark Curtis, you're stupider than I ever believed. Even after you found out the information about my credentials, that I'm a karate expert, that I'm a bodybuilder, that I'm registered with the FBI as a dangerous weapon, you still agree to this match in Knoxville. Well, let me promise you, on the 15th, Mark Curtis, the USWA vice president will beat the living, you know what, out of a goofy referee from a bogus organization called Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and that's a promise. <laughs> With me, General... There you go. Yeah. Ran- uh, good old Randy Hales promo. So, uh, Randy Lincoln now, Hales. Now, the thing is, is that we go to Memphis, and it's all reversed. But here's the thing we have with USWA this week on television. The television that's on YouTube that's dated July the 1st, 1995, has a lot of things differently than what we have here from the the Memphis Report. Oh, that was is the- that the episode that's mainly made up of footage from Night to Remember on the Louisville version? Oh, no, no, no. It's all studio stuff. Okay. But it's different stuff. I'm not lying. It's not stuff that aired the previous week in Memphis. That you have, what you have is you have you have the beginning here of stuff. Like like I'm I'm watching it now as we're talking. And, and this is the, the America One version or what? This is the syndicated version. No, but I'm so, saying, is it from America One or one of those things, or is it oh, from oh, the Loop? Oh, I don't know. It's from, it, but it's not in the Memphis Television Show. I tell you that, not the WMC. That's not online. But I'm looking at it now, and it, it has like the first part of, of what we're talking about, and then it shows, and then we have a, um, they have the Billy Jack Kings. All right, so I'll go ahead and read all what's happening. This is okay. the one that's listed as July 8th on YouTube. July 1st, Bix. Oh, it is listed as July 1st on YouTube. Okay, that's all right. So this is what we, I mean, this is what aired on on here. Okay, the opening match saw Brian Lee and Jimmy Harris, Jim Dodson, beat Ken Raper and Burkhouse Brown. And Lance Russell and Dave Brown talked about how anything happened to USWA at any time. And that's why the fans should miss a show, which segued into the Miss Off Coliseum show on the 26th, where Mr. World Class, Chip Mitten, faced TD Steele, and Big Van Vader ran out and beat both of them's ass, screaming for Hulk Hogan. This is the beginning of the Roadkill Tour, which, again, wasn't our week, but we had, you know, the promo talking about that on the Dungeon of Doom thing. Then we had the clip airing of the finish of Rock and Roll's PG-13 Todd vs. Tata match, which ended in no contest after three false finishes. At the end, JCIC hit Ricky Moore with a hubcap for the pin, but Smoky Mountain referee Mark Curtis ruled the decision invalid and argued with USWA's Randy Hales. Lance Russell interviewed Curtis and Rock and Roll Express, who talked about being treated unfairly in USWA about their rematch. Well, on the syndicated show, or Your America One show, there's a totally different thing. We have Lance in front of the blue screen and uh, where he's at the Missile Coliseum, and there's a separate there's separate promos, Rock and Rolls and Curtis from the Coliseum and PG thirteen from the studio, but with the USWA flag backdrop. So it was taped. Alright? So there's a difference there. So then we don't have that. Alright, next, something else we don't have. Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee talked about their eight-man stretcher match scouts from Millsap Coliseum on Monday. Clips aired of Billy Jack Haynes and Brian Crystal from the previous Monday. Uh, Haynes bled during the match. has become a rarity even on USWA cards. And then Haynes, where Haynes used brass knuckles to beat Chris for the USWA title. So then we have Haynes 
uh, beating Mr. Clyde on television. Oh, I forgot we had PG-13 over Gorgeous George III and the Grappler. So we have Haynes beating Mr. Clyde on TV, all right? Which which aired on the syndicate thing. After the match, Haynes attacked Clyde with a chair. Then Dundee, Harris, Lawler, and Lee all got involved and let the, and let the baby faces lay. Which does not air on the show that is on YouTube. All right? And then there's this, okay? During a subsequent Lawler interview, he talked about personal appearances he had come out of the Memphis area. The heels attacked him. Several Bayfaces made the save, including Sid Vicious, who was revealed to be Lawler's mystery partner in the big eight-man tag match at the Coliseum in Memphis. That doesn't air either. You know what they put in the spot? A Brian Christopher-Doug Gilbert match from some TV for the for the title. And then they close it out with uh, a match that also we don't have here where Ken Raper faced the Yellow Jacket. Yes. Great. That's Why? how different – this is like 1987 all over again. It's like they have the hot Smoky Mountain USWA feud, and it's resembling the rich Idol and Lawler feud, and that the TVs are are way different, the Memphis version and the and the other versions that went everywhere else, you know? Yeah, that's strange. But yeah, none of that Lawler stuff, the Sid stuff, because I wanted to use that Sid thing as a clip because I, you know, that was this him his babyface turn basically, and. uh yeah, not there. Oh, well. So anyway, no USWA clips, obviously. The promotion versus promotion feud resulted in Rock and Roll Express winning the USWA tag tops with PG-13 on July 3rd in Memphis before an estimated 1,400 fans. The match was having billed the, both the NWA belts from now the defunct Jim Crockett Dallas office and the USWA belts at stake with Randy Hales and Mark Curtis doing the referees. However, Hales was injured earlier in the show, and regular referee Bill Rush worked with Curtis. As Rush's bat was turned, Curtis hit Wolfie D over the head with the hubcap, counting the pinfall. Man of the show was a four-on-five stretcher match where Sid Vicious, Jerry Lawler, Brian Christopher, and Bill Dundee beat Doug Gilbert, Brian Lee, Jimmy Harris, Billy Jack Haynes, and Brandon Baxter. When take a guess who rode the stretcher. If you guess Baxter, give yourself a gold medal. All right, the rest of the show. What a show this is. This opening match is insane. Max Muscle and Johnny Rotten defeated Scott Studd and King Cobra. Sure. <laughs> Max Muscle, of course, being DDP's Max Muscle. Johnny Rotten, of course, being Sid's friend, Johnny Rotten. Um, King Cobra being King Cobra. King Cobra being King Cobra, yes. And uh, Friend of the show, yeah. uh, Scott Studd, yes. Yes. So there's that. Um, Brickhouse Brown over the Gambler, Uptown Karen over Susan Sapphire, Stephen Dunn over Mr. World Class, Chip Mitten, Tracy Smothers over Gorgeous George III by disqualification, Bill Dundee over Doug Gilbert, Billy Jack Haynes over Brian Christopher by disqualification, Rock and Rolls VPG 13 to win the, all the tag titles, Lawler retaining unified title being primetime Brian Lee, and then we have the handicap stretcher match. Lawler, Christopher, Dundee, and Sid over Doug, Billy Jack, Brian Lee, Jim Harris, Brandon Baxter. And um, I went ahead. I should have done this, I guess, when I did the notes. I went ahead to the next week's show. And let's let's play the finish of the uh, stretcher match, shall we? I'm sending you that right now. Okay. So at least we'll have, at least we'll have something clip-wise. For yeah, we don't have to. Oh, no. It's fun, though. Okay. It's fun. All right. Jumping from behind as we just saw right here. Brandon Baxter. Oh, I love that name. Well, I tell you, Brandon's run into all kind of trouble. 
tar and feather. He got involved in a stretcher match. We got a few foot, uh, feet of it. Let's take a look. Big Fritz is going to finish him off, Lance. Sid setting him up for that power bomb. Oh. Did he just call Sid Vicious Big Fritches? <laughs> well, he wore big britches, I guess. Powerbomb caught up! And Brandon Baxter shattered in the middle of his ring. You know how you know Sid's more comfortable at home in Memphis? That is the most careful I have ever seen him be with anyone giving <laughs> Brandon his powerbomb. Yeah, and it's Brandon, so he's not a trained wrestler, but yes. What's this other thing you're sending me? Just keep playing this. Okay. I feel sorry in a sense for the young guy, but his big mouth just loaded it up and he asked for it. In the air, another power bomb. Down he goes. Ooh, man. He busted him. One, two, three, 11.34. 11 minutes, 34 seconds. The winner. Dundee, Christopher, and Lawler. The loser of the stretcher match to be carried out, Brandon Baxter. All right. So it's just a match where you stretch them out after. Okay. Yeah. I love Sid's baby face in Memphis. What can I say? I thought it was very fun here. All right. So I, I wanted to play this because this is Mark Curtis cut the promo. From the next week's show, which is about what we talked about in the Coliseum. So we played him as in Smokey. Yeah. This is the contrast to what we saw in Smokey. So let's listen to this version of Mark Curtis in Memphis. I'm here to talk about the truth. The truth is the USWA has been the longest running organization around the world. Everybody knows that. I'm also here to talk about the truth. The truth is, is that Smoky Mountain Wrestling is the hottest promotion around. You should know that by now. You've seen the Rock and Roll Express come in as NWA Tag Team Champions, and you've seen me come in as the Troubleshooter Referee. Randy Hales has a problem with this. The problem with it is, is that Memphis is old and Smoky Mountain is young. You know what you do with the old stuff? Sooner or later it withers up and it dies. Well, Randy Hills, you saw what happened last time. With me, the fair and partial referee, right there in the middle of the ring, I counted a fair. One, two, three. And then the Rock and Roll Express became the USWA Tag Team Champions and the NWA Tag Team Champions. So I'll tell you what, I dare you, not only do I dare you, I double dog dare you, if you have the guts, I dare you to second PG-13, be in their corner, because I'm going to be in the Rock and Roll Express's corner. And if you accept that dare, which I think maybe you don't have the brains to do, but you may end up doing it anyway, if you get involved in this match, I prove to you what kind of a man I am. I prove to you that I am a world-class wrestler, that I am going to break your skinny arms if you get involved. Now, let's have the Rock and Roll Express explain their side of this story. You know, what you're looking at is the greatest tag team ever walked the face of the earth. Let me tell you something. Not only are we the world tag team champions, we went down to USWA, and what did we do? We walked away with this. So guys, anytime you want the Rock and Roll Express, just step on down. That's right. Give them the facts about PG-13. The fact is about PG-13. They Thanks, Andrea. Randy Hills. 
He thinks Randy Hill thinks they're the greatest tag team of all times. But remember one thing. We're coming back down there to defend these titles against you. And Randy Hill, I want you to know one thing. When we leave that arena, you and PG-13 will know what the walk of life is all about. By any means necessary. Oh, hey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, total difference. Yep. To total difference. I mean, he's Dr. Mark Curtis there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just wanted to get that contrast in there so people could hear the difference in the promos of Curtis. All right, uh, lots of people are raving about those Rock and Roll PG-13 matches around the circuit. Yeah, I mean, we do have one or two of them complete. I wish we had a lot more. Shame. But we don't. All right, the Torch from Evansville on July 5th. Gorda Store's third face Scott Studd, ending when Vader ran into the ring and attacked both men. The crowd went nuts as he threw chairs into the ring and powerbombed both wrestlers. He continued to throw chairs, numbering in the dozens. He eventually left, all while yelling at the WCW cameras, booming the seven for his roadkill tour segments. I love it. Then Tracy Smothers beat Brian Lee by DQ. Bill Dundee beat Doug Gilbert Brandon Baxter. Billy Jack beat Brian Christopher after use of brass knuckles. And PG-13 over Ricky Morton and Tracy Smothers. That's an interesting team considering what's about to happen. Because Robert couldn't make it. According to all reports, Billy Jack is much better at projecting himself as a heel than any regular they've had in the circuit in a while. Oh, yes. I remember watching this and when, I, when, when Billy Jack first came in and just like, my God. Why wasn't he doing this character before? He's fantastic at it. Who knows? You know? Yeah. I mean, he is so great as a heel here. And then when he leaves, so he's just great. gone from wrestling again. Yeah. All right, now let's go to Deep South Wrestling. June 28th in Philadelphia, Mississippi on a TV taping. We have Kurt Von Himmler of a Randy Tucker. Rainbow Brown or a Billy the Kid. Greg Valentine over Gary Nations. One of the future humongouses. Sam Houston and Tracy Smothers over Jethro and Randy Rhodes. Dirty White Boy over Mike Jackson. Yeah, how about that? Scott Studd over, uh, it says the kid. I guess Billy the Kid. Disco Inferno over Jim Jones. We'll say what his real name is listed as. Glenn Gilberni. No, Glenn Gilbernetti. Gil Gil Gilbernetti, yes. yes. Uh, Dick Murdoch over Jethro. Mr. Wrestling 3. Not uh, uh, Steve Carino or nobody like that. Dusty Wolf and the Rude Dog over uh, Jackson and Tucker. Then we have Demolition Axe over Gary Nations. Dirty White Boy over uh, Rainbow Brown. Scott Stud over Gary Nations. Tracy Smothers over Kurt Von Himmler. Then we have uh, Brown over Tucker. Rude Dog and Nasty Boy Ken Massey over the Alabama Boys. Cousin Luke no. over Randy Rhodes by disqualification. And Greg Valentine over Sam Houston in your main event. Cousin Luke! <laughs> 1995 Deep South against Randy Rhodes. <laughs> sure. Oh my god. And uh, you want to see some of this? Uh, I think there was already a little on YouTube, but now more has been going up on uh, the Armstrong Alley YouTube channel. Yeah, Ben's putting it up, but he, he's, he's still like in April or May right now, so we'll see. But this aired on America One. I remember seeing this too with the USWA and Smokey. I never, I never taped it though. I, Half hour TV spend, show. Yeah, when my brother had it on tape, I just watched it, but I never transferred it over. Mm. I kind of regret it now, but eh, of of the two warring promotions, mid the new Mid South seemed to be the better of the two anyway. 
Yeah. It's an interesting story. AWF wrestling announcer Ken Resnick got himself a part as a government agent in the movie Men in Black with Jack Scalia. Apparently, Resnick was at a video software dealer convention in Dallas. It was asked to escort famous guest jeans model Anna Nicole Smith, and they guess that people somehow noticed him as well. What? <laughs> Let's go over that again. Ken Resnick... <laughs> Ken Resnick was at the VSDA convention <laughs> in Dallas, somehow got asked to accompany Anna Nicole Smith somewhere on the floor, and people involved with the casting of Men in Black thought he made a good Secret Service agent? <laughs> I hear you typing. You're checking to see if he was in there, aren't you? What do you think I'm doing? Of course. <laughs> uh, okay, I have to use some quotes here because Google is not looking for the right thing if I don't put any of this in quotes. But, I mean, would anyone know what Men in Black is yet at this point? With Jack Scalia. Who's Jack Scalia? You remember Jack Scalia, Bix? Um, Jack, Jack Scalia was an actor. Um... He's oh, soap opera. it's not Men in Black. Oh, what is it? Okay, it is from Googling the names together. It is a movie named The Silencers that may originally have been called Men in Black. Ah. But you, but Because yeah. when does Men in Black come out? 1996. But, you know, the thing about Jack Scalia, Vix, what, Jack, what? Jack Scalia was a star of a TV show involving another prominent professional wrestler. Hmm. What? Tequila Bonatti. Oh, okay. All right, the silencers. Let's look at this here. Well, I'm reading a... Oh, oh, man, Bix. Special Agent Rafferty has thrown into a maelstrom of action and intrigue when he identifies a mysterious alien race who are on a mission to invade Earth. Well, I'm reading a review here on bulletproofaction.com, and under familiar faces we have... As a longtime fan of professional wrestling, I recognized two familiar faces in the silencers. First was Ken Resnick, who had a brief run in the WWE as an announcer in 1996, excuse me, 1986-97. I know who you're going, know where you're going next. Resnick played Agent Longo, a member of Rafferty's team, who ends up uh, having a brief run. Terry Polk, who yep. wrestled for years as Terry Powers power, prior to joining WWE during the Attitude Era. Played General Greenborough's assistant, Mariam. General Greenborough was played by Clarence Williams III, Link from Mod Squad. Okay. Yes. U.S. Senator is assassinated by Men in Black, a mysterious organization which suppresses all knowledge about UFOs. Agent Raffrey from the Secret Service will confront them and dis discover the sinister truth. Holy shit. That's very interesting. This I'm came out April 23rd, 1996. When did Men in Black come out? Men in Black came out 1997. It came out uh, ba -ba 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 -ba, July 2nd, 1997. Ooh. I'm trying to see, because I'm not sure where you look on the current IMDb interface. I'm curious if there was an alternate titles section on the, on the silencers, though. Huh. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's... We have also known as it just says silencers. Well, how about that, huh? 
Um, yeah, depending on the country, it's either some variation of the silencers or silencers. Although Germany, it was dark force. Uh, <laughs> Brazil anyway. was uh, Pro Proxima Conquista. Okay. All right. So uh, what a wild story that is. It must have been called Men in Black at some point, right? Yes, had to be. Since this is a real movie, so. And there's Men in Black that is organization in the movie, so. Yes. All right, T.C. Martin's NWC debuts on television in Las Vegas on KFBT, Channel 33, every Saturday afternoon, starting this coming weekend at noon, replacing WF Wrestling Challenge in the market. I'm sure that'll well, end well. Well, Challenge is about to go off the air anyway, so. Well, not exactly. It is. No, they stopped doing the original version of Wrestling Challenge with the original matches, and they keep a show called WWF Challenge that is a recap show that replaces it and Spotlight. A lot of places did not air that. No, I know. I'm saying they mostly... So, that's what I'm saying. Challenge was done when it was done. You're, I mean, you want to go technical, we'll go technical, but... When it was done, it was done. That's why when uh, Shotgun well, showed up, Shotgun's initial daytime version was Shotgun Challenge. Yeah, so... Because it replaced we'll that version of Challenge. We'll talk more about that as we go along. So. Mm -hmm. All right. The Wrestling Insiders radio show hosted by Mike Tanay, of which Dave was frequently a guest on, is back in limbo. The show had been airing Sunday mornings on the financially plagued sports radio network. This past week, the one-on-one -on -one network out of Chicago purchased SRN. There was no show this past weekend, and Tanae is meeting with a new network about whether they'll pick up the wrestling show or not. The upside is that the show is picked up. The new network is much larger, which means far more exposure. The downside is that this is the same network that bought out the previous radio network, Tanae's show appeared on, when that network fell to financial difficulty. At that point, I thought to pick up the show. Tanae brings a much stronger sponsorship deal with WCW to the table in these negotiations. Okay. Macon had a one-on-one -on -one sports... Uh, radio affiliate down there. Make it would not air my today's show. Um, I remember being very pissed about that. Um, but yeah, they, they would not air it. And uh, I eventually was able to wiggle the radio around and I picked it up from somewhere, barely, on, on the AM dial. So I was able to listen to some shows. But yeah, I remember all this happening. He was he ended up on one on one, but it was not long. So, but it was on Sunday, Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, something like that. So, yeah, I've never heard anything of it. Um, I know he still has tapes of it. I know various people who would like to get their hands on it on them, but nothing yeah. do unless I heard. Yeah. All right, and I love this story we're about to talk about now. So what will end up being the largest paid crowd to witness pro wrestling in North America in 1995? This is a trick question. Yeah, so, as I was saying, it's a question. WrestleMania? Forget about it. Triple in Los Angeles? Not a chance. SummerSlam? No way. How about a group of small-time California wrestlers who performed for more than 30,000 fans at Lollapalooza in Seattle on July the 4th? Incredibly Strange Wrestling was booked as one of the acts on the show. Which included Southern California Indies Vandal Drummond, Kurt Brown, Physical Nuclear, Jeff Larson, and more. They believe this all stemmed from a bar show in San Francisco about a month back, put on by Johnny Legend, who has a music and wrestling background. It was kind of a concert and really weird wrestling show, which included characters like The Rapist, The Abortionist with a coat hanger as his gimmick, 
And the female ballet who takes off her panties and rubs him in the face of her knocked-out charge to revive him. Anyway, as luck would have it, someone saw this and booked the really bizarre wrestling whose angles are so politically incorrect they make ECW look like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood for three Lollapalooza concerts. Next two are August 14th, Los Angeles, and August 18th in Mountain View, California. The Seattle Post-Intelligence story on the event included one or two paragraphs on the wrestling aspect and one nice-sized picture of a match with a wrestler called Cletus the Fetus. <laughs> Incredibly strange wrestling, Bix. Yes. Um, the Johnny Legend version. Although, the panties gimmick is J.R. Benson, right? Um, yeah. I think J.R. Benson and Brenda. So this is, there's some involvement to the Northern California folks here, too. Uh, I don't remember. Did they have the rapist? I uh, think so. Okay. <laughs> Something that could not happen today. Incredibly strange wrestling. I think you'd be more likely to have the abortionist and some of that. Yeah, he'd be a today. baby. He'd be a baby face. <laughs> I don't know if you'd have the today. I don't think you could have the pro life pro choice connection. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, Johnny Legend. <laughs> Cletus the fetus. Wait, were you not aware of Cletus the fetus? No, I was. I just love saying Cletus the fetus. I'm not sure what Cletus the fetus actually looked like. Oh my goodness. Well, we close at this with somebody who uh, would not have probably been a fan of incredibly strange wrestling. Jim Helwig is up at his wrestling school in Scottsdale, Arizona. Apparently, Helwig has gained the rights to use the name Ultimate Warrior once again because the brochure says the school is owned and operated by WF Superstar Ultimate Warrior. Quotes on the brochure said, fact, in 1975, actually it was 1985, but if you remember the trial, Helwig rarely admits he has trouble remembering things that's happened in the past week, let alone 10 years ago. I entered the world of pro wrestling knowing nothing of it, and no one via camp taught a relative unknown. In 1992, I retired a multi-millionaire. Fact. Success pro wrestling depends on more on desire and unique individuality and entertainment and ability than it does on technical wrestling knowledge. That was a direct quote from there. 1975, huh, Bix? <laughs> Is that like Undertaker spiking Hulk Hogan on the concrete in Detroit in 1974? <laughs> yes, I know there's wrestlers' timeline issues, but sometimes it gets out of hand. I, I think you would realize you had not started wrestling 20 years earlier. <laughs> That 10 would be the correct answer. Oh, my God. And, of course, no, he does not have the rights to the name yet. Oh, my God, warrior. But, yes, this is the start of Ultimate University. And uh, I think, as we said before, the only person that we know that actually graduated would be uh, eventual Memphis Power Pro star Lance Jade. And who knows where he is these days? Who knows? And now let's close out with the World Wrestling Federation. And we start in the courtroom. They filed suit on June 28th against Matt, against Matt Osborne, 37, the original Doint the Clown. Titan is asking a federal judge to order Osborne, who now lives in Elwood City, Pennsylvania, to stop using the Doint name and gimmick on independent shows. According to the lawsuit, Osborne, who was better known in his pre-Doint days as second-generation wrestler maniac Matt Bourne, had promised Titan he would stop appearing as Doik, but had refused to put that in writing. 
Titan is claiming trademark infringement because Osborne appeared as Doink and among other places, April 21st in Elwood City, on March 17th at Plum High School near Pittsburgh. Titan attorney Jeremy Devitt, who was quoting an article in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, said Titan would go to court if necessary against anyone using the Doink name and gimmick, which is probably the most popular name used by millions on the independent scene right now. Titan is asking a federal judge to order Osborne to stop using the joint naming gimmick and to account for all the monies he may have earned since leaving Titan using the gimmick. Osborne's two recent arrests may have played a part in Titan's timing, although there have been rumors of this action dating back before Osborne's first arrest. In May, Osborne was arrested on charges of criminal mischief and disorderly conduct for vandalizing a car. On June 13th, he was charged with domestic abuse from a dispute with his girlfriend and jailed in Elwood City and released two days later on a $1,000 bond. The arrest actually stemmed from officers going to Osborne's home to investigate a traffic violation and found him in the midst of the dispute. In the AP follow-up story, Osborne was quoted as saying he hit his girlfriend because she was seeing another man. We got into it, and I slapped her. It's embarrassing for me. I never slapped a woman before. This guy was arrested. People think, oh, that's Titan's character, said McDevitt in the Pittsburgh newspaper story. Titan is very concerned about the image of his wrestlers. Oh, I'll say. That's part of the reason you don't want people using your trademark, because it dilutes the meaning of your trademark. And, I mean, Jeremy Devitt, this is kind of home base for Jeremy Devitt anyway, so that, that makes it stand out even more for him to be on the radar of this. You know, is that so, the Pittsburgh uh, area, or is it just Pennsylvania? I think he's Western Pennsylvania, isn't he? No, he is, but is the well, place where Bourne is living. I mean, Yes, yes. Okay. And I looked at, I read that article in the Pittsburgh Post Intelligencer, and I mean, Days basically got the main every everything from that article, pretty much. So there wasn't anything extra I saw in there yeah. that uh, to add with this. But uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on all this? I also find it highly doubtful that this this was the first time that Matt Bourne had ever hit a woman, though. Too. Uh, yeah, possibly. Hate to say that, but I mean, he has a he has a track record. If we know he's going to kidnap them and do other things, um, well, that, and that was a decade earlier, basically, twelve so, years earlier. Yeah, so yeah, um, I think they're in their rights to do this, especially after the arrest. Oh yeah, and it's their, I mean, it's Doink is their gimmick. That they've so, continued I mean, to use with someone else in the gimmick, yeah. Exactly, yes. So they're well within their rights to do this. Legally. Yes. Um, I think there was a Wire story, too. I don't think there's anything different in it. But yeah, there's a UPI story. Let me just skim it real quick. Uh, yeah, it's basically the same stuff. Yeah. So there you go. Matt Bourne. More stuff involving him. Raw, let's go to the torch. Raw on July 3rd, a very uneventful Raw, was taped on June 26th in Danville, Pennsylvania. Opened with footage of the Savio Vega-Jeff Jarrett Jarrett match from last week and the conversations with Shawn Michaels and the roadie. Vince said they would show what happened last week after they went off the air. Jerry Lawler said he would be introducing his dentist friend. 1-2-3 kid beat Mike Bell. McMahon made fun of Lawler stuffing the drink mouthwash and accused Lawler of having bad breath. Top Pettengill announced Diesel would face Sydney in a Lumberjack match. He then announced that Lumberjacks, they then showed Jeff Jarrett at last week's Raw, went off the air challenging Michaels in the ring and agreeing to a match with Michaels. 
Michaels put on Jarrett's IC title and fended off the attack by Jarrett and Rody. Pedgill announced that the kid would face a roadie, and Elias Powers would face Owen and Yokozuna for the In Your House show. Before the With My Baby Tonight music video by Jeff Jarrett made its Raw debut, which was not the debut debut. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Lawler told me, man, he'll need a spatula to take the egg off his face and see how good this video is. The video then aired, and it would fit on country music television. It's well produced, and Jarrett's pretty good. At this point, it's tough to tell where this gimmick is going. We'll have more on this later. Bob Holly beat Steve Lombardi, Brooklyn Brawler. Lawler continued to gloat over how good the music video was. Then we have Henry Godwin beat Barry Horowitz. Lawler and Man talked about how Godwin's feud out and bombed throughout the bout. Well, talked about the feud throughout the bout. Barry, the baseball guru, Barry Dodinsky, pulled T-shirts as Sid made his ring entrance. Ted DiBiase motioned for Godwin to re- retain at ringside. On his way to the ring, Bigelow encountered Godwin and had a brief brawl with him. So I mentioned to the match, Bigelow caught Sid's big boot aimed for his face. Bigelow did try for an insecurity, but Sid ducked. Sid didn't know Bigelow with a boot to the face, hit his target. Moments later, with Sid on the mat, Bigelow went from the top rush splash, but Godwin knocked him off the ropes. Sid covered him for the pin. Sid then powerbombed Bigelow after the match. So that's basically your main event, so to speak. And they're, they're teasing Godwin joining with uh, the Million Dollar Corporation, which we don't know how that would end up. Then a well-produced video piece aired on the Special Olympics, including a clip of Diesel saying the Special Olympics are the superior form of sports because it's not about commercial timeouts or endorsements. We'll have more on that later on as well. And the real main event of the show, Waylon Mercy, defeated Jeff Hardy. Mercy shook the referee's hand, but after the match, my man said, what a con, man. Then we get Lawler sitting in Isaac Yankum's dentist's office and told a young boy that Yankum has great dentist equipment except for the drill. The kid told Lolly at bad breath. Yanked him. Yanked him then walked out of the office and smiled, revealing horribly crooked and decayed teeth. Well, the Yankum, we, we don't have this Yankum promo because a different one aired on syndicated. So, but again, it's, it's more the visual on this one. McMahon plugged next week's main event to Tonka and Godwin against Allah Powers. The show goes with a replay of Godwin interfering in the Sid Bigelow match. Comments. Kid squash, Lawless commentary, the Jarrett video, and Yankum skit were all pretty good. The show overall wasn't that memorable. Just a strong week in the WF type show from Wade. Oh, yes, the days went raw. You know, just, they could just do whatever they wanted to do. You know, because they had no competition, which would soon change. Yep. And also, uh, I mean, granted, Superstars wasn't that loaded up angles wise. Although, wait, was Superstars July yet this week? Yeah, because yeah, the Saturday mm-hmm. was. So, July this 1st. is the beginning of July sweeps then. So, were there any competitive matches on Superstars? Uh, not really. Okay, so, well, it's the least important sweeps. Uh, Raw did a 2.7, which ended the four-month streak of being over 3.0 every week. Although Sid Bigelow was a marquee match, the holiday weekend did a number on the ratings, as Action Zone did a 1.7, and Mania did a 0.9. All right, they take the challenge and Action Zone in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, on June 28th. Savio beat Mabel in a dark opener. Bigelow won a squash after which Tatanka attacked him. Then you had squash matches won by the Roadie, Hakushi, 1-2-3-Kid, Rad Raffer, Bob Holly, Jean-Pierre Lafitte, Duke Drosy and Yokozuna and Har. Howard Finkel interviewed Jim Cornette regarding In Your House Tat on a match. Smoking Guns beat Rody and Jeff Jarrett a good bout. Ending when Billy Gunn rolled up Jarrett as he went for the figure four. Jarrett doing the pinfall. Doing the pin job there. How about that? Uh, Savio won a squash. Bear Horwitz scored a TV victory over Body Donna Skip with Sonny. 
The pinfall was clean and may have set up a feud between the two. It does. Man Mountain Rock, who thanks to a technical error was exposed as just playing air guitar to his music, was booed by the fans that he wanted to squash. Oh, yeah, that get you booed, you know? When you're supposed to be portrayed as playing it live there in the arena, and then something happens and you ain't playing. Oh. Even more so with someone who we know can legitimately play electric guitar well. Yes. While and Mercy won a squash match. Then Double J saw him play, and the fans seemed stunned that it was as good as it was. Ally Powers won a squash, after which Yoko and Owen attacked them. That began an impromptu tag match, ending with the Ally Powers scoring a count of victory. Well, the mission was interviewed by Doc Hendricks regarding facing Razor and Vega in your house. The Blue Twins, Magnificent Maurice. Maurice. Spelled by him from the USWA, which was not his name here. Comma, Henry Godwin and, and Waylon Mercy won squashes. Then we had Hunter Humsley pinning Barry Horowitz, at which Skip attacked Horowitz. And in the dark main events, Diesel pinned Sid in five minutes. Diesel got the pop of the night, including a parcel standing ovation. Sid did nothing but pound on Diesel. Diesel scored a clean win after the boot to the face. Oh, I bet the fans were ready for Diesel to come out by the end of this show, huh? <sighs> yeah, it's a time of change in the WF at this point in time. So, that's all you can really say about that. Yeah. Um, so, is Horowitz wins at the next taping? No, he won on this one. Okay, I, I glossed over it then. When you were reading it, wait, did they not make a big deal out of it, though? Yeah, they made a big deal about it. I mean, in the newsletter part. This is way. Okay. I mean, that's why he just, just talked about being a part of an angle. Yeah. I, I, I get what you're, yeah, it just it didn't make it a big deal, so I just didn't, it kind of went one ear out the other. Okay. Yeah. All right, uh, the head shrinkers have been broken up. Fatu is getting a new gimmick with the same name. Now being from San Francisco, which is a shoot. As a street gang type of guy telling kids to stay in school and not use drugs. Sure. Making a difference. Yes. Tony Norris and Rico Suave, the Texas Indy, not the former Puerto Rico manager, are getting tryouts at the Texas tapings. And Tony Norris gets signed. Ahmed Johnson. Or as Vince would say, Ahmed Johnson. Yep. The reason they are switching from three tapings a week to two starting next month is they'll be adding an hour to each taping. They'll also be filming the B-Shows, Action Zone and Challenge, with more repeated material from the Raw and Superstar show. Basically a cost-cutting measure. Mm-hmm. So there it is. The only big house show the weekend, this is from the torch, ended up being in Baltimore in front of an estimated 4,500 fans. 3,000 paying $47,000. The car was said to have been taught with what might have been the worst cage match of all time. Diesel pin Sid, which was one of the negatives of the match. Since they have cage matches in through escaping the cage. The match only lasted five minutes. Sid attacked Diesel for the bell, and after he threw a kick in the punch, which exposed his entire offensive repertoire for the match, Sid threw Diesel to the side of the cage, and it barely like contact was made. And that was apparent from the correspondent seated in the upper deck. At one point, Sid tried to leave the ring, but Diesel grabbed him by the leg. Sid just, then just stood up, walked back to center ring, ran to the cell, and struggled to escape. Ted DiBiase actually entered the cage, which in and of itself breaks the mystique of cages keeping wrestlers in and interference out. Well, imagine these people watching 2022 cage matches. And hit Diesel. The ref got him out of the cage. Diesel then hit him with a boot into the face and scored the pin. That, too, looked weak. 
After the pinfall, Sid got up in classic Sid style, nonchalantly, as if nothing happened, and walked out of the cage. The fans were visibly disappointed in the finale. The reports on another car said it was just as bad. Skip pinned Doink. Lunger Blaze pinned Burfa Faye to retain the women's title. Smoking Guns beat the Blues, what was said to be the best match of the night, but still only average. Moe from Middle of Michigan pinned one, two, three Kid, which surprised the fans. After which Kid sold a netbreaker finisher for several minutes and had to be held from the ring, although he appeared healthy the next day at the charity event. Bigelow pinned Jumpy at the feet, replacing King Kong Bundy, who's gone. Jeff Jarrett over Adam Bond, the retained IC title when Rhodey interfered. Hunter Hemsley of Aldo Montoya. Savio over Mabel by DQ and Moe shoved Vega off the top rope. And Yoko and Owen Hart managed by Mr. Fuji beat the Allied Powers. No match other than the Guns and the Blues are said to be above two stars. Ooh, this sounds horrible. It is so odd to have a WF cage match with no leaving the cage finish picks. In this era, yeah. And instead just doing sit shit. Yes. At least the fans got to witness the winner joins the click match. <laughs> yeah. Good lord. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Baltimore fans were pissed off on this one. Absolutely. It's a WCW coming to town, I tell you that. Alright, in regards to your next In Your House show in Nashville on July 23rd, two matches have changed in regard to the local hype. The Bam Bam Bigelow King Kong Bundy match wasn't announced on TV this past weekend. It may have been dropped since Bundy's out of action of late. Apparently from pneumonia. And he's gone. Brett's support of the show has been twitched. Brett was supposed to work Hakushi. It was then changed to Jean-Pierre Lafitte. And then he ends up how not being on the pay-per-view. Yeah. So how different do you think it would have been if one of these matches would have been on the show? <laughs> it's already a good pay-per-view. Um, yeah. One would have made it worse. One would have made it even better. I'm trying to remind myself what the dark matches are in this show. Uh, okay, they do do Brett Lafitte as a dark match on this show, so it does happen. It wasn't on the it wasn't on television show. Yeah. Yes, your dark matches were uh, Skip Aldo as the pre-show, and then your post-show matches were Brett uh, PCO and Undertaker Kama in a casket match. Also, on the show will be Jeff Jarrett, Shawn Michaels for IC title, Jarrett doing a live concert of the song in the video. Apparently, there'll be a screw-up with the lip-syncing to reveal it's really Rhodey who's doing the singing, as in the video, where's Rhodey's voice and Jarrett lip-syncing. That was the plan. Rhodey versus 1-2-3-Kid, and Owen and Yoko Zoom defending the tag titles against Davey Boy and Lex Luger. That was the plan! <laughs> so, Alright, let's go to the clips. Jerry Lawler makes his first appearance at Dr. Isaac Yankum's office. So, let's watch how that went down. Although, at this point, from the way Lawler says it, he's Dr. Isaac Yankum. Yes. Not Yankum. Yankum. You might think this is funny, McMahon, but it's not. I can assure you, there is nothing humorous about this. Do you know what I mean? Oh, gosh. I want to tell you something. Ever since last night, I have been trying to get this stitch, this smell, out of my mouth. I thought I had terminal halitosis. Bret Hart, I'll give you credit. Your feet are the smelliest there was, the smelliest there is, and the smelliest there'll ever be. I've even had to come here to my good friend, <laughs> Dr. Isaac Yankum, DDS, and he's been working for the past hour and a half on my mouth, and it's not there yet. Wait a minute. <laughs> 
Sarge. You have not seen the last of me. I want to tell you something. You're going to pay for this. I promise you. You are going to pay for what you did to me at King of the Ring. And my good friend, as I said, Dr. Isaac. <laughs> Yankum. Yankum, excuse me. DDS has promised me, once he saw what you did to me, that he is going to extract some revenge himself. Because you see, Bret Hart, before he became the world's greatest dentist, he was also the world's greatest wrestler under an assumed name. And now, after he saw my mouth, my mouth that used to be so clean, and my breath was as fresh as baby's breath, but now, inside my mouth, he sees plaque, and he sees tartar, and he sees, he sees gingivitis, and I got a canker sore over here you wouldn't believe. Well, let me tell you something, Fred Hart. He promised me that he is going to come back to the WWF and drill his way to the top. And he's going to start with you. And he's going to extract each and every one of your rotten teeth with his big right hand. Bret Hart, Dr. Isaac Yankum, DDS, is going to practice anything but painless dentistry with you. Do you understand? Oh, is it working? Give me that. Give me that. Oh. You're gonna get it, Bret Hart. I promise you've not heard the last of the king on this. Unbelievable, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Easy. The best part about that is the uh, the sounds coming from the office or something. Yes. <laughs> no, now, we, do we think the wrestled elsewhere under an assumed name thing was a concession to Cornette asked for? I mean, it's possible because that's not usually how they handle this kind of thing. No, Sarah. No, and Lawler trying to fit in all the puns he could on that. So, all right. Well. The big moment for the week in WWF was the debut of With My Baby Tonight. We're not going to play the whole thing, obviously, but uh, we're going to play the first bit of it. And, uh, yeah, let's let's see how this played out when it made its uh, WWE television debut. Double J could be singing the blues, ladies and gentlemen, in Nashville. He coughs up the title of Shawn Michaels. But speaking of Double J singing, stand by. Here we go. Now, don't expect a whole heck of a lot here, Doc. Oh, yes, Because I don't great. think he can sing it all. Here it is. The musical debut of the world premiere with my baby tonight. Yeah.
All right. Um, it's still to this day one of the greatest videos the WWE has ever produced. Yes, and even though there are other things I know he's more proud of as a musician, like the Hakushi theme, in terms of creating something that sounds like it could play on the radio, you could, let me rephrase that, like you could hear it on the radio, this is the crowning achievement of Jim Johnson's time in WWE. Yes. Yeah, that was a hell of a uh, hell of a video. Yes, and now in 2022, it's stupidly obvious that that's Brian James's voice. Well, but yes. nobody at the time had ever really heard Brian James speak. Mm-hmm. And when we eventually hear Jeff sing, his singing voice isn't that different from Brian's. It's close Not enough. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, is that um. I mean, what was said there, you know, we said earlier earlier in the segment about how this looked like a video that could air on, on country television. Mm-hmm. They're not lying. <laughs> I mean, this video could have aired on country music television. If I remember right, Jeff mentioned um, on his podcast when they were talking about this era that he did think it was a problem that they didn't try to push it out more to the legit country music world. And he's right. The thing, the thing is, is that um, it would have been interesting that they would have done that and then he, him leaving like he did. <laughs> oh, since the country music, it's just Jeff Jarrett, right? I, I wonder if that's why they didn't. That's probably why. Because they didn't want to put it out there with the wrong person on it. Mate, I wonder if they were planning on doing more with it once they shot the angle. Yeah. That would actually make sense. Yeah. But I've never heard anyone suggest that before. But... Has yeah, to be why. That's why. It has to be why. Absolutely. Yeah. WW, WWF hates false advertising. We all know that. So. Oh, absolutely. But, yeah, fantastic video. But there's another video that aired that uh, kind of irked Dave Meltzer, and this is what we're close with. Dave for another segment this weekend with the wrestlers hanging around this, with the Special Olympics. Everyone understands why they're doing it. By doing it, I don't mean why they send wrestlers to things like this, because good intentions may very, very well be part of the reason. But the minute they show it on television, it shows the prime reason is to get the wrestlers and the company over by using these situations to their benefit. But when you stop and think about it, it's really pathetic. Here's the thing with this one in particular, more than anything else. WWF WWE has always been involved with the Special Olympics and still to this day heavily involved with the Special Olympics. I don't think that this is any type of deal with that. that well, there's, there's no ongoing scandal at the time or no. anything, too. But they are always involved with them. Right. Well, I wrote an article. I forget which. It was maybe... St- might have been one of the warrior ones that talked about the Stephanie line about philanthropy as the new PR or whatever. Um, whatever you want to say about how they use their charitable endeavors on TV now, and particularly how they use Coleman and that stuff, or, you know, at times like, you know, in 92 to 94 when they're using it as, you know, scandal repellent or whatever. That company over the past, you know, almost 40 years or whatever, has put so much more back into the Special Olympics and Make-A-Wish than they've ever taken out in PR value. Mm-hmm. And I, I specify those two. 
Yes. Because there has never been any indication that the interest in and involvement with those two charities was anything less than genuine on their part. And knowing people that's dealt with them directly in that yes. has always put put over how great they are in handling all that stuff. Yes. So let's do it, watch the video, and then uh, we'll see what, what Dave's talking about here. Action, the world's largest sporting event, ladies and gentlemen, taking place this weekend, the Special Olympic World Games. 7,000 athletes will participate. The 1995 Special Olympics World Games will emanate from New Haven, Connecticut, and the World Wrestling Federation... Well, there's your reason that they're doing the video this time. Mm-hmm. Connecticut. Mm-hmm. ...will be there. WWF superstars will proudly assist the 7,000 athletes from 141 different countries as they compete in a week-long competition. For over a decade, the World Wrestling Federation and the Special Olympics have worked together at ceremonies, fundraisers, and competitions throughout the world. Just recently, in fact, Special Olympian Kathy Huey sang America the Beautiful at WrestleMania 11. The WWF is a proud participant in the 1995 Special Olympic World Games, and we'd like to wish all the athletes good luck. Yes, we invite everyone, ladies and gentlemen, to take a ride up to New Haven, Connecticut, and participate as all the WWF superstars will in the Special Olympic World Games this weekend and all week long. Nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> no, and also... I think this is the first time they've ever done a Special Olympics piece on their television. I think it may have been, yes. They may have talked about it in passing, and you'd occasionally see articles or quotes where it's used to defend the company, their work with the Special Olympics, or def and not to def defend, not from heavy criticism, from blah blah pro wrestling type criticism. But it's only the last few years now, in 2022 that they've actually really emphasized it on TV. And you know what, though? Of all the ones you're going to do, it's the one where the people involved seem to be getting the most out of it anyway. Mm -hmm. So, what's the harm? And, and again, and it's just, they've been doing it forever. You know, Stephanie is heavily involved in it today. I mean, there's, it means forever. It's always been something that they've done. Randy Savage, if I remember right, was heavily involved both through and independent of the WWF. Yeah. Like, he did a lot on his own, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I get the skepticism considering who this, who it is, but sometimes you have to, you know, you know, call a spade a spade, you know, and say that they, this is legit. They're legit here. This is not some bullshit. And it's, again, in, it's Connecticut. in Connecticut. Yes. Yes. So, and Vince was out there trying, telling people to come out and support him. You know? Yes. On a national broadcast. Yes. New, and, and on all of them, because it happened on Raw, too, as we talked about. So, yeah. But anyway. All right. That is it for us this week. Next week on Between the Sheets, we have a Patreon-requested show. Always uh, always interesting shows, and this one is no different. As next week, we'll go back to the year 2000 
in a show requested by Sean Dickinson. And yes, that means Bash at the Beach 2000. And no, this and, will not be a four-part show like uh, our friends Jack and JP did recently. No, no. Last Fan, you know, did their thing. And we're uh, not going that in-depth, although we're going pretty in-depth as WCW sections over half the show. But uh, we'll have a lot of we'll have Dave and Wade uh, with a lot of thoughts on what happened on that show. Mainly, of course, the Hulk Hogan, Vince Russo stuff. And what's going to be the aftermath. Wade goes really in-depth on that and what he thinks could happen. And how to tell if this was a shoot or a work. So we have, we'll have news on that. And we have all the other WCW news, Nitro and Thunder and all that craziness that's going on during that week. Then we got uh, Japan. We'll talk about all stuff going on in Japan. Then we have uh, some Mexico and the U.S. Indies. A lot of that stuff's truncated because of the length of the show. So not a whole lot of results, but we'll have the main stuff we'll be talking about. Then and we'll have ECW, which takes up a lot, too, as they had a Big TV taping in Poughkeepsie, New York, featuring a surprise appearance by Bob Backlund backstage. And uh, the UCW Arena show the next night where Raven pretty much had his swan song there. So we'll talk about that. And in World Wrestling Federation, we'll have Raw, SmackDown, and a major advertiser pulling out of WF television. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. No guest because it's going to be a long show. And... uh we just want to make sure we get it done in the proper amount of time. And we're going to have two Patreon shows following it with Patreon, with patrons as guests. So, uh, yeah. So, no guests next week. Anyway, that's it for us this week, Fix. Thanks, as always, to the rock of the show. And this is Chris saying so long from the Peach State of Georgia.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets Patreon Special Edition number 69. Ha, ha, ha. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, it's time for round three of Titan Gate, the 92 version, not the 2022 version, although... I've already had people on Twitter telling me that they're they're wanting to request this week in ten years for the sh- the, the the main show. So, oh, that's something I look forward to. But anyway, uh, here we are. It's time to delve back in time thirty years to uh, talk about stuff that is ringing hollow even more today. The uh, post wrestling and WrestleNomics endorsed uh, Titan Gate series. We should say too, especially after absolutely. Yes, we all definitely want to uh, thank. John and Way and Brandon for uh, doing that, and uh, an honor for them to put us over like that. We appreciate that, and yeah, so hopefully we gain some new patrons from that, and uh, for those of you new patrons, make sure you listen to some of the old stuff that we've done, too. There's a lot of great stuff on on these shows, and tell your friends about it. Let's spread that word, patreon.com slash 20 sheets. Get it out there. But anyway, so let's... Uh, Quit dilly-dallying, and let's get started, shall we? But if that was bizarre, what was going on behind the scenes and putting together the store was far more bizarre. This probably best explains John Stone's despair in putting it together. Who's John Stone? I think the, the whichever current affair reporter was anchoring the segment. Let me see if it's Inclu- at the beginning here. Okay, well, you find that while I read. John Stone's despair in putting together the close of comments that's hard to tell the good guys from oh, the John villains. John Stone, not John Stone. John Johnston, there we go, both in and out of the ring. A new personality came forward, claiming his name was Paul Baumgartner, claiming to be a former pro wrestler, to now can be told producer Brutskolsky. Baumgartner is apparently a small-time independent promoter in Ohio reality. According to Skolsky, he claimed to have a videotape showing something in fairness to the person he claims it is of, we shouldn't elaborate on because I don't believe for a second he has such a video. But if he had what he claimed, it would have been up a story that now can be told was going to do a follow-up pro wrestling segment based on climaxing the show with that video. In a later conversation, Bob Gartner claimed to have been good friends with Rita Chatterton, the woman who has gone on two television shows to talk about an incident involving McMahon directly. Bob Gartner supposedly told Skolsky that he didn't know for certain, but that he believed Chatterton's claim. He later claimed that there were parties trying to get him to change his story to discredit Chatterton. Just a few days later, McMahon's attorney, Jerry McDevitt, comes forward to a current affair with a man named Bill Gardner, who they claim was coming forward to say Chatterton told him he was making up her story. A current affair interviewed the man in what was supposedly his home in Ohio, who claimed to have been a former wrestler for WF and then Vincent Man Sr., using the name The Wolfman. There was a WWF wrestler in the late 60s and early 70s who used the ring name The Wolfman, but that was Willie Farkas. And Dave knows that, has no idea if that was the same person. He told him he was coming forward because he knew Chatterton was making up her story because she had told him personally. He also said Chatterton would never go to court and reclaim because he would be there to testify for McMahon against her. He went on to say that he was coming forward because McMahon was such a great man and had done so much good for the wrestling business and done so much work for charity and was being unfairly accused. Chatterton's attorney, Robert Wolf, said that Chatterton had never heard nor remembers even meeting a Bill Gardner or a Paul Baumgartner or the Wolfman, let alone what he claims he told her. Wolf theorized something strange based on a conversation he had a few days earlier with Skolsky, who told him that an ex-wrestler named Paul Baumgartner had claimed to her that someone was attempting to get him to discredit Chatterton. This is crazy. As it turns out, Gardner and Baumgartner, according to Skolsky, are the same person. 
His phone was disconnected the next day, and a current affairs investigating him found out the house he claimed was his, that the interview him in wasn't his. They contacted McDevitt, who denied the man's involvement in this, and said that Gardner had to disconnect his phone because he claimed he was being inundated with harassing phone messages from Chatterton. The current affairs said they were going to show clips of their interview with Chatterton and with Gardner on the piece and also uncover what they learned about Gardner. However, that segment of the story was edited out because the piece had to be shortened because of a late edition piece to the show that evening covering the riots in Los Angeles. Damn you. Damn you, riots. In addition, Lee Cole, the older brother Tom Cole, the former and current WF Marine boy whose claims of being sexually abused between the ages of 13 and 19 by three members of WF's management, led to this story garnering so much media attention, asked the current affair if he could be interviewed for the piece. He claimed he wanted to set the record straight in an interview where he would tell them a story negative to WF about the settlement and talk about the terms of the agreement made between his brother and the WF. However, Cole, just before he was scheduled to leave for the interview, allegedly asked for $2,500 to do the interview and was turned down. Okay. Dave, bring, Dave brings us something here in this whole thing that we've now hit that time that I think with it happening totally changes the media covering this story and other stories like this in particular. The L.A. riots. Mm-hmm. When, you ha- when you have something like that, a major story that is going on like that was at that time then stories like this would either be buried to, you know, a peripheral spot on the, on a show or just not covered basically at all. Mm-hmm. It's left. It's, it's, you know, it, it's basically the, um, uh, it's the Chandra Levy to nine 11 type thing. Remember that? Which the, also ended up being bad for Con Gary Condit because it Gary Condit, yeah, because it fell out of view by the time it turned out he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, the whole Gary Condit Chandra Levy thing, yes, which was a major story in this country, and then nine eleven hits and that knocks it out completely. Mm-hmm. So the Rodney King riots totally changes, you know, a lot of the media's trajectory on covering stories like this. They're going to spend most of their time covering that. Now, but go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, about Gardner, Baumgartner, whatever the fuck his name is. Okay. Reading this, as you're going through all this, the gears in my head are turning. This is all conjecture on my part, but... So, three and a half years later, when we hear about Marty Bergman, what do we hear? That he would go to media as both a friendly who was going to help them get dirt on WWF. And at other times, he was pretending, you know, to be... He was, you know, pretending to be, you know, either his brother or confuse people with his brother, who was, you know, the legendary uh, 60 Minutes producer, uh, Lowell Bergman, or whatever, in a way... And he was being sneakier in a different way to get information about WWF, or, or he'd be claiming to be on the WWF side, or whatever. Boy, does this feel like it has Marty Bergman's fingerprints all over it. Mm-hmm. It's almost exact. Yeah. Huh. Very interesting. And also... But McDevitt put the put him in touch with Current Affair. Uh-huh. But also, there's no reason to think that Laura Brevetti's in the mix yet either. Which makes you wonder <laughs> if it's... Not Marty Bergman so much as... McDevitt? 
I wouldn't go far as to say that, but I get what you're, it, that it would be coming from that side and wouldn't, that kind of plan would not necessarily be his idea in and of itself, I guess was what I was trying to say. Um, but, you know, I have and I've posted, you know, the FBI docs that at least were released under Freedom of Information Act to me about Bergman. There's nothing about this, but I guess it's not really obstruction of justice or anything at this time, so they wouldn't be looking into it. Um, huh. And I guess we should we should note too, because no one knows this at the time, the first subpoena that Titan got making them aware of the grand jury was the day of WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. So they they know when most people don't that shit is on in a way that in a way that is a very big deal. Yes. What a weird so I wonder who this who do you think this was? Who knows? <laughs> but that's why that's something I I don't think I've ever heard of this story talked about since it happened. It's first I've really heard of it. I remember most of the other stuff from around the scandal like shows, and I don't remember this. Like, you know, even in going back over coverage, I did not remember this whole thing. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Wow. <laughs> wow. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.